This is Audible. Podium Publishing presents Dawn of Wonder, Book One of The Wakening, written by Jonathan Renshaw, performed by Tim Jared Reynolds. Chapter One. Even the wind now held its breath. A hush of anticipation swept through the trees. Causing forest creatures to hesitate in their scratchings, and birds to falter in their songs. The woods grew still as everything was pressed under a deep, vast silence. It came from the east, from the mountain wilderness of Din Elan. It was like a swelling of the air, a flexing of the ground, as if some enormous power had been hurled into the earth hundreds of miles away. Sending tremors throughout the land. Directly over a country lane, a young squirrel was clamped to the limb of an ancient walnut tree. Tawny hair all over its body now rose and quivered as moss began to prickle underfoot. The deep, shuddering stillness flowed through the woods. In and amongst the trees, fur and feather trembled in a vice grip. The squirrel may have lacked the words for what stole into its mind, but in the same way that it knew the terror of jackal teeth and the lure of high branches, a vague yet frightening awareness was taking shape. Somewhere, many miles distant, something was stirring, changing, wakening. Then the feeling passed as swiftly as it had arrived, and the squirrel released its breath and looked around. It lifted a paw and examined the mossy bark, sniffed and turned quick eyes to the ground, to the leaves, to the sky, all in vain. As before, there were no answers to be found. It was the second time since winter that this alarming thrill had surged through the air, departing without a trace. But something else now caused little eyes to dart and ears to twitch. Something quite different. The leaves strewn across the forest lane were beginning to quake and shiver. Several pigeons that had been huddling on the ground burst away in all directions with a wild clapping of wings. For the squirrel, this was warning enough. It fled across the branch, disappearing up the walnut trunk and into a knot hole, as if drawn by a string. Before it had a chance to push its head out, a horse and rider hurtled around the bend, apparently unaware of the recent quieting of their surroundings. Hooves slipped on the moist surface, flinging up dark clods, but there was no slowing of pace. Wide eyes and foamy flecks suggested that the pace had not slackened for many miles. The tall rider's green military coat whipped and snapped around him as he leaned forward in the stirrups. Head close to the horse's plunging neck. In his fist, crushed against the reins, was a rolled sheet of paper. The speed, the foam, the clutched paper. Anyone he passed by would have instantly read the look on his face. Please, let me not be too late. A few miles up the road was the farm of Badgerfields. It held tumbling meadows working their way upwards in the early sun, sheep and cattle working away at the meadows, and an assortment of labourers who were engaged in something that did not resemble work at all. 
Plowmen, whose harrows lay discarded in the fresh new earth, were balancing on a fence for a clearer view. They were placing bets, grinning. On the far side of the river, a cart loaded with dead wood creaked to a halt. The driver scrambled onto the heap of timber where he peered out over a lush green pastureland, chuckled to himself, and dug his boots into the woodpile until he had a steady footing. This was something he was not going to miss. All around, farmhands dropped their tools, and even the long grass, silvered and heavy with dew, caught the mood and leaned forward. Everyone's eyes were fixed on an old stone bridge over the Brockle River. The walkway was narrow, the stones doubtful, the walls slippery, and there was a lot of air underneath. To the farm's adventure hunter, who would give his name as Aidan and his age as almost thirteen, though he'd only recently turned twelve, it was irresistible. It wasn't just the lure of danger, but something it afforded that was far closer to his heart. Friendship. Under a scruffy head and smudged face, there was no missing the eager young eyes that were bright with hope for the morning's project. Adventures, he had discovered, became cold and lonely things if he couldn't, at some stage, get friends to share them. And friends, even old friends, were never quite on the level of companions until they shared his adventures. Whether or not the friends actually wanted to share them tended to have little effect on the outcome. Aidan had become an expert in coaxing and nudging, and perhaps one or two of those nudges might have been misunderstood as shoves, but they had been given with the best intentions. Everyone was always glad afterwards. Mostly. It had taken much work, and perhaps one or two improvements on the facts about the landing, but Aidan had finally convinced Thomas to attempt the dreaded jump. The images he had painted with his words were irresistible. The thrill of the leap, the wonders of soaring flight, the softness of dropping into water. Deep, icy, emerald water that clinked and rattled in the chasm below. Thomas, after explaining to Aidan once again that he did not want to do this, and being assured in the most ardent terms that he did, finally conceded and lifted his shaking hands from the lichen-coated wall. He raised himself by unsteady inches until he wobbled on the cold stones a dizzy height above the river. The soft pink skin on his back was alive with shudders. Many eyes watched from the various points along the sheer banks, but only one other person was on the bridge. Callery, a year older and half a head taller than Aidan, bit her lip as she glanced at Thomas and then peered beyond him over the wall. It was a long, long way down. Who, what if I land on a fish? Thomas was staring past his toes into the hungry river. These trout have got spines on their fins. If they're pointing up and I'm going down, it could be like the time I... He turned a glorious ruby red and glanced over at Calry. When she smiled encouragingly at him, he attempted a careless chuckle, swung his arms, and almost lost his balance. Oh, tripe! he gasped, regaining control of his shivering limbs only just in time. Aidan was getting worried. He had to help his friend pass this remarkably creative pessimism. 
How did Thomas manage to think of trout fins? Fish always keep one eye looking up, Aidan said. They think falling people are eagles, so they get out of the way. He had a strong suspicion that this might not be entirely true, but it should be, which was almost as good. Calvary's wrinkled nose told him what she thought of it, but she shrugged off the uncomfortable feeling. Disarming encouragement radiated from this short, scruffy boy. Mischief lurked. He tried again. Once you're in the air, it feels just like flying. The only frightening part is before you jump, he said. Calory frowned at Aiden and opened her mouth to speak, but he fixed her with a stare and shook his head. She narrowed her eyes, but held her tongue. He was about to try the angle of, If you don't do this now, you'll hate yourself forever, when he was distracted by a sound that drifted over from the main farm buildings. The faraway pounding of hooves that had been steadily growing erupted into a harsh cobblestone clatter. He looked just in time to glimpse something pale and green flashing across the gaps between dairies, stables, and feed barns. The last opening was broader and revealed a large grey horse and a uniformed rider. They dashed between labourers at a reckless pace. Instead of halting before the main courtyard rail, the horse actually jumped it and pounded up the fine lawn to the very doorstep of the manor house. Then the timber shed blocked the view. Aidan's curiosity caught a light, but he stamped the flames down. Nothing could be allowed to distract him now. The interruption, however, gave him an idea, a spark of inspiration that matched Thomas for creativity. The rumours of lowland bandits or slave traders could be true this time, Thomas. This might be your last chance before you're made a slave for the rest of your life. Or beheaded. Or... Or... Locked in your room while our soldiers fight them for years and years until you are too old to make the jump without getting killed. Thomas flinched. You mean... People can actually die from this jump. Of course not. Even Calories done it. But you just said it would kill me if I was too old. Aidan frowned and kicked the stone paving. I didn't mean that part. It sort of sneaked in there without me actually wanting it. He glared at Calorie with an unspoken demand for help, but the girl's hazel eyes were now full of laughter. She shook her head and buried her amusement behind a tousled mass of sun and barley hair. Aidan had to soldier on alone. Think of it, Thomas. Once you jump, you'll be one of us, one of the Badgerfields elites. And... and you can have my second sling. Didn't you break it yesterday? It could be fixed. Calorie, the smile still lingering held her hands up with a look that was really a soundless groan. Aidan was equally unimpressed with the strength of his arguments, but he was grasping now. The golden moment of decision was passing by, and it would not come again. Just then a cloud drifted in front of the sun. Thomas shuddered as an inquisitive breeze explored his soft skin. I... I think I'll wait for it to warm up a bit first, he said. Anyway, I want to know what's going on at the manor house. I can see lots of people running. 
Aidan's and Callery's eyes met, and something flickered between them. As Thomas bent over, the first of several careful maneuvers in getting down from the wall, two pairs of hands reached up and provided the encouragement that they would later claim he had as good as requested. The howl of terror that split the morning and echoed down the chasm would live on in Aidan's dreams for years to come, always bringing a sigh and a smile. The falling boy actually ran out of breath before he hit the icy river, allowing a theatrical pause before the sharp smack of belly and limbs. It was the loudest landing they had ever heard. Aidan, I think we might have killed him. Calry said, her eyes on the frothy impact point far below. Without a word, Aidan was over the edge and in the air, plummeting towards his friend. Calry was not far behind. She was airborne by the time Aidan hit the water. The river crashed up around him. He always said that cold water felt less wet, more like liquid stones. It certainly felt that way now, as the brisk current jostled him downstream. His feet throbbed from the impact, and he'd forgotten to block his nose, resulting in a stinging shot to the brain. But there was no time to worry over such things. The moment he surfaced, he spun around, looking for Thomas. Callery landed about six inches away and gave him the best fright of his young life. By the time he could see again, she had taken the lead in the rescue of their friend. Callery, you wind brain, he spluttered. You. You could have made me shorter. Callery laughed as she swam away with the current towards the disturbance in the water that was Thomas. He was gasping in snatches. Eyebrows raised almost to his hairline indicated that he was still experiencing the full force of the shock and the cold. The Brockle was a river born of snowmelt and hidden by forest until it rushed into the sun only a mile upstream. The two rescuers caught up and guided their friend out of the current onto a sandy bank. He crawled from the water in a series of desperate jerking movements. I'm going to kill you, Aiden, he gasped. Calry helped. Then I'll kill you twice. He panted and coughed up an impressive quantity of river. I'm going to hang you and after that I'll skin you alive. You mean, skin me dead? That's what people are after you hang them. If Thomas was impressed by Aidan's expertise in the area, he did not show it. Aidan had made a solemn promise to his parents that he would stay away from the execution at Crossroads Gallows a year ago, and had spent a year wishing he'd kept his promise. Finding himself where he did not belong was apparently a habit he had been born with. The memory of that day still made him feel like gagging. But he never let on. Instead, he wore it like a badge. It gained him a kind of morbid respect amongst his peers. Thomas whimpered as he touched his belly. It was blushing like sunrise, as if he'd spent the day sprawled out on the sand and been scorched to a crimson perfection. Even Aidan winced at the sight, but he recovered quickly and leaned forward. So, did you catch a fish? he whispered. Aiden, Calvary said. Thomas glared 
assembled his still wobbly legs beneath him, and clumped away. He seemed to have forgotten that he was a mild boy, and stopped after a few yards to cast a very dangerous look back at the guilty pair. Aidan tried to look apologetic, but then realized he didn't feel apologetic. He knew Thomas would thank him one day. Well, perhaps not quite thank him, but at least join in the laughter. Or at least not scowl at the memory. Though it hadn't gone exactly as planned, Thomas had finally shared the adventure. When they were alone, he turned to Cullery. Another successful mission for the elites. Thomas is a member at last. I feel horrible, she said. It was good for him. He'll be happy about it one day. I think I'm going to feel horrible until then. Nonsense. Make him a pearl nut pie, and he'll forget everything after the first bite. Will you help me search for the nuts, then? They aren't easy to find this time of year. Well, as long as it's quick. I want to see what all the fuss is at the house. And as long as you don't expect me to beg. We have to give him something nicer than the fall, so you won't be baking. Wind brain. Frog nose. They let the bright spring sun dry them as they jogged over the hayfields towards the mysterious pearlnut tree. This tree, a curiosity known to the whole Midlands, was unnaturally big, several hundred feet high, its smooth, leathery trunk almost as wide as the hay barn. Every autumn it produced large, nut-like seeds, with a translucent, milky flesh that Calry described as a mixture of pecan nuts, honey, and snow. But there was more that intrigued them than the size and the magical taste of the kernels. In the last year, something strange had happened. It was Collery who discovered it by putting her ear to the trunk and listening, as she often did. With a startled cry, she'd leapt away. But fright dwindled before curiosity. When she pressed her ear to the smooth bark again, her expression slowly melted into quiet wonder. It's sighing, she explained. Not in a sad way, but big and full with thoughts of delicious soil and warm sun and crisp, clean air that drifts high up where pearl-nut leaves can tickle the feet of cheeky low clouds. Aidan argued at first that it was just the sound of wind passing down the trunk, the same way those hollow, eerie sounds pass down a chimney when the sky is restless and the house is empty. But then he too put his ear to the tree. It was quite a long time, and he was almost out of patience when he heard a deep, rumbling breath that didn't sound much like wind, and that made him think of soil and sun and air. Still, determined to prove his point, he stepped back to indicate the wind and the boughs. There hadn't been any. Since then, he had always felt a slight quiver in his bones when approaching the tree, and he felt it again now. But before he and Callery had covered half the distance across the east field, their attention was drawn by William, the elderly but still strong farm manager, who was engaged in a lively discussion with Thomas. William pointed to the manor house, and the boy raced away. Then William spotted Aidan and Callery, and started running towards them. Now we're in for it, said Aidan. 
Callerie was watching William. I don't think he's coming to talk about the bridge, she said. He's running. He never runs. Aidan stopped. Callery drew up alongside him. There's Emroy, Aidan said, pointing at a red-headed youth, going like he's got a wasp in his rods. Hope he has. Isn't that Thomas's father over there by the sheep pens? He's running too. Old Dougal was surging up the hill, limp forgotten, hands flailing about him as if attempting to gain some additional purchase from the air. Aidan, said Callery taking his arm. Something has happened. Aidan, I'm scared. You! It was William, bellowing as he came within range. Those words were aimed at them, his eyes cast frantically about the perimeter of the farm. Get to the house now. Keep in the open and move quickly. What is it? Callery asked. But William was already bounding away, and turned only to yell. Run! He was not a timid man, but the worry beneath his words was thicker than flies in a pig pen. They ran. William threw his voice out across the fields. From all directions, laborers began hurrying towards the manor house, shaken from their stations like overripe apples in a wind grown unsteady. The first gusts of a storm. Chapter Two when Aidan and Callery reached the courtyard outside the main buildings, they found a small crowd of farm workers gathered in fluttering nervousness. Dresborn, the farm owner, who was also Callery's father, stood at the front of the crowd in earnest conversation with the stranger in the bright green military coat. Half a dozen men were posted as lookouts, standing on the nearby roofs of hay barn, dairy, and timber shed. The uniformed stranger paced before Dresborn, and called regularly to the lookouts. Aidan was balancing on an empty wheelbarrow, peering over the heads that towered in front of him. Can you see what's happening? Collery asked. I think he's waiting for everyone to get here, Aidan said. He jumped down and headed over to a cart that had just been loaded with hay. After some scrambling, interrupted by a series of sneezes, they were balanced at the front edge overlooking the restless gathering. There was some reassurance to be found in the backdrop of the grand manor house. It was three stories high, with solid walls, heavy doors, and thick oak shutters on the windows. It could certainly be made secure, but, in truth, it was no fortress. The peaceful Midlands did not call for battlements or turrets. Aidan fixed his eyes on the stranger, who had most people's attention. He was an impressive man— Tall, powerfully built, even intimidating, as could be seen from the fawning of those near him. Though his words did not carry to the back, his posture and manners told of great authority, an impression cemented when he turned from the lookouts to the swelling crowd with bold, intelligent eyes, eyes that caused most to find sudden interest in their shoes. This, Aidan thought, was no mere soldier. This was the kind of man the great histories were filled with. And he was here, in the rural misty vales. Aidan and Callery leaned forward, trying to catch the spillage of several dozen conversations beneath them. 
but it was clear that nobody had the slightest clue as to why they had been wrenched from their labours, not that anyone minded. The two friends listened all the same. Wild speculation being no less exciting than actual facts, and as there was nothing they could do to hurry things along, this seemed the best way to endure the waiting. They made an unusual pair. Both were without siblings and had, by all appearances, adopted each other. Aidan was a short boy whose brown skin owed as much to sun as soil, whose clothes were constantly sprouting new rips and stains and never lost the smell of wood smoke, and whose eyes were either brimming with adventure or lost in deep musings that, when spoken, seemed strangely misplaced in a boy so small and grubby. The workings of his young mind were, in fact, so extraordinary that he was sometimes referred to as the brain. Dorothy, who ran the kitchen and was forever pursuing his muddy steps with a mop, quickly amended this to the drain. What proceeded from Aidan's thoughts was a combination of boyish mischief and deductive genius. In superstitious circles, some whispered that he was unnaturally gifted or tainted. The menfolk, especially the old soldiers with whom Aidan was forever discussing the wars, were repeatedly astounded by his knack for thinking like a seasoned military strategist. The women were appalled. Their efforts to direct his thoughts to milder, more age-appropriate interests, and to steer his feet along cleaner paths, were met with absolute failure. He remained stubbornly battle-minded and mud-brushed. Callery, on the other hand, was able to share most of Aidan's adventures, and yet remained surprisingly neat and clean, which in Aidan's estimation was more or less to miss the point. There was one part of Callery's appearance, however, that was never neat. It was her hair. Aidan had once said that she could conceal herself any time by leaping feet first into a hayrick. Unfortunately, the implied comparison was a little too good, and after seeing the look on her face, he had never mentioned it again. The problem was that Calorie's hair was not that easy to tell apart from hay. It was a stubbornly untamable straw-like mass that hung long and wild down her back. It fell in an assortment of braids, stalk-like shafts, and rebellious curls. The whole effect of the wind-blown tangle was something that drew concerned pats from grandmothers and barbed teasing from children. Aidan secretly adored it, though he couldn't bring himself to say so. As he saw it, Calorie's wild hair was to her what coppery leaves were to autumn. He spotted Thomas on the far side of the yard and was trying to gauge how angry his friend was when Calorie interrupted his thoughts. What's that mark on your neck? He stiffened. Nothing. Was it Emroy? Does your father know? I don't want to talk about it. After a while, he glanced at her and recognized the soft frown he hated seeing. But he couldn't tell her. Not about this. When a tree was being ruined from inside, the bark would hide its shame. At least for a time. Aidan had kept his bark wrapped tight. He wanted none to know, least of all Calorie. But there was another reason he could not speak of it. 
When he had confided in Bryce, the news had reached the boy's parents, and Aidan had been asked to stay away from their farm. He wasn't going to lose calorie, too. The silence strained between them, and he began to feel very lonely. It's not that I don't trust you, he said. The thing is, well, Bryce and I aren't friends anymore because I told him. Calorie looked at him and at the bruise on his neck again. Her voice was gentle when she leaned over and whispered in his ear. Aidan caught his breath. She leaned back. It's him, isn't it? He did this. Aidan was silent, his jaw grinding. Calorie put her arm through his. See? I'm still your friend, and I won't tell. His throat bunched up tight, and he felt pools forming in his eyes. It took all his concentration to keep them from spilling, to keep the pain inside. But Calorie would know anyway. She mostly did. And she held his arm fast. The last group of laborers arrived, breathing heavily, eyes casting frantically about them. The stranger appeared to be concluding his discussion with Dresborn and making ready to address the crowd. First to guess his origin, Calorie offered. If you are prepared to lose, Aidan said, glad of the diversion. I won the last three, remember? Well, I wasn't really trying my best. Who says I was? Let's both try our best this time. Then there are no excuses. Deal. Aidan spat in his hand and offered it to Calorie, who grimaced and brushed the glistening palm with a handful of hay. Boys are such barbarians, she muttered. The stranger raised his hands for silence, and the courtyard fell into a deathly hush. I am glad that you are able to get here so quickly, he said, as he paced before them, his agitation all too obvious. Your manager is to be commended for his promptness and efficiency. He indicated William, who acknowledged the compliment. I am Lieutenant Quinn of the Midland Council of Guards. I have been assigned to the Misty Vales to sound the warning that will soon be ringing through every corner of the Midlands and to assist in protecting our people. I am here to oversee and strengthen whatever defences are in existence. Sir Dresborn of Badger's Hall has examined my commission. In spite of his surging curiosity, Aidan felt himself shrink away at the mention of Dresborn's noble title. He hated being reminded that Calorie was of noble blood. In the rural Misty Vales, social distinctions were not given much weight, but the potential for separation still haunted him. Dresborn, however, did not appear displeased at this reminder of rank. He took a deep breath and puffed up, an unflattering effect for an already puffy-looking man, before closing his eyes and inclining his head, indicating that the lieutenant should continue. The man turned back to the crowd, shook his arms, and straightened the green coat of his uniform. For the past thirty years, the Central Midlands has been unthreatened by Lecran slave-hunting, 
especially the wind-flung areas like this. Rumors and warnings of slave traders have always turned out to be as empty as cargo holds in the wake of pirates. The consequence is that these areas have been softened by ease. We fear that this has now been discovered. Recently, one of our parties, while scouting south of here, sighted a Lecran slave convoy from a distance. Our men were outnumbered and could take no action, so they rode to the nearest town, Glenting, where they discovered that dozens of townsfolk had been taken. One here and one there, as they became isolated. The slavers were swift. Not one was seen, and not one captive escaped. We suspect that Glenting is only the beginning that all isolated Midland areas will now be seen as lagoons full of trapped fish. We should move to the town centre, Dougal shouted in a thin, wheezing voice. Keep the women and children in the middle, reinforce the walls, let them try take us there. We'll show these filthy lacrons something they'll carry to their island graves. There was an outburst of agreement, disagreement, and a general din of nervous commentary. The lieutenant raised his hands for silence. When the last conversations had died away, he shook his arms and straightened his coat again, a shadow of annoyance, or perhaps discomfort, crossing his face. I am glad you made that suggestion. It is a good one. But in this case I think we are too late for that. He paused to let his meaning sink home. The eyes that stared back at him were growing large and white. Men edged to the outside of the circle, grasping pitchforks and shovels. Yes, Quinn said, nodding at them. I believe they are already here. And unless I'm sorely mistaken, this farm will be the first target. It is the ideal size, and sufficiently isolated. If I am right, then travellers attempting to reach the town, even large groups of us, would make easy targets. On the road, the advantage is theirs. They are well armed and highly trained. We would stand no chance. Sir Dresborn agrees with me that the wiser move at this stage is to fortify the manor house until it looks like a sea urchin. My orders are to ensure that you do not make yourselves vulnerable— so I must insist that you remain here until guard reinforcements arrive tomorrow. Sir Dresborn has already agreed to this. Do I have your cooperation? There was a murmur of agreement. After a brief conference with Dresborn and William, Quinn began issuing instructions. Riders were dispatched to the farm's homesteads. Everyone was to be brought to the manor house. Livestock in distant fields was to be left for the evening— only the nearby fields could be cleared. Nobody was to move alone or unarmed. Among the older listeners with longer memories, there were deeply worried faces, and some of the younger children were crying. Aidan frowned and turned to Calry. Think it's real this time? he asked. Never been real before, she said. At least not in our time. Well, even if it's not another snot-in-the-wind story, I think we're safe here with everyone around. Callery sighed. You with your snot and spit. It's no wonder you can't write poetry when your brain is full of ideas like that. 
Aidan was about to say that he thought poetry the only repulsive one of the three, but Cullery preempted him. Want to finish the game? I'm ready to beat you again. She grinned. All right, big mouth, he said. You go first. Only if you promise not to use my ideas. Promise. Don't spit in your hand again. Aidan lowered his hand and blew out his cheeks at this girlish silliness, then folded his arms with an almost concealed smirk and settled back to listen. For years, the two of them had been sharpening their uncommonly acute minds with games like this, that intrigued yet baffled their friends and even some of the adults. Aidan enjoyed the challenges almost as much as he enjoyed winning them, but it had been a while since he had tasted the sweetness of victory. Callery took her breath, glanced over at the lieutenant, and began. I think his uniform is from either Rinwald or Stills. They're the only towns that would have such ugly fashions, like the hideous pointed collar and the swallowtail jacket. He struts like a rooster when he walks, and he looks at us like those snobby South Midlanders who only pretend to like other people. And what was the other thing? She narrowed her eyes. Oh, yes, and his accent is high. He says each word really carefully, like a man who has studied how to make speeches. None of that seems like backwards stills, so I say he's from Rinwald. What's your guess? Aidan was silent for some time. I'm just confused, he said at length. Every time I tried to settle on an idea, he did something to squash it. You still need to put your origin down before we ask him. Aidan thought again. My first idea, and the only one that seems to work, is that he must live near the sea, because he kept making boats and fish comparisons. I don't know what sea urchins are, but I'm sure you don't find them in the Midlands. I'll choose something coastal, and not too far north, like Falls Harbour. The sea comparisons. Good point, she conceded. I remember that now. We might both be right, though. He could have grown up at the coast and moved away later, but if he did, he must have worked very hard to lose the western accent. Let's go find out. They clambered and slid down the hay and dropped off the back of the cart under a small shower of straw and dust. Dougal had pulled the lieutenant aside and was whispering questions, nodding rapidly at the brief answers, and then attacking with further questions. The lieutenant was giving all the signals, tapping hands, stamping feet, and wandering eyes. He finally tired of the business, and while making a last reply, he spun on his heel and strode away, directly towards Aidan and Callery. The annoyed cast of his features changed as he saw the slender young girl with the warm eyes. He smiled. It was only a flash, but Aidan had a sudden impulse to push him away. Lieutenant Quinn, she said in her bellish voice, can we ask you where you come from? The smile slipped and he narrowed his eyes. What do you mean by that? Aidan was liking this lieutenant less and less. That was no way to talk to Callery. We have this game, she explained. We try to guess where people are from by using clues. 
I guessed Rinwald, and Aidan guessed a coastal town like Falls Harbour. Did we come close? Understanding eased his features, but he remained aloof when he replied. Rinwald, it is. I congratulate you. You are as discerning as your father. It is always a pleasure dealing with others of noble blood. He kept his eyes on her. Aidan flinched. He had wanted to ask further details, but was only too happy when the man turned and strode away. He wondered why a soldier had bothered to find out who was related to whom. I don't like him, Aidan said. That's because he made you lose your fourth in a row, Calvary laughed. And wasn't I right about his snobbishness? Wanted us to know about his noble blood, too. Aidan was frowning, lost in thought. Calry, he said, if he hadn't been wearing that uniform, would you still have thought he was from Windwald? Well, that's the point, isn't it? We're supposed to use all the clues that we have to lead us to a conclusion. I don't know. Maybe he got a good promotion through a friend, and he's actually spent most of his life doing something shady in one of the seaports. That would explain his bad manners. And there's something else about him, something I can't put into words. Something that worries me. If this slave business actually turns out to be real, I don't think I want him in charge. Callery looked at Aidan. Her eyes had grown a lot more serious. He did make a lot of sea comparisons, didn't he? Chapter 3 Calry! The courtyard was still emptying when Dorothy's voice rang through the commotion. She was, without doubt, grandmother to the whole farm, but the greying of her hair had not been accompanied by the slightest flagging of energy. There was enough wit and zest in her veins to match any of the young troublemakers. Over here, my girl! Vegetables to be washed. We need all hands in the kitchen, even little ones. Aidan, you two, you mangy mudvole. Though you do look surprisingly clean this morning. She stepped in front of him, hands on hips, a half-smile tugging the dimple in one cheek. Been in the river, haven't you? Aidan nodded. A sad day for everyone downstream, she said, giving his ear a tweak as he darted past. She followed him, still talking. Well, at least you won't be able to leave my ingredients dirtier than you find them. Now don't just stand there looking at what has to be done. Hop to it before I give you something to hop about. By late afternoon, labourers armed with rusty swords and frail spears returned from the nearby fields. In the manor house, belongings and weapons cluttered the floor in every room. Fireplaces were set to work against the air that had turned cold. Salted pork, preserved figs, and bowls of nuts were brought out from the larder to ease the waiting, while a thick mutton and vegetable stew began to weave heady aromas through the house. Dorothy's cooking was legendary. It had once been said that she could turn soil to cake. William, her husband, had remarked that he could achieve the reverse, earning himself a sharp smack with the rolling pin. The men had gathered in the main hall and were now discussing shifts of three groups that would be rotated through the night. Aidan, 
eager to know how the defences would be arranged, was listening intently to the scraps of talk that carried through to the kitchen, where he was still imprisoned. He heard the outer door open, and William's voice, usually so bold, was deferential as he explained the new idea to whoever had entered. Aidan guessed that it had to be Lieutenant Quinn. I appreciate that you have been so proactive. It was definitely Quinn. While I have been scouting the surrounds. But from what I see, the manor house is strong and well situated. Such precautions as you suggest would be excessive. Remember that these are slavers who rely on speed and stealth, not force of numbers. So the gathering of this many people would, by itself, ensure safety. When weathering a storm with all sails down, the greatest enemy is panic. We can all relax, trust me. Situations like these are my daily occupation. From the responses, it was clear that everyone approved. It eased the tension considerably. Soon the house began to fill with talk and laughter, as bellies were filled with an ample supper. Dorothy found out about the morning's business at the river, and punished the two miscreants by sending them back to the kitchen to clean the dishes. Aidan was hopeless. He started by washing and handing the crockery to Calorie to dry, but what she received was a stream of wet, dirty plates. Aidan, you wash dishes like you're worried about getting infected by them. Washing dishes is disgusting. Aidan was trailing the cloth over a plate, clearly trying to keep his fingers dry. You play with slugs and dung beetles, use horse droppings for target practice, and spit in your hand. So do you. I don't spit in my hand. Washing dishes is still disgusting, Aidan grumbled. All those things are clean dirt. This job is just revolting. Anyway, you hate it just as much as me. I've heard Dorothy moaning at you and calling you back to clean properly lots of times. Well, at least I do my washing quickly, even if it isn't perfect. Here, let me wash. You can dry. Fine. The new arrangement worked far better, and it wasn't long before they were finished, leaving a pile of almost clean, completely wet dishes on the counter. Aidan draped the cloth over the top to reduce the chance of someone noticing and calling him back to dry them properly. If Calorie had noticed, she was saying nothing. She had never cared much for these mundane chores. Storybooks, sketch pads, and fireside conversations had far too strong a grip on her affections and drew her away more than Dorothy thought acceptable. But the old lady was not here now, and Calorie wasted no time heading for the door. Aidan lingered, hovering at the gap between the heavy shutters that looked out towards the forest. He willed his eyes to travel into the foggy darkness, gathering behind the bowls of elm, sycamore, oak, and hornbeam. Nimless was a forbidding forest, even in daylight, a dim world of ancient things and terrible secrets preserved only in folklore. At least, that was what the folklore said. But the stories were not without effect. Few dared enter the forest, and those that did were mostly shunned, the superstitious folk marking them as tainted by the feared darkness within. Aidan had never bothered himself with such ideas, and as the son of a forester, had been quite at home tracking, exploring, hunting, and wandering freely 
under the leafy roofs. What he had found in there had not entirely convinced him that the folklore was wind and smoke. There was something about the forest that demanded his respect, though what it was he could never decide. And ever since that peculiar storm, he had felt as if there was something whispery about Nimless, almost awake. Not in a haunting way, but as if it were more alive than before. Now, however, what he imagined in the deep shadows had a much clearer shape and intent. What is it? Callery asked. None of this is making sense. Something is wrong. Wrong with what? The way everyone is acting. It seems like a party. Look at the forest, Callery. You could hide an army there, fifty yards from this house, and nobody would know. The lieutenant worked so hard to convince us that the slavers are real. He made sure we went to all the hassle of staying here for the night. But now he seems more worried about the hassle of too many centuries than about slavers. He doesn't realize that with us all here at the edge of the forest, we could be in even more danger. I know how easy it is to hide behind the trees. Callery smiled. You always look at things differently like you're climbing onto the roof to get a better angle, while everyone else looks from the ground. Let's get William in here. You should tell him what you just told me. She waved her arms from the doorway until she caught the manager's eye and beckoned him with a smile full of honest affection. A moment later, William walked in. Aidan had never grown used to how tall and impressive the man was up close. Most in his position would have retired a dozen years earlier, complaining of exhaustion. But even into his seventies, William's strength was formidable, and he seemed to have little interest in setting any of it aside. A smile drew the wrinkles of many good years into their best arrangement. Yes, you young miscreants, what mischief are you brewing now? Callery told him that Aidan had something he needed to hear, the man turned a patient look towards Aidan, who unloaded his worries. William smiled when the explaining was done. Ah, the imagination of youth. In some ways I envy you, Aidan. Leave this matter with me. I promise you I will keep my eyes wide open, but I don't think you need to be worried. I know you have a way of understanding military matters, but remember that I've actually served in the field. And this lieutenant, he impresses me. The labourers I sent into town earlier saw him on the road this morning, said he rode like a tiger was after him. A less responsible man might have spared himself and his horse. There is no question that he has our best interests at heart, and I believe he has made the right decision under the circumstances. Nobody's going to attack a sturdy building like this when it's full of armed men. Aidan scrunched his mouth in thought. William had a point, and William was no stranger to battle. Set your mind at rest, Aidan. We are safe here. If your wild thoughts persist, all I ask is that you don't spread them. It is very important that everyone stays calm. We don't need the madness of fear in these closed quarters. I've seen what that can do. He put a finger to his lips, looked at the children, and held their eyes until he was sure they understood him. 
Then he ruffled their heads with grandfatherly gentleness and left. Aidan wasn't quite sure what he felt. At least part of it was relief. But there was something in his mind that wasn't quite settled, like dry leaves shifting with the careful movements of a little unseen creature. He and Callery left the kitchen and slipped into a crush of bodies that filled the central hall. The rich teak and red oak furniture had been moved against polished stone walls. Fine paintings, a dozen pairs of antlers, and as many bearskins hung all the way up to the high vaulted ceiling. Callery had always thought the room too big. It's so uncozy and may as well be outdoors, she'd once told Aidan. Everyone else considered it a magnificent hall, the pride of one of the Midlands' finest homes. Because they were unable to see over the crowd, they did not notice Emroy until it was too late. As they lurched out into the clear, there was no chance of pretending not to recognize him and ducking the other way. Stink, Aidan grumbled loudly enough for Callery to hear. Emroy had cornered Thomas in what was clearly an unpleasant conversation. Both boys looked up as the two arrivals stumbled out from the press of bodies. And here he is, Emroy called. Ha! Aiden, you really have a way of rubbing people's noses in it, don't you? I would simply have named Thomas a coward, but you had to go and demonstrate it. The boy was three years older than Aiden and much bigger. He stood a good foot taller and looked down at a steep angle. But apparently this was not intimidation enough, and he stepped so close that he was almost looking directly down through the half-dozen wiry hairs that had recently sprung up on his chin. Are you planning to kiss me? Aidan asked. No! Emroy wrinkled a pimply nose. Then why are you standing so close? Aidan's tone was perfect innocence, Emroy bristled and stepped back while Callery hid her grin with her hand. Who told you Thomas was a coward? Aidan asked. I don't need ten-year-old children to tell me what's obvious. I can read people, Aidan. I can tell that you are a fool. Well, you can't tell that I'm almost thirteen, and a moment ago it looked like you couldn't tell I was a boy, so I'm not too worried. Emroy's spotty cheeks flushed, and he raised the head of a fine ivory cane in dramatic warning. Nobody paid it much attention because he wearied everyone so by constantly drawing their eyes to this mark of rank. What makes you think I demonstrated that he's a coward? Aidan asked. The bridge, fool! Or have you forgotten? He couldn't make the jump. You had to shove him. Everyone's talking about it. He ended with a flourish of his cane, and settled down to stroking his chin hairs and smiling a condescending smile. How many times have you made that jump? Emroy looked aside, as if distracted by something on the other end of the room. Hundreds? He mumbled. Has anyone ever seen you do it? Of course. Who? What does that have to do with it? I wasn't looking for spectators. You're a stinking liar, and you know it, Aidan said, shaking his head. How dare you accuse me? 
You just accused Thomas of being a coward and you call me a fool. That makes us even. But remember that Thomas got up on the wall on his own. That is the worst part and the most difficult. We all know that you never got that far. He's not the coward. You are. You're embarrassed that he has more nerve than you. You're lucky we're in Dresborn's house, else I'd teach you all a good lesson. Emroy growled. He began counting them off, pointing the head of the cane at each of them in turn. When he included Calrie, Aidan slapped it aside and stepped in front of her. Something in his eyes had changed. Even Emroy drew back a fraction. Though he recovered well, obviously remembering that he was a good deal bigger. Emroy, please don't be like this, Calrie pleaded. Aidan's way of dealing with these confrontations she so hated was quite different. Where she would try to douse the flames, Aidan would catch a light and fight fire with a hotter fire. I know the lesson you mean, he said, glaring at Emroy. The bigger you are, the more rubbish you're allowed to talk, and if anyone else says you're wrong, you'll prove that you're actually right by hitting them. That's what rubbish talkers mean by proof. Emroy's jaw clamped, and he moved towards Aidan, but couldn't demonstrate his proof here. And he had already been accused once of preparing for a kiss, so he turned and stamped away, shoving an inconsiderate path through the crowd. When he was gone, Aidan wondered aloud if the slavers would take requests. Calories smacked him over his scruffy head, and Thomas pulled a wry grin. We intended to make you a pearl nut pie, Aidan said to him. It was all this business about slavers that spoiled our plan. Was that going to be your way of saying sorry? Thomas asked. It was meant to be congratulations. We are still impressed that you got as far as you did. Nobody else ever stood on the wall and swung their arms before. Thomas smiled. There was no anger left there. He was never much good at being angry. His soft features looked uncomfortable and drawn out of shape by hard expressions. Even when something did rouse his ire, he lacked the stamina for holding resentments. Pity, he said. I could have done with some pearl nut pie, as long as Calorie was going to make it and not you. Aidan laughed. I feel exactly the same. As he glanced around, he noticed the lieutenant in the far corner. Something irked him about the way the man's eyes were moving over the people in the room. Calorie was right about one thing. He certainly considered these people beneath him. Finding the hall stifling, they climbed the stairs to Calorie's room. It was colder on the upper floor, but there was a fire going in the hearth. It revealed a spacious and relatively messy room, Cushions and books and sketch pads and flowers collected from the fields were scattered liberally. Where's Dara? Calorie asked. I'm sure she's tucked herself away in the quietest corner, Thomas said. Think like a mouse and you'll find her. Calorie disappeared and returned a short while later with the mouse-mannered, doe-eyed girl in tow. She was the youngest of them, only nine but her small frame and timid appearance made her look six. It was deceptive, though. She was not as timid as she looked. 
Aiden braced himself when he noticed that there was still something smoldering there. She fixed her eyes on him and stood stiffly against the doorpost. In the way of anger and resentment, she was Thomas's perfect opposite. Thomas looked up at her. I forgave them, he said. They wanted to make me a pie to apologize, but they did a good job of chasing Emroy away instead. Oh, I hate that boy, she said, and then blushed at the fierceness of her outburst. Come, sit, said Callery, as she settled on the large rug before the fireplace that was humming with bright flame. The rug was where they always sat. As Aidan had put it, chairs made them feel like they were still half-standing. Dara dropped down beside her friend and began braiding the rug's long woolen tufts, while the boys took turns with a pair of fire irons, balancing chestnuts over the coals for roasting. A sound drifted through the window from the dimness of a wet and early dusk. It was the song of a rainbird, clear against the silence of all the other forest birds that would be tucking themselves into their feathers and hunching up under dripping leaves. Aidan listened and heard the soft pattering of rain. One thing he shared with the singing bird was a love of rain, and especially of storms. He always felt a deep thrill of awe when the pale sapphire cloaks of sky were flung aside and dark raging heavens roared and plunged and cast fire and water and ice upon the earth. Something landed on Callery's shoulder and nuzzled against her neck. Hello, Skrill, Dara called. She reached for the young forest squirrel, plucked it from its roost and nestled it in her arms, where the fluffy creature settled and began to clean itself. Dara made a little tent over it with her long brown hair. I hope you've learned some manners, she said. If you poop on my frock again, I'm going to shave your tail. Aidan grinned. He had found the little animal, weak and abandoned, after a violent storm. Since he was already looking after a fledgling woodpecker at the time, Calry had kept the squirrel. The fire was the only light in the room and it threw out a dancing radiance charged with the magic of stories, beautiful and terrifying. Appropriately, Thomas had found Callery's book of original stories on the rug, and was struggling his way through the letters now. Is that a new story? Dara asked him. Yes, I think you'll like this one. Oh, please read it aloud. Thomas handed it to Callery. If he were to read... It would be one laborious word at a time. Aidan had half wanted to air his concerns again. At least they would make for an exciting discussion. But he wasn't so sure about them now, and William's warnings were never given idly. What finally made him drop the idea was his co-author's pride when his eyes fell on the book. Dara shifted a little closer to the fire as Callery placed the book in the warm light. It's just the first bit, Callery said. We decided to turn our old quest for the Silver Dwarf's hideouts into a proper story, so we made a start on it yesterday. This is how it begins. In the most secretish and magical places, the Silver Dwarf makes his home. 
but he never stays there for long, and that's because he's always looking for the one he lost long, long years ago. It all began many hundreds of years before. He was only a little dwarf boy when he accidentally cornered a young moon-scaled river maiden. She was terrified that he would drive her to the shore and knock out her teeth, because everybody knows that the teeth of these river maidens are the most perfect pearls. But the dwarf stepped aside instead. She was so surprised at his kindness that she stayed and talked with him. They soon became very good friends and met whenever pure starlight fell on the shivering crystal waters of the brockle. But one day, a violent, ugly serpent slid through the river behind her while they talked. The dwarf saw it, but he didn't have time to warn her, so he leapt towards her with his knife raised so he could strike the serpent. But she never saw the serpent, and both of them, the river maiden and the serpent, dived away and vanished into the darkness of the water, never to be seen again. From then and forever onwards, he spent his days searching for her, so he could explain what really happened, and also to avenge himself on the serpent by challenging him to mortal combat and hacking him into tiny little bits and feeding them to the crows. Aidan glowed with pleasure at his relatively obvious contribution. Still, he thought there wasn't nearly enough blood and glory there. He would have put in a lot more monsters and battles as they continued with the tale. That was what any decent story needed. Where is the silver dwarf now? Dara asked. The last signs we found, said Callery, were on the west bank of the brockle, under a hidden patch of shady ferns, where the light is dim and mystical. Dara's eyes grew large. Will you take me there tomorrow? Of course. It's going to be so much fun. I can hardly... Oh, Skrill, not again. Yuck! Here, Calry, you take him. When the little crisis was over, the girls continued discussing plans for the expedition and the pursuit of the little magical being. Aidan and Calry had invented the legend of the Silver Dwarf when they were five and six. Over the years, they had explored every corner of badger fields and all the shadowy valleys, wind-buffeted hills, dreamy woodlands, and secret forests they could reach, hunting for enchanted places marked with tiny boot prints and dwarf-sized shelters. Aidan had never felt embarrassed about his imagination. Without it, there was no magic. Whether or not they actually found the silver dwarf wasn't important. The magic was in searching their whole world, lost in the wonder of it all. Without imagination, things were only as they appeared. And that was blindness. Things were more than they appeared, so much more. When he considered an oak tree, it was not just a tree. To someone small, like an ant, it was a whole landscape of rugged, barky cliffs and big green-leaf plains that quaked when the sky was restless a place of many strange creatures where fearsome winged beasts could pluck and devour someone in a blink. And it wasn't just about magic. Without imagination, one could not think very far into things, like that lieutenant. Without imagination, he was no more than he said he was. 
But there was more to him. It brought Aiden back, and he decided, warning or not, he was going to pour out his doubts. Before he could begin, though, Thomas asked if they had played their Origins game. We did, said Callery. And? He says he's from Rinwald. So who won? She did, said Aiden. Again. Callery frowned. I'm not convinced I did. Aiden said some things about him that kept me thinking all day. Thomas, have you noticed anything odd about him? He's very impressive, almost frightening, but he's a strange kind of man, that's for sure. Not one with a lot of sense, neither. I saw him take his coat off as soon as he was done with talking, even though the wind blew winter back for the day. Said he didn't feel the cold, but there was goose flesh running all over his neck and arms. The silence lasted only a few heartbeats before Aidan gasped and leapt to his feet. Calorie! Calorie, we need to speak to your father. Now! Chapter 4 The chill wind that had been rising through the early evening had brought a thick, soupy mist. Aidan slipped back past the lone sentry into the house, teeth chattering. He's not in the courtyard. Could he be in his study? If he is, it would definitely be a bad idea to go looking for him, said Callery. He doesn't like to be disturbed when he's there. Can we afford to wait? Callery bit a fingernail. Aidan had told her, in a torrent of thoughts, what he feared, and the dread was clearly growing in her mind. No, she said. I don't think we should. But this might not go well. They had to step carefully now, as they passed back through the hall, over and around makeshift beds on which some of the children had already fallen asleep. The passage leading to the study was dark, but they felt their way easily enough, with a hand brushing each wall, though Aidan could not quite reach both at the same time. There was a section of the passage where the floorboards were loose. They clattered like falling tiles under even the stealthiest tread. Light poured out from beneath the closed door at the far end of the passage. Dresborn would be within. Aidan felt his stomach shrink and the blood begin to rush in his ears. He hated these meetings. Calvi knocked. Who is it? The voice was terse. It's me, father, Calvi replied. Come in. She opened the door into a large room richly carpeted and lit with several lamps. The walls were lined with shelves that held more bronze and silver bookends than books. As in the hall, expensive paintings and large sculptures stood proudly, displaying their owners' financial success and social status. There was a large teak desk on the far side of the room, where Dresborn, swollen even larger than normal in a rich fur coat, sat opposite Lieutenant Quinn. Not for the first time, Aidan wondered how such a man with his puffy cheeks flanking a self-important little chin, haughty brow, and turned-back arrogant nose could be Calry's father. Her mother must have been a princess. Not wanting to stare, lest his thoughts be revealed, he dropped his eyes and noticed a long scroll that lay unrolled between the two men.
he had a feeling he was trespassing there, and he looked up again, uncertain, from Dresborn to Quinn. There was no welcome in either face. Dresborn's raised eyebrows had grown distinctly colder on noticing Aidan. This is the same boy I saw with your daughter earlier, said Quinn. Is he noble, too? Aidan, Dresborn said, with a short, humorless laugh. He regarded the scruffy boy as he would a porker on display at the farmer's market. Not as we understand it. He's a notch above the local commoners thanks to his mother's line and the education she's given him, but his father more or less nullifies that. Aidan stood silent, too intimidated to be offended. Well, Calry, her father continued, what do you want? She cleared her voice and tried to clear the look of distress from her face as she pulled her eyes away from Aidan. We wondered if we could speak to you, she said. It's really important. Make it quick. Calry looked at the lieutenant and then at Aidan, unsure. Actually, stammered Aidan, we need to talk to you alone. Children, said Dresborn, standing so suddenly that the desk lurched and a quill toppled from the ink jar. I do not have time for your games now, and I am embarrassed that you would insult a guest, a man of rank and breeding. Calry, I have raised you better than this. It's perfectly all right the lieutenant interjected. We can resume the discussion later. It so happens that this would be a good time to check on a few things. He left, closing the door behind him. Dresborn did not sit immediately. When he did, he leaned back in his chair and leveled his gaze at Aidan. It was that heavy, withering look that demanded an explanation while making it clear that anything said would be considered an impertinence. It was a look that, if cast about the farm, would cause young shoots to turn around and dive back into the earth. Whenever Aidan explained his thoughts to Callery, her unfeigned enthusiasm was like summer's rain and shine. His ideas burst into life, growing surer with the telling but her father's wintry intolerance never failed to shrivel the words on Aidan's tongue. Dresborn's look did more than expect disappointment. It demanded disappointment, and reaped it every time. Aidan tried to swallow, but his mouth was too dry. Eventually, he found his voice hiding somewhere back in his throat, and hoped, as a hundred times before, that he might sound convincing. We think he's lying, he said. It came out like an apology. He saw Dresborn's jaw clench, but decided to press ahead while he still could. His jacket doesn't fit him. That's what gave him away. That's why he didn't wear it even though it was cold. Probably pinches under his arms. It's not his jacket. I think he stole it from the real Lieutenant Quinn on the way here. If what he says is true about slavers being in the area, then I'd think he's one of them. The room fell silent. The awful words hung in the air. Dresborn tilted his head back and released a tired breath, disinterested eyes looking down at Aidan. He said nothing. Aidan knew that tilt all too well. It had always made him feel like a liar, even when he was telling the truth.
he would not be endured much longer. He tried again, his voice sounding thinner. The lieutenant's plan doesn't make sense. He's only one man. It took him almost the whole day to prepare us, but there are forty farmsteads that he has to get to, so it would take him a month to reach everyone. I think he has abandoned the forest. It's really easy to hide lots of people in there. I think he's leading them from one farm to the next, gathering us like chickens. I'll bet he's planning to take sentry duty at midnight and open the door wide. Is that it? Dresbon said, shaking his head with exaggerated slowness. Because his jacket doesn't fit, you think he's a spy? He came to this farm first because he deemed it to be the first at risk. He will coordinate matters from the village tomorrow. We have just been discussing it. Do you honestly think I would not have discovered by now if he were false? There's more than the jacket, Aiden said, snatching the chance to get in a few more words. There were things in his story that didn't make sense. He said that the slavers were well armed, but he also said that nobody saw them except at a distance, even when they raided the previous village. So how does he know that they are well armed? He said they only attacked people who got isolated, but when Thomas's father suggested moving as a big group, he said they would attack us. Then, earlier this evening, he said that they would not attack us in the house and stopped us putting lots of sentries on duty. I think he's just making things up so we'll do what he wants and we'll be easy for slavers to catch. Dresbon's eyes were hard. Calry, are you part of this nonsense? We aren't looking for trouble, father. It started when we tried to guess his origin, but there was so much that didn't make sense. He said he's from Rinwald, but lots of his words sounded like a sailor's talk. I think Quinn has been acting since he galloped in. Apart from his coat and that letter that could both have been stolen, how do we know he is who he says? Aidan and I think he's a lecron who has prepared himself for this act. Aidan had been thinking. Something bothered him, and suddenly he realized what it was. He had not heard the floorboards. The lieutenant, or whatever he was, had not left. I can prove it, he said, and ran to the door, yanking it open. The light of the lamps fell on the man's surprised face. See, he's been listening the whole time. Not at all, my young friend, said the tall man, stepping inside and putting his hand on Aidan's shoulder. The grip tightened like a horse's bite, but nothing was betrayed in the man's face or the smooth voice in which he continued. I returned from my rounds and decided to wait until you were done talking. I simply wanted to avoid interrupting. But the floorboards, Aidan began. Aidan, that is enough. Dresborn's voice struck like a bullwhip. You have insulted my guest along with my judgment. I forbid you to spread these disrespectful ideas any further. Due to the present crisis, I will tolerate you here tonight, but at first light I want you out of my house. Now leave! After beating a miserable retreat through the hall and back to the upstairs room, Aidan closed the door behind him and dropped onto the floor. 
He nursed the shoulder Quinn had gripped, while Calry recounted the ordeal to the others. Maybe he's right, said Thomas, after they had sat in silence a while. How could children have spotted what everyone else couldn't? Because we haven't killed off our imaginations, Aidan mumbled behind a wrapping of arms and knees. I don't think you are wrong just because you are young, said Dara. Anyway, Dorothy always says you and Calorie are too clever by half. What's the word she always uses? Prodigies, Calorie mumbled. But I'm sure it's more Aiden she means. Maybe your dad just got embarrassed because you two thought out something he didn't. Aiden finished off for her, and I made him hate me forever. Not if we are right about this, said Calorie. If we are right, Aiden retorted, then we will be marching in a line with ropes around our necks by morning. How is that better? Isn't there something we can do? asked Dara. Her voice was small. Don't be frightened. Calorie put an arm around her. Maybe we are wrong. I don't like him, the little girl said with characteristic fire. I saw him looking at Julia like he wanted to eat her. Julia had her back to him, and when he saw me walk into the kitchen, he smiled in a way that made me want to run. I don't think he's a good person at all. Everyone was quiet. They'd all climbed onto Aidan's roof now. His vantage on the situation and what they saw terrified them. Calorie, Aidan finally said. Do you still have that rope? She pulled it out from under the bed and tossed it to him. What's your planning? Something that will either save everyone or put us in enough trouble to last a year. You don't have to join me if you don't want. I'm going to the town for help. He stood up. But it's too far, said Thomas. In this mist it would take all night. By the time you get back with help, that's if anyone believes you enough to come out, it'll be morning. If there really are slavers around, that might be too late. Aidan sat down again with a dejected thud. He plucked at the coarse fibres and the coils of rope and let his eyes drift upward and across the thatch for a while. We're going to have to split up, he said. Two will need to stay here and watch, but without being seen, and two will need to go for help. The two who stay will need to count how many slavers and say which way they went, because rain might spoil the tracks. The ones who go will need to take horses, so I think that means Calorie and me. Everyone nodded. But how will we watch without being seen? Thomas asked. At the front there is the timber shed roof. It's flat, and one of you could lie there and not get spotted. At the back there's the treehouse. Just remember to pull up the rope ladder. We don't know which way they'll come, so you should split up. Aidan looked at Dara. Her chin was trembling. This was asking a lot of anyone, but for a nine-year-old girl, waiting alone in the dark for a band of thugs to abduct everyone she cared about, was too much. He realized this could not work. Calorie had seen it too. Shouldn't we at least try to tell some of the adults? At least warn them, she asked. Even after we were told not to? Aidan put his ear to the door. 
Your father is down there now. He'll be watching, and he'll put a stop to anything we start. Anyway, I don't think a single adult will believe us. Then who do you think will believe us in the town? Nulty. Calry nodded. Yes, I suppose he would. But can he help? I don't know, but it's the best I can think of. Aidan, she said, looking at the little girl beside her. We can't ask Dara to wait alone outside. She'll be terrified. I know. I was thinking that maybe you should stay with her, and I'll go alone. I'm the better rider, she replied, and I know the horse trails better. If one of us goes, it should be me. You can't go alone. You hardly know Nulty. If I let you go and your father finds out, he'll hang me. Wait, said Dara. I'll do it. I'm scared, but I'll be brave for my mum and dad. They all looked at her with proud eyes. You are brave, said Calry, hugging her tight. The little girl leaned in, trying to control her shivers. We need to pretend to be asleep, said Aidan, so we'd better put cushions under our blankets in case anyone peeks inside. Once they'd set the room up, he pushed the shutters open, tied the rope to the central beam of the window, and turned back to give some final advice. Dress warmly, and paint your faces with soot. Don't come down from your hideouts until we get back, and whatever you do, don't shout out, or they will find you and take you too. Thomas and Dara both nodded, though she was shaking visibly. Then Aidan and Callery climbed down the rope and stole away through the darkness. A half-moon was drifting somewhere up in the heavens, but the mist was thick enough to engulf almost all the light. They felt their way along the stone walls to the corner, then followed the next wall until the courtyard was before them. They crossed this swiftly and headed in the direction of the tack room, feeling their way along the wall again until stone gave way to the familiar touch of wooden panels. Hinges screeched at them as they edged the door open. They waited. Nobody raised the alarm. Inside the dank little room, the smells of waxed leather and saddle soap were almost strong enough to see by. But Aidan was no mole, and he groped through the utter blackness of the room, bumbling this way and that until something poked him in the eye. Fortunately, Callery knew the room well enough to locate what she needed by feel, and soon she dumped a saddle and bridle in Aidan's arms. Saddling the ponies proved to be more complicated. Aidan had to quietly upend a water pail to make up the height he lacked. He hoped Callery wouldn't see from the adjacent stall. Bluster, his pony, was quick to mimic the nervous manner. Aidan had to dodge stamping hooves, while feeling about in the darkness for the girth strap. Finally, the saddle was on, at least it felt like it was, and it looked to be facing the right way, too. The bridle presented a new problem. Bluster was swinging his head and shaking his mane with obvious anticipation. Aidan had no idea how to bridle something that was whipping through the air like a storm-tossed branch. Suddenly, Bluster pricked his ears at a scuttling noise outside. 
Aiden recognized his chance. He slipped the bridle on and over the focused ears, securing the buckle while his pony stared out into the darkness. Are you ready? he whispered to the adjacent stall, feeling a good measure of pride at having tacked up first. Almost, Callery replied. Just setting the stirrup length. Aidan cringed. He had forgotten about that. Saying nothing, he pulled the stirrups down from the saddle and estimated that his feet would swing freely above them with a few inches to spare. He tore at the leather buckle, yanking in a good foot of the strap and securing it again at the highest possible notch. I'm ready, she said. Aidan darted recklessly under the pony's belly and repeated the procedure, wishing the leather would not creak so. Aidan? Yes, he replied, leaping against the saddle and scrambling up until his foot could reach the stirrup that was now some height above the ground. I'm ready. He looked at the dark shape of the stable door, blocking his exit, muttered something, and slid down again, the saddle pulling his shirt up and grazing his belly. He eased the door open. Calorie was already on her way out. He repeated the scrambling mounting operation, but this time Bluster had no reason to stay put and walked out of the stable with Aidan still clawing his way up. When he finally seated himself, he couldn't reach the reins. They had slid down the pony's lowered neck. Fortunately, Calorie's pony stepped in front, causing Bluster to raise his head just enough for Aidan to strain forward until his joints were popping gripped the leather with the tips of his fingers, and draw it back with a gasp. He tried to stifle his ragged breathing. Now we reach the difficult part, Calorie whispered. Aidan said nothing, mostly because he didn't want to betray his exhaustion. It will be best if I lead. Stay close so we don't get separated in the mist. Are you all right? You seem quiet. I'm trying to listen. It was sort of true. They walked the ponies with as much stealth as the clip-clop of hoof on stone would allow. Soon they left the paved farmyard, and the horse's tread dropped to near silence on the damp earth. It was an eerie sensation, floating through the mist with the ground barely visible, the only sign of movement the drift of pale eddies. Any sounds that reached them were wrapped in a thick, dreamy blanket. I think we are getting to the gate, Calorie whispered. I don't want to dismount here, so I'll try to open it from above. They drew to a stop. After a few clinks of the chain and a metallic groan, the heavy wooden beams of the gate loomed out of the fog and swung past. Aidan hoped she wouldn't ask him to close it. Perched up in the air as he was, his short arms would never reach the top beam. He dug his heels into the pony's side, and Bluster surged past. Let's take the juniper track, Calorie said, ignoring the gate. It's slower than the road, but less than half the distance, and we can't do any more than walk in this mist anyway. The track lets us drop more quickly, and the mist might clear up as we get lower. Aidan grunted. He hated the track. When the horse aimed uphill, all was well. Holding on presented little difficulty. When the horse aimed downhill, 
It was like sitting on the side of a perilously steep roof, always at that desperate point of sliding off, and this was a roof that bounced and lurched and made unexpected grabs at succulent shoots of grass and reeds. Once, not too long ago, he had lost his grip and gradually advanced down the horse's neck in a smooth, buttery slide until he ran out of horse and dropped off the end. He would make sure that did not happen again. He saw Callery swaying easily with the pony's motion as they walked away down the path. He braced himself, gripping the pommel of the saddle with both hands, and let the reins hang slack. This pony would have to steer itself. As Bluster's hooves reached the drop, his withers sank, and Aidan felt himself slipping down the lurching slope. He made a quick grab at the cantle behind him and clung on, rigid with desperation that seemed to be making up for the deficiency of leg length and technique. How are you managing back there? Her voice was annoyingly calm. Fine, he said through gritted teeth. He was wearing his warm deerskin jacket, but now little waterfalls of sweat were running off his nose and eyebrows as they fought the pony's every movement. They walked in silence for what felt like hours, descending rapidly. As Callery had hoped, the mist was a low cloud that thinned with their descent, revealing a long, grassy slope, leveling out ahead, and, beyond that, the dim outlines of a sleeping village. The whole central valley began to open up around them. It was curiously bigger in the dark. Though the basin was only a few miles across, the wooded slopes on the far side, now murky and black, looked to be a half-day's journey away. We can make up some time here. Are you able to trot? Of course, Aidan said, already wincing and hating the fickle mist for abandoning him to such a fate. What followed was every bit as unpleasant as he had feared. Whenever he was about to settle into the rhythm of the stride, he got bounced a little too high, and dropped on a saddle rushing up to meet him, a collision that loosened every tooth. Eventually, after he'd been hammered to a tender perfection, the ground leveled out and Callery broke into a canter. At last, he sighed, grasping the pommel and sinking into the saddle. The village wall was a ten-foot-high ring of stakes and planks, it was a relatively flimsy construction by war standards, but it would be more than enough to keep them out if they could not rouse the sentry and persuade him to open the gate. Aidan had to hammer at the planks for some time before there was a response. The sentry's curses were vigorous, and they arrived at the peephole before he did, so that he was more than a little embarrassed when he recognized Callery, daughter of the most important landowner in the Misty Vales. Begging your pardon, miss, he stammered as he applied himself to sliding the bolts. I was thinking only that you would be, um, that is, somebody of the other, uh, other sort, and not a lady, if you take my meaning. No offence, I hope. Don't worry yourself, Begging, she said with a smile as she rode through. I'm not going to tell, and I don't think I understood half of it anyway. Thank you, miss, he said, the relief obvious in his voice. 
You always been treating us rough folks good. Beggin, obviously flustered by the trouble his ill manners might cause him, had completely neglected to ask the reason for their peculiar arrival, an omission that could have landed him in even more trouble. Aidan had never seen the village at night. The houses with their domed thatch roofs resembled lines of squat ogres with round haircuts. But then his angle changed, and a few chimneys and a wind vane pushed the strange likeness from his mind. The road led past the town hall with its high bell tower that rose over the surrounding roofs, silhouetted against the shrouded moon. A cat's hiss interrupted the dull tread of hooves, but nothing else stirred. It was now late, and all would be asleep. He took the next turn to the right, passed three silent houses, and stopped outside a large building. Here they dismounted and tied the ponies to a rail. Aidan's legs were trembling. With every step they threatened to collapse and pitch him forward onto the ground. He willed his way to the door and knocked softly. Then, after several attempts, he knocked loudly. Finally, he slipped a small knife from his belt and set to work at the gaping edge of the door and, bit by bit, slid the bolt free. We're not going to be thrown in prison, are we? Calvary whispered. Of course not. I think. Chapter 5 Aidan stalked into the darkness of the room. He placed his foot on something that rolled, throwing his balance off to the side. It caused him to stumble and stamp on the edge of an object that flipped over with an almost musical clang. What are you doing? Calory hissed, stepping into the room and promptly falling. She landed with a thump and a dull crunch of something that didn't sound like it would be repairable. You have to watch your footing in here, Aidan said, completely unnecessarily, as he stooped to help her up. It's very cluttered. Why don't we light a lamp? It would take us hours to find one, even during daylight. I'm just going to nip over to wake him. He'll know where his lamps are. Can you wait for a moment? Happily, she said, nursing her shin. Aidan slipped away. Not only did he slip, he tottered, fell, stumbled, sprawled, and collided into all manner of interesting-sounding things. A gang armed with clubs would have been hard-pressed to make more noise. He had covered about half the distance when a door opened at the top of the stairway ahead of him, and light streamed into the large space, revealing, in silhouette, a jungle of items covering every possible description and size. Aidan looked back to see Calory gaping at the strange clutter that filled the aisles between overflowing shelves. At least she would now understand what he had just endured. Her father had never brought her here. Such a place was beneath his more refined tastes. On the shelves beside Aidan were urns, branding irons, chipped flower pots, a millstone, rolls of dressmaker's linen, and a weird green suit of armor underneath a stack of frayed parchments and a rat trap. Then, over most items, was a soft sheet of dust, as though the shelves had been tucked away to rest for several years. Who is the foul wretch? I'll have your skin and I'll have it slowly. 
The voice was chilling, thin, and menacing. It's me, Aiden. Don't be angry. We need your help. Aiden? Oh, hmm. Yes, it is you. The voice had changed completely, and now gave the distinct impression of dreamy afternoons and the lazy humming of beetles. I thought I should try to be a touch sinister, considering that you sounded like a burglar. Perfectly useless one, I might add. Nulty, we need to speak to you. It's urgent. This is Callery. The light and its bearer advanced from the doorway onto a wooden platform that overlooked the maze of shelves and aisles. He was a portly little man, wearing an oversized nightgown, one woolen slipper and one sock. He had small, bright eyes and a round face with side whiskers, which made it even rounder. Ah, young Miss Calry of Badger's Hall. What an unexpected honour. Are you also a burglar? He smiled and chuckled and turned red at his little joke. No, no, of course you're not. Well, come along the both of you. I'll get some tea brewing and you can start talking. Actually, we are in a terrible rush. Yes, yes, it's what they all say, but my ears work just as well whether the kettle is over the fire or not. The parlour is this way. Hurry along before I take the light. Nulty was balanced on the edge of a threadbare couch, absorbing the last details as the kettle began to purr. Yes, I think you two are quite right. Yes, I most certainly do. Odd that all the adults missed it and only children saw it. But maybe it's not that odd. We adults are often blind to what children see. And then you two possess the sharpest young minds in the Midlands. His gaze was distant, and he drummed his fingers together. What are we going to do? Callery asked him. Hmm? Ah, yes. What to do? Hmm. You and Aidan are going to put some hot tea, fresh bread and honey into your bellies. I am going to assemble a little army. By the time you are full, I shall be back. With that, he marched out of the building. Aidan lost no time carving two colossal hunks of bread and lathering them with deep coats of honey while Callery poured the tea. Outside they could hear the growing sounds of shouting and banging on doors. Despite the tightness in his stomach, Aidan finished his tea and bread, in far less time than was entirely healthy, then fell into an exhausted reverie. He lost all sense of where he was, and he looked up with a start as Callery called his name slightly louder than was necessary. Yes, he said. Why didn't you answer me the first time? Oh, sorry, didn't hear you. Something's worrying you, isn't it? She said. You had such a horrible look on your face. I realised something. What if Quinn notices that we are missing? He knows we suspect him. He's bound to check on us, and he's not someone who's going to be fooled by lumps of clothes and pillows under the blankets. I've been a fool. How are you the fool? You saw what nobody else did. I only made one plan. Remember the stories we read about the border wars and the young General Osric who became so famous? Callery nodded. Well, what made him so difficult to beat was that he always had a heap of plans which he could choose from, 
like different tools. The plan I made won't work if Quinn finds out that we left. He could change his strategy. I'm sure he won't. He wouldn't be able to convince everyone to stay in the house for another night. This is his chance. Anyway, there's nothing we can do about it now. We just need to hope. Don't be upset with yourself, Aidan. You're doing better than any of us. Aidan ruffled his hair with honey-coated fingers, producing a startling imitation of an upended tree, and walked to the large rack of shelves where hundreds of little copper vials were arranged, all neatly labelled. He began to run his fingers along them, searching. So, he's an apothecary too. What are you looking for? Calorie asked. Found it, he said, snatching one, checking the label and dropping it in his pocket. Hadn't you better ask first? I'll ask, just not first. Well, what is it? Something I might need for another plan if Quinn is still here by breakfast time. Better that you don't know. Don't want you to have to lie to your father if he gets suspicious. Calorie looked upset. I'm going to wait outside, seeing as you obviously don't need me here. She lit a second lamp and took herself, with her barely nibbled bread, back through the maze and out onto the porch. Aidan drifted down between the aisles. A cacophony of banging and clattering suggested that he was searching for something. He emerged into the open a little later, with a small crossbow and a quiver of short bolts draped over his shoulder. His little frame made them look like a giant's weapons. They swung awkwardly as he walked, bouncing off his thighs and jabbing him in the neck. Callery was not in sight. Aidan felt a rush of fear and darted around the corner into a narrow alley. There, crouched in the shadows, she sat beside the young village beggar boy who was wolfing down the last of her bread with sticky gulps. The thought jumped into Aidan's mind that the boy had stolen her meal, but then he saw the soft look on her face. It wasn't the first time he'd seen her do this. He had once argued with her and justified eating his whole sandwich while she had called him a greedy pig and shared hers with the beggar woman's son. Aidan's sandwich hadn't tasted as good as he'd expected. Nothing ever did under those circumstances. The growing sound of hooves roused them, and they walked back to the road where dozens of hastily armed men were gathering. Some wore uniforms. Among these was the local sheriff, Lanner, who was clearly taking charge. The group swelled as more riders cantered up from the dark streets. Naughty returned and called to Aidan. Listen, my boy, there's something that I want to be clear about. You happen to mention an odd detail. That Dresborn was showing Quinn his ancestral scroll when you walked into his office. Are you sure about that? I think so. I've seen it once before when Callery showed me. Listen to me, Nulty said, leaning forward. If what you suspect and what I suspect line up... The little man gripped his whiskers, and his face turned bright red. Try not to leave her alone, Aidan. Make sure she stays safe. Who? Calry? Yes, of course, Calry. Who else? But no time now. Just stay with her, Aidan. 
With that, he dashed into his store and, after a tremendous commotion, re-emerged, armed with a representative of almost every conceivable weapon strapped somewhere to his rotund form. He clinked with chainmail, blades, clubs, a bow, and even a great oval shield that hung on his back, making him look like a large, tottering tortoise. He had managed to find a pair of boots, but still wore his nightgown under the many belts and straps. There were one or two smiles as he approached, jingling with every step, and heaved himself onto his horse. It took some of the attention off Aiden, who had been hovering, waiting for a moment when he could scramble onto his pony's back unobserved. He saw his chance, leapt at the saddle, and clawed his way up. Sheriff Lanner began to speak. He was a hard-looking man with a loud voice that commanded instant silence. Thank you all for joining us. There is little more to be said than what you have already been told. The slaver threat appears to be real this time, and the ploy is a devilishly cunning one. If we are not quick, Butterfields may be empty by the time we arrive, every single person there bound for Lecran slave ports. Keep your weapons at the ready. These are not principled men. If you intend to show mercy, stay at home. He rose in his stirrups and cast a fierce gaze over the gathered men. He meant what he said. Only Calry looked away. Lanner finished his inspection, satisfied. If anyone lacks a weapon, he concluded, speak to Nolte. Most of the men laughed as they moved off. The party, now numbering about fifty, thundered through the gates that Began swung open while staring with wide eyes. They left the town and began devouring the miles to Badgerfields. The mist had risen slightly, so Lanner chose to keep to the main road, where he could set a bold pace. Aidan rode at the back with Calory and Nulty. In spite of the painful thumping of the crossbow, his thoughts were elsewhere, turning on possibilities as he tried to imagine various situations. The hasty meal had done him much good, and he felt stronger, yet there was an uncomfortable nagging at the back of his thoughts. What if he was wrong? Could he be wrong? Nulty had obviously repeated the tale to the sheriff with a lot more certainty than was due mere suspicions. The little man had taken a big risk trusting Aidan's conclusion. So had Calorie. Even Thomas and Dara would be headed for trouble if it all turned out to be empty imaginings. Was he too young to interfere with such matters? Should he rather have just silenced his disrespectful thoughts? Looking at the large party of men roused from their homes, galloping towards Badgerfields all because of his suspicion, made him realize just how far he had taken his ideas this time, how high up onto his roof he had climbed and how long the fall. Gradually, one or two of the horses less accustomed to such sustained exertion dropped behind. Only a few miles remained. Night began to fade, and a dull grey morning drifted in on a brisk wind. They rounded the last bend. Badgerfields came into view. Aidan tried to control his runaway breathing and gripped the pommel to stop his hands shaking. The sheriff motioned for silence. They approached the farmyard through the gate which had not been shut. Nothing stirred.
By this time, there would usually have been much activity. First light was more than light enough for farm work, but now everything was silent. The farmyard was completely deserted. With Lanner taking the lead, the group walked their horses towards the main house. Some of the men loosened their weapons, a few held spears at the ready. They had advanced only a little way when they saw movement at the manor house and everyone drew to a halt. Dresborn and Lieutenant Quinn stepped out into the courtyard and approached. Aidan felt his heart slip into his shoes. Dresborn, said the sheriff, we expected to find you in a more desperate plight. I have no immediate complaints besides the threat of slavers, but we were amply warned and have taken due precaution, as you can see. He motioned to the house from which people began to emerge. Though the sight should have relieved him, all that Aidan could feel now was an empty humiliation and a surge of dread. He knew what was coming. We were certain that you had been betrayed by your messenger, and that last night you would all have been rounded up. But it appears we were wrong. Dresborn's eyes narrowed. How, pray, did you come to such a conclusion? Why, young Aidan, Clawman's son, and your daughter arrived in town a little after midnight. We assumed you had sent them. Dresborn's face changed colour, and when he next spoke his voice was edged with steel. Are they among you now? The two children were ushered to the front where they dismounted. Calvary, Dresborn said, his voice shaking with anger. Stable your pony and get into the house. I'll deal with you later. As she moved away, he turned to Aidan and lifted his voice so that it carried well beyond the two of them. Was disgracing me and insulting my guest last night insufficient amusement for you? His voice rose. Did you need to bring the whole town to my doorstep to embarrass us further? Where is your imagined treachery, Aidan? he roared. Answer me! Aidan tried to speak, but no sound escaped his throat. Is anyone else involved in this? A noise drew their attention from the timber shed roof, where a sooty-faced Thomas stood and clambered to the ground. He approached with his eyes fixed on his shoes, dragging a blanket. Who else? D- Dara is in the treehouse, Aidan stammered. What? You put a nine-year-old girl out in a treehouse during a slaver threat? Dresborn was shouting for the entire farmyard to hear. I didn't really send her. She... Silence! You have done more than enough talking. He turned to the swelling crowd. Someone go and find her. When he turned back to Aidan, whatever restraint he had been exercising broke. You! Insolent cur! he shouted, mouth twisted with rage as he raised his hand and strode forward. But something had changed in Aidan's face. There was a flash of recognition, and then his features went slack with vacant terror. He uttered an almost animal moan and sank to the ground, cringing, arms clutched over his head, body shaking, 
as a dark stain spread through his trousers. What is this? A coward? There's enough talk of your hair-brained adventures, but you can't even stand up and take a beating, you little fraud. Revealed at last for all to see. The crowd began to murmur. It was an unexpected sight. A boy widely known for his pluck, now cowering and whimpering in his own mess, like a beaten dog. This was not the way for a boy of the Misty Vales to behave when disciplined. Men frowned, women talked, Emroy smiled. The one person at the farm who would have understood what was really happening in Aidan's traumatized thoughts was in the stable, out of sight. Only Callery had glimpsed the damage and decay taking place under the tough layer of bark. Only she would have known that this was not fear of her father, and it was certainly not cowardice, but a brokenness that ran far deeper. She and Aidan had once seen Dougal, a brave man and a veteran of many wars, freeze at an unexpected clash of steel. He had shrunk against the wall, slack-jawed and trembling, unable to take command of himself. Aidan had been in no war, but he had known what no child should know, and the damage was much the same. That's enough, Dresborn. Nulty had managed to work his way through the riders and stepped in front of the incensed nobleman. If there is fault here, then I am as much to blame. What he did, he did in good conscience to aid you, not to harm you. Surely you can see that. Dresborn ignored him, as if he weren't there. Sheriff Lanner, I do apologize, and I assure you that this delinquent will be punished most severely. His reins have clearly been too loose. His behavior has put our whole town at risk. I can see it was no fault of yours, the sheriff replied. But what of this threat? I have never known you to house the entire labor force in your house after similar warnings. That was at my bidding, the lieutenant said, stepping forward. I am Lieutenant Quinn from the Midland Council of Guards. I had it on very good authority that this farmstead was under direct and immediate risk. It was my first priority to secure the farm and arrange defenses. I had planned to be in the village today, when I will gladly discuss the matter further with you. I look forward to it, said Lanner. Dressborn, I apologize for the intrusion. With that he gave the signal. The group of riders wheeled and left the farmyard. Dresborn lowered his gaze to where Aidan crouched in the mud. Get my horse into its stable, he said, hovering over each word. And remove yourself from my land. You will not speak to my daughter again. If I ever find you back here, you will regret it for the rest of your life. Dresborn, Nolte said, can I just mention that... Dresborn turned his back on them and walked away. See that this ridiculous man leaves before he injures someone, he said, as he passed William. Aidan's hands were shaking so much he couldn't undo the straps. He fetched the bucket to give himself more height, not caring any more who saw. Still, he yanked and twisted, to no effect, and finally gave up. 
putting his head against the pony's flank. He let the sobs take him. What did it matter who saw? He flinched as he felt a hand on his shoulder, but it was gentle, and he turned to see Calry's tear-lined face. Let me help you, she said. She unclipped the straps and soon had the tack neatly stored. Aidan choked back his misery and stood in silence. I'm sorry, Aidan, she said. It's not fair. You were trying to save everyone, and you get this. Aidan couldn't speak. He dropped his eyes, unable to look at her. We'll find a way to fix it, she said. I'll talk to my father when he is in a better mood. But Aidan knew there was no fixing what had been done to him this morning. He had kept the nightmare locked away, and at Badgerfields he had been able to live free of its horror. But now it had found him. Now it would haunt him here, too, even if he were allowed back. And he would not be allowed back. Calray! Her father's summons boomed across the courtyard. She took Aidan's hand in both of her own. We'll fix it, she said again, and ran back to the house. Aidan stared through the doorway. The courtyard was clear. Everyone had returned to the house. Never had this place seemed so empty to him. He lived with his parents, but this was his home. Had been his home. The welcome was over. He trudged between the buildings with an ache that threatened to tear him asunder. It was like pushing his way through a dead dream. Numb. The walking took forever. The feelings of irrational nightmarish fear and shame drained away, leaving him empty, hollow, and tired. So tired. The scene played over and over, the words etching themselves into his memories. Coward. Fraud. He would never be rid of them. But what did it matter anymore? What did he care? There was no return from this. Finding a trough of water, he rinsed himself. It would go poorly if his father were to find out. But matters were not about to improve. As he rounded the last building, Emroy appeared from the other side, walking in the same direction, away from the manor house. What are you doing here? Aidan asked in a frail voice, tensing, trying to hide the catch in his throat. I live this way, remember? But everyone else is still inside. I have no interest in taking any more orders. It's well enough for you commoners to be bossed around, but I won't stand for that treatment any longer. He swung his cane at the long grass. The lieutenant said he wanted good visibility before anyone left. This is good enough for me. I told him so, and walked out. Say, that was quite a show you put on. Fancy raising a whole town to fight off non-existent bandits. Or did you tell them it was a dragon? Aidan put his head down and walked. Emroy's laugh oozed smugness. 
It was really interesting to see you crumple in the mud like that. You should have heard the people talking about it, especially how you wet yourself. We expected more. Well, they did. I always knew. Aidan had no fight in him. He kept silent. They had covered about half a mile when they heard the first screams. Chapter 6 Nolte hung back from the others. After being shoved and shooed from the farm, it was no surprise that he wanted to keep to himself. The road cut a gentle curve through the deep hillside grass. It was so quiet, so peaceful. But Nolte huffed and pulled his whiskers, and finally began to speak his thoughts to the dappled mare. There was more at work there than the fear of a beating pebble. Something is damaged in that boy, and something is unsettled in me. Am I embarrassed? No, that's not it. Perhaps angry with Dresborn? That's not it either. No, it was something else. It's something about the lieutenant. That look he gave Aidan at the end. It was such a strange look. What do you think, Pebble? Am I imagining monsters? He reached a bend in the road. Beyond this point, he would be unable to see the farm gate, which had already grown tiny with distance. He stopped, hesitated, and then appeared to make his mind up dismounting and settling down on a rock while Lanner and his men walked their tired horses round the bend and out of sight. The two boys spun around and stared at the manor house. The screams rose. Morning had not yet broken through, and the air was still hung with frail mist, so that only hints of movement could be seen. They ran back along the path until the shapes became clearer. There appeared to be far more people than they had left behind at the house, as if the townsmen had returned. But the people were not fighting a fire or securing animals. They looked as though they were struggling with each other, while a growing number fell to the ground. And suddenly Aidan realized what he was looking at. No, he whispered. Emroy let out a wordless whimper and dropped, trembling to the grass. Get down, Aidan. They'll see you and come after us, too. Aidan's thoughts were a jumbled confusion of fears and disbelief. It was actually happening. Earlier, when thinking about the possibility of slavers and what he could do about it, it had been easy to clear his head and arrange his thoughts. As he stared, he felt tricked by his senses. This was either not quite real, or... It was too real. Aidan, get down, you idiot! Emroy's voice was close and unmistakably real. Aidan's fuzzy thoughts, still sluggish from the earlier emotional battering, were beginning to clear. He dropped. The grass, thick and long, hid him completely. But he knew he had been too slow. A glance confirmed this. Someone was running towards them. There were hundreds of places to hide on the farm. Tall pastures, hidden gullies, tangles of bush, dense forest, interlinking barns and lofts. Aidan tried to think. 
If this had been one of the war games they had played so often, he would already have made half a dozen plans and selected the best. But here he crouched, shivering like a cornered rabbit. Then he remembered the man approaching them. The distance would be closing. He turned to look, and in doing so, jabbed his neck with the crossbow. The crossbow! He still had it. He tore it off his back, shoved his foot in the stirrup, and began to pull the string back to the catch. He felt as if his arms would be wrenched from their sockets, though he could only pull it halfway. He heard the sound of footfall. Time was up. He would have to bluff. Slipping a bolt into the groove, he stood and pointed the bow at the man. Only thirty feet separated them, but Aidan hoped the darkness of the morning would hide the fact that the bow was not bent. The man stopped and shouted in a language Aidan had never heard, then took a step forward. He was tall, rangy, and sunburned, and his features were exaggerated by a thick, oily beard plaited into something resembling black seaweed. His strong hands were not empty. One held loops of cord, and the other gripped a light club. None of Dresborn's haughty looks had ever made Aidan feel as he did under this man's glare. The lack of respect for the two boys' humanity was absolute, the capacity for cruelty limitless. Aidan shuddered. He almost dropped the crossbow and fled. But then he realized that his bluff was working. After a few more foreign words, the man turned and ran back to the manor house, shouting at the top of his voice. He'll be back, Emroy wailed. Aidan's mind was starting to orientate itself in this strange reality. He was beginning to feel the touch of details that so often formed the building blocks of his strategies. Position, enemy intention, misdirection, surprise, reinforcements. He had been taught such details and used them in threats that were imagined and games that were real. Could he not put together a plan for a real threat? With a shuddering effort, he hauled himself from the water of his internal floundering and stood. He looked at Emroy, quaking, whimpering. Instinct told him to abandon someone so clearly unfit for anything, but that was thinking like a rabbit again. With only one, there would be no chance of coordinating anything. Follow me, Aidan said. He slung the crossbow over his shoulder, turned off the path and pushed through the long grass. It was so heavy with dew that he was drenched after a few yards. He turned to check that Emroy was following. The older boy's face was slack with terror, but he was moving. They climbed a small ridge and skidded down the far side, directly above a cattle pen. Aidan looked back. The telltale path of disturbed dew was as obvious as a paved road. He remembered something he had once used in a war game played with Thomas and some of the other boys. Run to the back of the tool shed. Wait for me there. Aidan called, as he scrambled down the bank towards the pen. Where are you going? Emroy asked, clearly unwilling to be left alone. I need to set a false trail. Go! Emroy hurried away through the grass, leaving a clear trail behind him. Once Aidan had the gate open, one or two flicks of the whip sent the cows on their way and scattered them through the pasture. There were enough trails now to confuse anyone. Aidan sprinted after several of the cows that were heading towards Emroy. 
They took fright and sped from him at loping gallops, carving a spiderweb of dewy tracks in the grass. There would be no immediate suspicion cast on Emroy's trail now. Aiden could no longer see over the ridge, but he was sure the slavers would be approaching it at speed. He ran as fast as the heavy waist-high grass and waterlogged trousers would allow. When he reached the buildings, he spotted Emroy crouching against a woodpile between two logs, each with a long axe buried in it, chips of wood scattered around. It didn't take much imagination to see the axes put to another purpose. They will search here, Aidan said, gasping for breath. We need to circle round to the forest on the other side of the manor house. Emroy remained where he was. Aidan knew that waiting here would destroy any chance of sending for help. There was no time for argument. Stay if you want, he said, but I'm leaving. With that, he ran out along the track that led down, away from the manor house, towards the homesteads. It wasn't long before he heard Emroy's heavy clumping behind him. The ground was hard-packed here and took little impression. It was the perfect place to depart from the track. As soon as the houses came into view, Aidan stopped and turned to the deep strip of plane trees that edged this side of the farm. Keeping his feet together, he sprang as far as he could into the grass, then repeated the procedure in a zigzagging, haphazard fashion until he reached the dry forest floor. "'What are you playing at?' Emroy said. "'This is no time for games.' "'Something my father taught me. These marks don't look like people walking. If they follow us, they will ignore this and think we went down to the houses. Do you think you can land where I did without touching anything in between?' Emroy snorted, but did, as Aidan suggested, surprise showing in his face at how much ground the smaller boy had covered with each bound. He looked more than a little pleased with himself when he was able to match the effort. Keep off the soft ground, Aidan said, picking a path that threaded over as much rock as he could find. By the time they had walked a few hundred feet, the track they had left was hidden by a screen of undergrowth and tree trunks. Aidan changed his direction and headed towards the farm gate, picking up the pace to a brisk jog. But he had to slow down again because of Emroy's blundering tread. The boy crashed his way over the ground like a blindfolded colt on jittery legs. In his defence, though, plane trees made for a noisy floor with big flakes of bark and dry twigs aplenty. Moving in silence required quick eyes and quicker feet. After a few hundred yards, Aidan heard shouts in the direction of the track they had left. He stopped and waited for their pursuers to move out of earshot. It was not worth giving Emroy the opportunity to plant one of his hooves on a nice thick branch and announce his presence. Overhead, a starling raised a raucous alarm. Aidan hoped these men were not attuned to such clues. The shouts dwindled away towards the homesteads, and the two boys moved on picking up the pace. They jogged now as the trees began to thin and the gate came into view. Dropping down, they crawled over the road, a double groove carved by a thousand cart journeys, and slipped into the forest on the other side. The cover here was far thicker. Dark oak leaves still held night's shadows under heavy boughs. Emroy was peering into the dimness with undisguised fear. Wait here, Aidan said. 
I'm going to get a better look. I need to see where they are being taken. Emroy did not object and showed no desire to move an inch further into the forest. This was Nimless. His big eyes made it clear that he believed all the stories. Aidan thought of saying something to reassure him, but then remembered how Emroy had treated him earlier and decided against it. He slipped into the shadows, quickly found a deer track and padded away. He knew this particular track. It branched ahead. The left branch ran close to the forest edge and at one point gave a view of the manor house. When he reached the spot, he crawled forward until he could see between the leaves of a dense bush. Earlier, the details had been hidden by distance. Now he saw the blood, the torn and soiled clothes, the looks of disbelief, pain, and horror, the way in which people had been turned to animals, by animals. Many were crying. Julia began to wail, and a heavy-set man walked over to her, made her look at him, and placed his fingers on his lips. When she wailed again, he whipped her like Aidan had never seen any beast whipped. She screamed, and the man repeated the gesture. This time she was silent. Aidan felt his composure crumbling. He drew his attention away from her and passed his eyes over the bodies strewn across the grass. They were all there, from Dresborn in his fine coat to little Dara. They lay on the ground, roped, hand and foot. Some, like Julia, were even being gagged. William, Dorothy, Thomas. He counted them off as he recognized their forms. His breath caught and his vision blurred as he found the tangle of straw-like hair. Calorie, he whispered. One of the foreigners ran up to Quinn, who was clearly in charge, and gave a brief report. Quinn hit him hard and yelled in a way that made his feelings clear, though the language was foreign. He walked through the litter of writhing bodies, kicking and stamping until he reached Dresborn. Where are they? he yelled at them. Dresborn's white eyes were as blank with fear as confusion. Aiden and that snobby brat you left early. Where are they? How could they disappear? You must know where they would go. I... I don't know, Dresborn stammered. Quinn walked over to Callery, grabbed her by the hair, and lifted her off the ground. She shrieked with pain, and Aidan almost charged out of his hiding. Quinn stood her in front of her father and drew a knife. No, please, Dresborn cried. I'll tell you everything I know. I'm listening. Quinn pressed the tip of the knife against her neck. Aidan's fists were clenched so hard that some of the nails drew blood. It was only by the greatest force of will that he managed to stay where he was. Showing himself now would aid nobody. He had to wait. Aidan lives three miles to the west, but if he saw, he would probably head for the town. It is possible to cut straight down the slope. Emroy will be hiding somewhere. Eventually he will go home. His father owns the mansion near the southwest boundary. Quinn considered this. Yes, Dresborn, he said at length. That sounds like an honest answer. 
I would not have expected you to show any loyalty to the boys. Your assessment sounds correct, but even if the meddlesome one does run off to town as you say, I don't think anyone will listen to him a second time. The other boy has the look of a coward, and he will sit tight until it is too late to do anything that might aid you. Calry cried as Quinn lifted her off her feet again. With a swift stroke, he sliced through the mass of hair beneath his fist. She dropped to the ground, and he flung the thick handful onto her. How am I going to sell you with hair like this? It belongs on a deck mop. I'll have to have your head shaved. He smiled as he walked away. Aidan was breathing heavily. The tears that ran down his cheeks were liquid fire. His now bloody fingers itched for Quinn's neck. The man's mask was finally gone, and the slaver was revealed. It was not a face of obvious cruelty, twisted and sneering, but rather one of utter indifference to the anguish of others, an airy comfort with his work, his destruction of lives. Callery was not far from Aidan. If he ran and cut her bonds, the two of them could probably make it into the forest. Quinn was looking away, and only one of his men was with him. Aidan pushed the branch aside and measured the distance. But then he realized that he was not thinking far ahead. If he risked freeing her now, there was good chance he would fail and be caught. And then there would be no hope. Emroy would sit tight, just as Quinn had foreseen, and no warning would reach the sheriff in time. The logic tore him. It was cold and heartless, yet what it demanded was the better choice. He looked at Calry. She trembled with sobs, her shorn locks scattered over her like refuse. All his morning's agonies were forgotten as his heart broke for her. He would not fail. He could not fail. Quinn's men returned in groups. They were given terse orders and began to get the captives to their feet, roping them by the necks and untying the bonds on their ankles. Quinn kept barking orders, clearly eager to be gone with his catch. When they were ready, he spoke. You will march. We move at speed and in silence. Anyone who attempts to slow us or makes any kind of noise, even a question, will be executed immediately. Man, woman, or child. He gave a string of orders, and the three men moved to the front of the line of captives. One of them took the rope and yanked. Dresborn's head jerked and he staggered forward, pulling the line behind him. Aidan began to count. Forty-seven captives, twenty-seven slavers. He sat tight. Another three arrived. The line disappeared into the forest, and Quinn's men set to work covering the trail that had been left. They were thorough. Aidan was glad that he was watching. Even his father might have missed such a carefully hidden trail. If they continued to show this kind of caution, he would need to keep them in sight. But if he followed now, he would be alone. And what could he do alone? He looked around the farmyard, and an idea struck him. It was an outrageous plan. No sane person would consider something like this, but it was perfect. He crept back onto the hidden deer track and sprinted to where he had left Emroy. The older boy was still there sweat-soaked and pasty. 
As quickly as he was able, Aidan explained what he had seen. Every word was putting him another yard behind the slavers. When he had finished with his observations, he explained his plan, and Emroy's jaw dropped. You want me to do what? he gasped. If anyone finds out, it'll be all over for me. If you don't do this, it'll be over for everyone at Badgerfields. Emroy, I can't be in two places at once. I need your help. If you do this, it'll be like a thousand bridge jumps. Everyone will think of you as a hero. Emroy considered. He reached for his chin hairs with shaking fingers. Fine, he said. I'll do it. But remember that it's your idea. And just so you know, I think it's terrible. Aidan had a sudden urge to kick Emroy, but he pushed it aside. Wait until you can no longer see or hear the slavers. If they're too close, they'll come back. But don't wait long, or it'll be too late. Emroy blinked and nodded. Aidan led him back to his vantage point and left him with the crossbow and a whispered reminder of the plan. Then he slipped under a leafy branch and was gone. Emroy's mumbled words drifted after him. Idiotic plan. Utterly idiotic. Chapter 7 Nolte scratched his head as he cast one final look out towards the distant farm. Well, Pebble, if we wait any longer, we'll be marked as spies. It's time we... That was as far as he got. His little blue eyes grew as round as his gaping mouth. Oh, 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 my whiskers. Lana! Lana! He sprang into the saddle as if the ground were on fire and set off at a gallop that pulled the whiskers flat against his cheeks. The party had been walking for some time, but Nulty caught them after a few miles. Lana! He yelled as he came careening round the bend at perilous speed. The men drew to a stop, and Nulty burst into their midst. The farm! It's on fire! he gasped. On fire? Lana said. There's a huge tower of smoke growing thicker and darker by the moment. The only time I've seen fire like that is when houses burn down. The sheriff leveled his eyes at him. If this turns out to be another wind chase, then you are spending a day in the stocks. I accept, and if it's not, you will spend a day's wages in my store. Lana grunted something, then raised his voice and gave the order to head back to the farm. There was more than one complaint, and two or three of the men ignored him. They were not soldiers and did not need to obey. The rest of the party cantered back to the bend, and there they saw what Nulty had described. Only now it was twice the size— a swirling pillar of grey and black that flung shards of fire from its turbulent innards. Nothing could have sent a bolder message of tragedy. Without a word, Lana kicked his horse and galloped forward. There was no hesitation this time, as the rest followed. The first impression they had on entering the farmyard was bewildering. They rode into a snowfall of stringy ash and blinding smoke. Even so, the glare and roar of the flames cut through the haze. At a good two hundred feet, the men at the front cried out and held their hands before their faces as the wind backed and the heat struck them.
It was not the house, but the hay shed that was burning, and not a soul was to be seen looking on or dousing the flames, though by this stage nobody could have carried or even thrown a bucket anywhere near the inferno. A pallid, red-headed boy emerged from behind a bush and shouted over the din to Lana. They drew back until they could speak. Emroy? Lanner asked. Son of Menox? Everyone knew the district's titled men and their kin. The boy nodded. He looked sick with worry. They've all been carried into the forest, he said, pointing with rattling fingers. They covered their tracks, but Aiden is following, and will leave marks on the trees. Lanner looked as if he were about to strike someone. Emroy backed away a step. Who were they? Lanner asked. That pompous lieutenant's men, whatever his name is. Big, ugly-looking brutes, all well-armed. They spoke some filthy-sounding language I couldn't understand. How many were they? Thirty. Lanner glanced at his men, at the collapsing barn, then back at Emroy. The boy looked as if he were about to justify himself. You've done well, Lanner said, preempting Emroy. No soldier could have done better with only two men. This was all your idea. Emroy hesitated, but only for an instant. Yes, he said. Lanner gripped the boy's shoulder and turned to address those who had not heard. It seems we have a young general in our midst, he announced, then explained what had been done and what lay before them. Many of the men nodded their approval at Emroy, who accepted it with a tired grace. We all know the stories about Nimlus. Now we have no choice but to forget them. Any man who turns away, knowing what has befallen our friends, will be denounced as a coward to the town. If these criminals who abduct even women and children can enter Nimlus, then by the giant's wrath, so can we. There was a loud cheer, though several faces had turned very white. Horses would not be able to pass through the tangled undergrowth, so they were left in Emroy's care, despite the noticeable squirming in his manner. He seemed eager to be off at speed, his back to the scene. Men readied their weapons, and after Emroy showed them where the slavers had entered the forest, they soon found the first of Aidan's cuts on a branch, where the bark had been sliced and peeled back, leaving a pale scar. After he had taken a few steps, Lanner stopped and shouted to Emroy. How good a lead do they have? Emroy considered. It was still grey when they left. The sheriff looked at the sun that was now clearing the smaller trees. He cursed, then turned and plunged into the riot of dense undergrowth. Aidan held his breath and tried to squeeze deeper into the soil under the fallen log, hoping his deerskin jacket would help him melt away. It was a poor hiding place, but it had been a desperate scramble to elude an unexpected glance. One of the three trail sweepers had grown suspicious, as Aidan had grown bold, and followed too closely. The man was creeping past him now, in a half-crouch, dagger raised. Not much concealed Aidan, only a few branches and the log under which he had wormed himself. The log was in that crumbling stage of rot, and Aidan had a tough time keeping still, as he felt things drop onto his back and neck and begin to crawl around. A sharp pain on his arm showed him what he should have expected. Ants, the little red ones with tempers to match their color. 
His arm had dug right through their nest, and a sizable army was swarming over the offending limb. If he so much as flinched, he would be discovered and caught. Or worse. He grimaced as the bites multiplied. The crouching man paused. He listened and swept his gaze slowly around. Aiden shut his eyes as the man's search passed over him. In games, he'd found that eyes often gave someone away. They were frequently to blame for that treacherous reflection or flicker of movement. Finally, the man straightened up and returned to the others. They spoke loudly and disappeared around the bend. Aiden wasn't fooled. He'd also used this trick. He rubbed the ants off his arm, edged a little ways forward to where he could see over the roots, and waited. When they should have covered a half mile, he heard the faintest crack. It was enough. He remained where he was. A little while later he saw a branch shudder. The three men slid out from their ambush, peering round the corner and back up the empty track before moving off. This time their withdrawal appeared genuine, but there was no telling if they would wait again further along. He considered his options. If he stayed where he was, he could join up with Lana and his men. Together they could track and fall on the slavers at their camp, wherever that would be. Many would die, perhaps even some of the captives from Badgerfields. The idea sickened him. He remembered something and checked his pocket. The vial was still there. He had taken it on impulse, imagining a situation that had not materialized, but another plan began to take shape. About ten miles ahead was a cave that opened into a clearing beside a spring. It would be irresistible. Surely that was where the slavers were headed. Apart from two or three splits that circled through the bush and got lost in hog burrows, the faint track they were using would take them directly there. Hopefully Lana and his crew would be able to follow the trail from here onward. Aidan would have to take another route and reach the cave ahead of Quinn. He placed a few branches on the ground, making an arrow, then crept into a vine-strewn thicket and pressed deeper into the forest. Once he was far enough in, he began to move in a way that showed he was no stranger here. Since his fifth birthday, his father had encouraged him to explore, to grow familiar with the language of the forest, and learn to move through it quickly and silently. To say he ran would be misleading. He flowed, leaping over gullies, skimming under branches, and bending around tree trunks at a speed that never dipped. What was most remarkable was the sound. Apart from the brushing of trousers, he was nearly silent. This was his secret place, where he had found adventures beyond counting and mostly beyond telling, for it was unwise to talk of entering Nimbless. The pace took a toll, though, and after a few miles he was scratched from the rank thorns and grazed from tumbles where fallen leaves concealed slippery rocks. It was a reckless pace, but he had to win back the time, or it would be for nothing. He was ragged when he eventually topped a crest and looked out. This was one of the few places he had found where he could sweep his gaze over the canopy and see the slow folds of the great forest rooftop. 
Before him was a long and steep valley. Beyond it, thickly wooded hills emerged through the mist. A hazy first breath of the damp forest awakened by a swelling sun. The river tumbling down below was as noisy as the birds. It almost drowned out the stream that gurgled past the clearing. Aidan did no more than glance to find his bearings. He crept towards a short drop of crumbling soil and tried to work his way down. The ground began to slide under his shoes. A quick look ahead revealed a monkey vine just out of reach. More earth started to crumble around him. It was closer to a reaction than a decision. He leapt out into the air and snatched the vine with both hands, just ahead of the rumble and hiss of falling rock and debris. The vine, fortunately, reached all the way to the ground. Aidan clambered down and dropped into the thicket at the edge of the clearing. He took a few steps forward and then stopped, calling himself a fool. His boots were leaving clear tracks. He took them off and tried walking barefoot, but this wasn't good enough either. An experienced tracker would see. After a moment of uncertainty, he came up with a way to puzzle any tracker. He tied his jacket to one foot and his shirt to the other and arranged them until he was walking on cushions that left no recognizable print on the bare ground. The clearing was generous, but the massive branches hung thick and full over the space, leaving only a central gap where sunlight poured through. Here, standing proudly in the light, a tall, dried-out oak retained its old ground. Dead roots still reached into the earth and held up the massive trunk, a statue that honoured the once majestic life. A creeper that had once thrived in its branches, clung stiff and stark. It looked like an impossibly big spiderweb that had become knotted and tangled during a gale. Some of the threads hung down not too far from a fireplace ringed with stones. It gave Aidan an idea. But as he peered up at the smooth branches, he realized how dangerous the climb would be. The first part of the climb did not even seem humanly possible. He looked around but all the other plans he could assemble were pitiful in comparison or would require a large team of laborers to set up. He walked to the base of the tree and noted the prints of many boots, the ashy powder not yet dislodged from the exposed surfaces around the fireplace and the edges of blackened cinders that were still sharp. This was definitely their camp, no more than a day or two old. His eyes drifted back to the oak tree. Could it be climbed? It would have taken half a dozen men to wring the trunk with their arms, so hugging and edging upwards would not work here. He spotted a series of finger-sized pockets that had been left by some wood-boring creature. A little above that was a woodpecker's hole, and above that a horribly thick and smooth branch that he might just be able to scramble onto. From there he could see a way up, but it would be slippery and high. He looked to where the creeper hung, and his stomach twisted. Experience told him that looking down would double the distance. The bark-stripped smooth surfaces would double that again. He almost walked away, but then he thought of Calry and of Quinn, and the knife that had torn through her hair. He kicked off his cloth shoes, plugged his fingers in the holes of the aged trunk, and hauled himself off the ground.
for once his lightness was to his advantage. Nevertheless, tendons screamed, and arms shook as his bare feet searched in vain for some purchase on the slippery wood. Groaning and shaking with the effort, he lifted himself as high as he could, and raised one foot until he could work his large toe into a small pocket in the wood. It was an uncomfortable position, but he held it only long enough to catch his breath. Then, with his chin and chest sliding against the surface, he pushed off the already aching toe and hauled on his numb fingers until he could snatch up with his left hand and jab two fingers into the next pocket. He tottered for an instant, his weight almost carrying him over backwards, but there was just enough grip to keep his fingers from slipping out. Finding a second toehold, he managed to work his way up to larger pockets that admitted three fingers. It was becoming easier, but this was still the most difficult and treacherous tree he had ever attempted. Getting onto the first branch was terrifying. After he finally wrestled himself around it, he began to move with chameleon hesitation. He hadn't thought dead branches could sway, but he felt movement as he edged out, higher and higher. Beads of sweat that slid down and dropped from his nose seemed to take half a day to reach the ground. At least if he fell, he would have time to think matters over. He reached the ropey arm of the creeper and began to edge it along the branch with him as he moved further out. It was completely rigid, retaining the curve of the oak branch where it had rested at its death. Pushing it along by giddy inches, Aidan finally reached what he hoped was a position directly above the fireplace. He tested it by breaking off a withered chunk of the creeper's bark and dropping it. It fell a yard short. He advanced a yard, tried again, and was rewarded with a dead center hit. The creeper dangled a good fifteen feet above the ground, too high for anyone to reach, or, he hoped, notice. He secured it over a knot in the branch and edged his way back down again. Reversing the climb was a little less terrifying, though far more awkward. By the time he reached the ground, Aidan was grazed from chin to toes as thoroughly as if he'd been caught under a wagon and dragged. He strapped his makeshift shoes back on. Supplies needed to fuel seventy people on a sustained march would have been hidden somewhere. The cave was the obvious place. It was more of an overhang than a cave, but deep enough that the interior was dim. Aidan had thumped his head on the roof here before, so he walked carefully, hand outstretched, as his eyes acquainted themselves with the darkness. A pile of flat rocks caught his attention. He lifted them and found the sacks of food. At first he worried he would not find what he was looking for, but eventually he came across a metal container that looked about right. He pried the lid off, tasted the contents, and smiled. The vial from his pocket was promptly emptied into the container, and the powder mixed in. Then he packed everything back as before. Not far off, a branch cracked. An instant later, men entered the clearing, the advance scouts. They looked around for a moment, then dropped their light rucksacks and began collecting firewood. Aidan crouched in the shadow. He would never be able to slip out of the cave now, so he crept into a dark hollow behind a large boulder. He was only just in time. 
One of the men entered the cave and made for the food store. A projection on the roof caught him just above the eye, unleashing a string of poisonous-sounding words. He sat on Aidan's boulder to nurse his wound, and remained there until Aidan, unable to move, was so cramped he wanted to scream. The lecran was close enough to smell, and smell he did, carrying the unmistakable odour of one who had not washed for weeks. While the afternoon slipped into darkness, Aidan worried and hoped that nobody would discover his shoes. He'd left them behind a bush, intending to recover them after making his preparations, but there was nothing he could do about it now. Then he realised he had not cleared his tracks from those first few steps either. He gritted his teeth and inwardly named himself a royal idiot. He began to think about Lana and the men following the trail through the forest. There were no trackers among them. They were village folk and would probably be lost by now. He silently lashed himself again, wishing he had thought more carefully. He should have waited and led them here. His plan had tried to accomplish too much, and it had made no allowance for the people involved. Hadn't he just read the words of one of the great generals, Osric or Velian, saying that a battle plan unable to bend would shatter? He had made just such a plan. A slight deviation would bring failure. Yet there was one frail chance. Crunching footfall preceded the arrival of the rest of the party. The injured man made his way out into the open, still holding his forehead. Aidan let his breath out and stretched his aching limbs. Unwrapping his shirt and jacket from his feet, he pulled them over his cold skin and edged forward to see where the captives were dumped on the far side of the clearing. Two men stood guard. The rest settled themselves around the fire that had just begun to crackle. Aidan slipped back as four of the lecrons collected pots and food bags. Though the men were clearly relaxed, there was little in the way of joviality. They were stern to the point of sourness. The guards began shouting at one of the prisoners. Quinn approached and stooped down. Aidan could not determine what he was doing, but caught his breath as he saw him stand up again, dragging Calorie past the fire to the cave. Aidan crawled back to his hiding. Quinn shouted, and a man brought a burning branch that cast a light into the cave. They dropped Calorie against the wall and tied her ankles. She was only feet away from Aidan. If the light had been better, they would have seen him. He shut his eyes to hide reflections. You want to talk? Fine, Quinn snarled. Here you can talk all you want. Next time I'll cut out your tongue. They disappeared with the light, bar a few glowing flakes that had dropped on the ground and were turning black with a soft, crinkling sound. Calorie was whimpering in a voice that shook with fear. Calorie, Aidan whispered. She gasped. Aidan? He crawled over and untied her shaking hands. As soon as the ropes came loose, she flung her arms around him and buried her head in his neck, sobbing. Aidan wasn't too sure what to do. This was not his area of experience. He put his arms clumsily around her shoulders and held her until she was breathing easily. She let go and sat back against the rock. 
They killed Dorothy. Her voice quivered as if her own words had cut her. She couldn't keep up, so they slit her throat and left her like an animal. Aidan almost choked. He heard the agony as she continued. The way William screamed. I never knew a man could scream like that. I don't think I'll ever get those sounds from my head. He screamed and screamed until they clubbed him down. And then they kept on clubbing him until he was as still as her. She gave way again to deep, silent sobbing. Aidan was shaking. He couldn't speak for a long time. It was the sheer impossibility of what he had just been told that stunned him. He had heard of cruel deaths when cities were sacked or when murderous gangs did their work. But such things only happened in grim histories and tales gone wrong. They happened in other times, other places, to other people. They were not... real. But it finally took hold, and he tasted the bitter ache. It hardly seemed possible, but Dorothy, gentle, playful Dorothy, and her straight and true William were gone. When her sobs had settled, Callery spoke again in a voice that was heavy and tired. These lecrons are cruel in a way we cannot understand, Aidan. They didn't feel anything. They didn't even look angry. They murder like they're pulling out weeds. Aidan shook his head to clear it and took a deep breath. They might get what they deserve tonight, he said. What do you mean? she asked. I got Emroy to set the hay shed alight so the sheriff and his men would come back. I marked the trail for them. They should be nearby in the forest now, if they haven't got lost. He decided not to tell her that he had left them to find the second part of the trail on their own. It will be a bloodbath. Maybe not. Aidan explained the rest of his preparations and what he hoped would happen. It sounded good in theory. You know, Aidan, she said, looking at him, sometimes I think you must be the cleverest person in the Misty Vales. He smiled, embarrassed, slightly guilty, and she continued. You were right all along. I heard about what my father said to you. I'm so sorry. I know what he did was wrong, but I don't want you to hate him. Can you forgive him? Aidan nodded. For her sake, he would try. You're not a coward, she said. Not to me, not to anyone who knows you. In the rush of preparations, he had managed to escape that awful thought, but her words brought it back in spite of her kind intentions. I know. I know you don't think I am, but... Everyone who saw me saw what happened. They will. I think they will see you as a hero when they discover what you've been doing. She took his arm in hers, and they looked out into the firelit clearing. When the broth was cooked up, the slavers served themselves using wooden bowls. Each captive was given half a potato and a sip from a water skin passed around the line. The slavers began to sprawl out on the ground as others removed the cooking pots and built up the fire. Aidan and Callery watched. For some time, nothing happened. But gradually, the thicker logs succumbed to the heat and added to the blaze. 
The vine dangled idly in the air currents, but Aidan knew from experience how hot it would be up there. The flames did not reach, but the heat did. It happened quickly. First there was a bright glow that popped into a young flame, and then the flame began to climb. The more it climbed, the hotter it grew, and the faster it moved. Someone shouted, and men stood to their feet, pointing. Suddenly Quinn appeared, and began bellowing orders. Clubs and stones were thrown, but to no avail. Several men, with much confusion, formed themselves into a hasty tower, and hoisted one of their comrades as high as the lower branch, where he scrambled, slipped, and fell to the ground, landing on his back with a jarring thud. He remained where he fell. It was too late. The mass of knotted creepers had begun to burn with a bright yellow glare. Leaping spears of fire lunged upwards and branches caught the blaze. The flames climbed steadily through the boughs until half the tree was crackling and humming in a fire that pierced the forest roof and lit the ground like daylight. That should draw them, Aidan said with satisfaction. It was working far better than he had expected. The slavers, in spite of the tragedy, appeared exhausted and flopped to the ground, contemplating the blaze from wherever they lay. It looks like the sedative is working too, said Callery. I think Nolte has some dangerously strong potions, or maybe these lecrons use a lot of salt. I don't think the smaller pot was salted, though, said Aidan. Quinn and his two officers don't seem to be affected. One of the branches, as broad as an ox, cracked and fell with a swelling whoosh. Men rolled to their feet and tottered out of the way before the impact. The branch struck the ground with a booming crack and burst with a shower of sparks, throwing several men onto their faces, where some remained, apparently asleep. One had been too slow to react, and joined the ancient tree in its long-awaited cremation. The captives began screaming. Quinn, who appeared to be quite lucid, advanced on them with his knife drawn. A deep bellow called his attention away. He turned to see Lanner storm into the clearing, followed by his enraged men. Some of the slavers reached for their weapons, but they were too slow. One managed to get a crossbow loaded and shot at Nulty, whose clattering arms drew the most attention. The Lecran could not have chosen more poorly, though, as this was the one man wearing chainmail. The male took most of the force. Nulty rushed at his assailant, blocked the desperate swing of the crossbow with his ample shield, and heaved a great agricultural stroke at the man's leg with an axe. Dark blood spurted, and the lecran dropped. Nulty tripped and fell on top of him with a tremendous crash. Only the storekeeper got to keep his feet again. The rest of the slavers attempted to fight, but their feeble blows were easily deflected, they were hacked and bashed to the ground with increasing swiftness as the sheriff's men began to sense their superiority. Ah! Callery gasped, shutting her eyes. I can't watch this. It was over soon. A few of the lecrons had slipped into the darkness of the surrounding forest. Those that had been unable to escape lay dead. Let's get out of here, Aidan said. He led Callery who limped slightly out into the open. The yellow blaze of the oak was gradually fading to an orange glow, while shadows crept back to claim their ground.
Around the edges of the flames, women and children wept in each other's arms. Thomas stared ahead of him with vacant eyes. Aidan could only guess what horrible sight still lingered. Dara was cradled in her mother's lap, crying, rocking. Dresborn sat rubbing his wrists while surly grimaces pulled down the corners of his mouth. Calvary moved towards her father, but Aidan held back. She stopped and turned to him, raising her eyebrows. I need to get my shoes, Aidan said. All those cinders. I feel safer with you next to me. Aidan smiled. I'll be right back, I promise. Wait, she said, biting her lip as if unsure about what she was about to say. Aidan, it's been bothering me that I didn't tell you everything I was thinking earlier. I forgot while they were fighting, but it's come back now, and I need to say it before the people get in the way. She paused again, and then pushed on. This thing inside you that made you collapse today, and that other time at your house when I saw and I left again without saying anything, because nobody noticed me. This thing is not you, and you are going to find a way to beat it. Aidan was shaken to the roots by the revelation that she had seen him crumple once before, but the embarrassment was swept away as she came forward and took both his hands in hers. Her brows were pinched in earnestness as she continued. When I was younger, I was scared of so many things, especially Nimless. You were the one who taught me to be brave. No matter what anyone says about today, you need to remember that I have met a lot of brave people, and you are the bravest person I've ever known. Please don't let anyone take that from you, or from me. You are going to beat it, even if it takes a very long time. Tulia always says that big forests are cleared the same way as small forests, but it just takes longer. I know this thing inside you is a big forest, but it's going to come down eventually. I know it. Her words filled him with a courage and hope he hadn't known for a long time. Thank you, Calry, he answered very softly, knowing that what she had said would stay with him forever. She smiled, lingering. Friendship, loyalty, devotion, and love. They poured from her eyes, all the more striking for the harshness of the setting. It was a moment Aidan would never forget. Her face was still hovering in his mind as he reached the edge of the forest, now in shadow. He began sweeping with his bare feet. Nothing. That was strange. He got down on his hands and knees and advanced along the ground, deeper under the bush. There was a soft rustle of branches, and something struck him on the back of the head, knocking him to the soil. A powerful hand clamped over his mouth, and another wrapped around his frame, almost crushing him. The man held him from behind, so that they both faced the clearing. We lucky find shoes. The slaver's broken speech was a whisper. Captain, tell me, wait here, catch you, revenge. Take you, take girl. Chapter 8 Aidan 
unable to move or shout, could do nothing but stare. Callery was nursing her father, who, being a largely inactive man, must have been pushed to the bitter end of his reserves. He drained the mug of water she had brought him and handed it back with what looked like a request for more. She moved away towards the skins, and that was when it happened. The shadows all but hid the stealthy form that darted out, grabbed her from behind, clamped her mouth, and carried her back into the darkness. Aiden thrashed, but he may as well have fought against the beams of a cattle crush. Dresborn had not seen, and nobody else had noticed. The lecheron grunted his satisfaction and shifted his grip as he began to turn back into the forest. Aidan felt a finger pressing against his teeth. It was all the invitation that was needed. He opened his mouth, the finger slipped inside, and he bit down like a mole. With a yell, the man snatched his hand away, and Aidan shot into the clearing, screaming, He took Calry! He took Calry after him! A few puzzled expressions and bewildered glances were all he received. He ran over to where Dresborn reclined and pointed desperately into the shadows, still shouting. Everyone is fine, Lanner said, misunderstanding him and gripping his arm. Well, where have you been? Emroy gave you the simple task of marking trees and you only did half the job. Aidan ignored him. In here! We must go now or we'll lose her! She's with us, you impertinent little fool, Dresborn snapped. She just went to fetch water. I would have seen if... Where, Dresborn? I don't see her, said Nolte, as he came trotting up. I think it would be wise to listen to Aiden this time. Will someone remove this annoying man before I... Dresborn began. Listen to him! Nolte roared. A shocked silence settled over the scene. Even Dresborn stared open-mouthed. He's right, Lanner said, looking around him. Calorie's not here. Several voices called her name, and when there was no response, Lanner's voice was hard. Aiden, you are the only one who saw. Point the way. Five with us. Mulon, you remain and take charge. Set up a perimeter for the evening and return to Batcherfields at first light. Stay together. Lanner, Nolte, and another four men followed as Aidan led the way into the shadows. Dresborn came after them, demanding forcefully that Aidan be sent back before he could ruin their chances. Lanner's words were swift and sharp. Sir Dresborn, he said, fall in silently or return to camp. But if you raise your voice again, I will have you bound and gagged. Dresborn did not reply. He attempted to follow, but he was barely able to walk and did not last long. Aidan pressed forward into the shadows. After about fifty paces, Lana whispered, How do you know where you are going? I don't, Aidan replied, whispering. I'm getting us away from the noise of the people so we can listen. He was worried Lana might want to take the lead after this admission, so he moved quickly ahead. In spite of his age, he was the only one who had been trained by a forester, and this was a forest he knew well. From the snapping and crunching behind, it was clear that none of the men even knew how to walk when on the hunt. After the camp noises had dwindled to nothing, Aidan stopped and whispered. There are at least two of them. 
We need to listen until we know how many and where. Then he repeated something his father had often told him. Don't talk when you hear something. Keep listening. Be patient and very quiet. Aidan caught the look on the sheriff's face. The man was clearly surprised at what he was hearing. It appeared to be causing some shift in his thoughts. They waited. There were many forest noises. A fruit bat pinged, crickets creaked, frogs belched, a forest owl hooted. Nearby, a shrew that had been waiting in fearful silence began to gnaw. As he drank in the noises, immersing himself in the surroundings and filtering out the distractions, a part of Aidan's thoughts turned back to what Sheriff Lanner had said earlier. Emroy must have seen the opportunity to win a name for himself and taken it. The thought was dismissed as swiftly as it took shape. It was a gnat compared to what he now faced. Crack. Some distance off to the right. Lanner tapped his shoulder, but Aidan shook his head. The direction was wrong. He guessed that it was the second man trying to join up with Quinn. A heavy crunch sounded from the same direction. They waited. It was so quiet that Aidan wasn't sure at first, but then it repeated. The sharp growl, like the teeth of brambles as they pull from clothing. Aidan spoke quickly in a whisper. Quinn is about a hundred yards ahead to the left. One of his men is joining him from the right. I think they're heading west. Lead the way, Lanner said. You seem to know what you're doing. Lanner's respect was not easily earned, and Aidan felt a strange warmth in his chest. His eyes had recovered from the glare of the fire, and now welcomed the sparse needles of moonlight. He threaded a course between the trees, keeping away from brambles and the skeletons of dry branches that would defeat any attempt at stealth. They moved at a good pace, with little noise, even Nulty had contrived to hold his weapons close and tame the metallic cacophony. The ground began to slope downhill. Aidan realized with a sudden rush of panic where they were heading and increased the pace. One of the men at the back tripped over some unseen object and fell onto the man in front of him. They came to ground heavily. The thump and snap of twigs would be unmistakable. Aidan stopped. They listened. Apart from the forest sounds, there was no noise. Then branches cracked and rapid steps echoed through the night. They're making a dash for the river, Aidan said. Hurry! Stealth was abandoned, and they charged forward, tearing through thorns and creepers in a headlong plunge down the slope. This time Lana could not keep up. Aidan flew over the ground at a speed that would have been reckless even in daylight. Several times he tripped, and once he caught a branch across the neck, but he rolled to his feet and pushed on. He knew he was leaving the rest behind, but they would find him again at the river bank. He had a desperate fear that boats were already being launched. Stark moonlight poured down into the valley and revealed his small form as he leapt out between clusters of ferns onto boulders. The river bent away upstream, and he could see nothing but rocks. Downstream, all was still. But then, the shapes of two canoes emerged from cover a hundred yards from him. He bounded over the tops of boulders, 
but by the time he reached the spot, the canoes were well into the river and sliding away. They would have needed more than two, he said to himself, and raced up to the trees where he found several more canoes. They were light, the kind that could be borne along trails between men, so he was able to drag one to the river. He launched it, but dark water welled up from a splintered gash in the hull. Dismay welled up too, threatening to choke him. He ran back to the other canoes and searched. They had all been staved in. Aiden, Lana called, scrambling over the boulders, his gasping men in hot pursuit. Where are they? Aiden pointed, unable to speak. The sheriff looked at the fast-flowing river. Then his eyes dropped to the ruined hulls that ended the pursuit. You did well, he said, putting his hand on Aiden's shoulder. But Aiden was not listening. We can cross, he managed. We can use clothes to plug the holes. We just need to get to the other side. The ground is open there, and we can outrun them if we go over the spur. Lanner followed the direction of Aiden's arm and turned back to look over the canoes. Maybe, just maybe, he said. Then he straightened up. Eight man, find a boat that will get you across. If you can't swim, I suggest you remain here and wait for us. He dragged canoes to the water, but after testing them, all except Lana and Nolte drew back. Aidan had stuffed his jacket into a punctured hull and was already paddling. Lana and Nolte followed. The current was swift and carried them downstream faster than they had expected. Aidan made it most of the way before he had to jump into the shallows and wade. Lanner was heavier, but he rode more powerfully and made a similar landing. Nulte was as heavy as he looked, and though he made a courageous effort, thrashing about him with the oar, he was in the middle of the current when forced to abandon the sinking canoe and swim for his life. Fortunately, he had remembered to throw off the chainmail and heavier weapons, so he was not dragged straight down to a watery death. Aidan and Lanner jogged along with the current, until the storekeeper was able to reach the ground and fight his way to the shore. Are you able to run? Lana asked, his voice betraying a touch of annoyance. Quite, Nolte spluttered. Yes, quite able. He shook off the excess water and pushed in front of the sheriff at a jog. The hill was murderous, partly due to the steepness and mostly due to the urgency. Lana who had perhaps expected to be cracking a whip at Nulty, found himself wheezing and straining at the back. That a small boy and a man so round and mild could leave the sheriff behind was not something anyone would have expected. Lana was a fearsome man, but the rage in Aidan's face and the dogged resolve in Nulty's made the sheriff seem the mild one. They crested the hill and were faced with another. Lanner groaned as the others pushed on. All three were blowing hard, but the burning in Aidan's chest and the agony in his thighs were nothing compared to the panic in his heart. What had Nulty said? Stay with her, Aidan. There had been a deep worry in the storekeeper's eyes back then, and as Aidan turned now, he caught a look of stark dread. He began to whine under every expelled breath, and tore at the ground beneath him with hands and feet surging upwards. He scrambled over the shoulder of the hill, where the ground leveled. Without a word, 
Aiden broke into a steady run, Nolte and Lana following close behind. The dark forest was behind them now, and only isolated stands of small trees speckled the hilltop. Long grass was all they had to contend with as their feet drummed towards the far end of the spur where the river turned back. A shriek sounded in the night, and a herd of forest gazelle bounded away in high, hanging leaps. Gradually, the slope began to drop as Aidan passed the watershed. He lengthened his stride, approaching the second valley. Something warned him that the drop ahead was more than a slope, and it was fortunate for him that he slowed down, for his last stride carried him to the edge, not of a bank, but of a cliff. He peered over the lip as the sheriff drew up beside him. Deep, craggy lines scarred a face that plummeted a hideous distance into the churning current beneath. The cliff extended up the river, to the left, but to the right, where the river bent away, the cliff did not bend. It continued towards the forest, effectively cutting off any descent. They could go no further. The only way to reach the river was to head back all the miles they had just run. Nolte arrived, his boots thudding against the rocks. He collapsed and crawled to the edge, where he stared with round eyes and open mouth at the horrible drop. All were wheezing. Aidan coughed, and something salty and sticky filled his mouth. Even if possible, it would take us till morning to climb down there, said Lana, when he was able to speak. And the chance of surviving a jump like this has got to be very small. It cannot, Naughty gasped in snatches. Cannot, cannot be. Aidan stared in disbelief at the empty river churning far below. Lana was looking at him. Once the desperation had left his breathing, the sheriff spoke. It was all your plan, Aidan, wasn't it? Burning the barn, marking the trail, setting the tree alight to guide us. Aidan nodded, but he was still looking at the river. Why did you leave us to get lost? To drug their food, so they wouldn't be able to fight. Realization flooded Lana's face as he stared anew at the young boy before him. They always said you had a commander's brain in a boy's head. I just took it for farm stories, but I see now that there was no exaggeration. The town will learn of this, and Emroy will learn the price of lying to the sheriff, regardless of who his father thinks he is. Aidan stiffened, eyes locked on a small shape that drifted from the shadow of the cliff. Calrie! He bellowed with all the force of his young voice. Aiden! Aiden! A cry echoed up the rocks, and they saw the young girl stand in the front of the canoe. Quinn was fast with his oar and struck her across the back, dropping her to her knees. Aiden screamed. Then he went very still. He looked around, grabbed a fist-sized rock and tossed it gently over the edge. It fell and fell, hanging in the air far too long. When it struck the water, it barely cleared the boulders. He watched the movement of the canoe and counted out the same time the rock had taken to drop. 
He had done this often over the brockle, when the targets had been drifting leaves. He knew now how far the canoe would move during the fall, and using that distance, he marked a point upstream from him. Can I use this? he asked, pointing to a small warhammer that Nalte still carried on his belt. Nalte unhooked the weapon and handed it over. From this height, you have as much chance of hitting her as him, Lanner objected. I'm not going to throw it from here. Aidan's voice was shaking now. Both men looked at him, confused. You just told us our chance would be small, he said to Lana. But what about her? I promised not to abandon her, and I won't. He looked at the river. The canoe was approaching the mark. No, Aidan, Lana said, stepping forward and reaching out with a big hand. You won't make it. I won't let you. But Aidan was too quick for him. With a deep breath, he clenched his jaw, slipped around Lana, and sprinted at the edge. Moonlight made it difficult to be sure-footed over the broken ground. A mistake now would rob him of the speed he needed to carry him over the rocks. Instinct dug its claws in and willed him to stop. He felt sick. He didn't want to do this. But he drove himself on. Fear surged as the edge rushed forward. He placed his final step. His stomach twisted. Then he leapt. The chasm opened its jaws beneath him. Every muscle locked and his throat clamped shut. Wind began to thrum and then scream in his ears as he fell. He glimpsed features in the rock face rushing up past him. Deep, craggy lines and hard shapes. But his eyes were fixed on the canoe. It was as though everything slowed down and he saw in strangely vivid detail. Though his mind was operating on the most primitive level, the impressions were being etched with the weight and depth of runes on an ancient lintel. Calorie was in the front of the canoe, crouched on her knees staring up at him. There was no relief in her eyes, only fear, no, horror at what he was doing. He knew she would never have wanted rescue at this price, just as surely as he could not have withheld it. They had never actually spoken of what they meant to each other, but they spoke it now, with an eloquence beyond the reach of words. Then Aidan fixed his eyes on Quinn. The man was staring open-mouthed at the impossible spectacle. Aidan raised the hammer above his head. At first, he thought he had misjudged, but realized now that he would land close to the canoe, almost in it. Another rush of fear almost caused him to abandon the throw and prepare for impact, but he pushed it aside, took aim, and hurled the hammer with all the strength remaining in his body. The throw caused him to turn. He would not land well. He forgot about Quinn, even Calry, as he shrank into a ball and tensed. An explosion of pain shook him. Water as hard as rock. Then he felt no more, as all was swallowed in dark silence. Chapter 9
the dreams were confusing. A distorted jumble of nightmarish pain, tender words, and familiar voices. Sometimes it was his parents, Clawman and Nessa, that he sensed. Sometimes others. Sometimes night. Sometimes day. Thomas's voice was there, too, at the edge of his tangled musings, as he wandered, lost within his own mind. Once he recognized Tresborn's voice, and then his father's raised in anger. Even in his dream world, he crimped up and braced himself. Sometimes the dream seemed to be reality, and the taste of food passed through his thoughts more than once. He began to drift back and relive the events of those days. The danger, the hope, the falseness and the loyalty. Then that final scene played out before him again, and as he hit the water, he sat up in his bed, with sweat beading his forehead. Searing lances shot through his body. Arms, legs, back, they all felt wrong. He collapsed into the mattress with a shudder of agony. His mother was beside him in an instant. She cried clutching his hand as if trying to keep him from escaping again, but his vision dimmed, and he drifted off. When he awoke, she was ready with soup, which he was made to drink before she would listen to a word. When he had swallowed all he could, he asked in a cracked whisper, Gallery? Rest, Aiden, she said, and looked away. Aidan wanted to press, but did not have the strength. He tried to ask again the following day, but was met with the same response. As consciousness returned, so the pain increased, and his slumber became fitful. When he was able to lift his head, he discovered that one arm and both his legs were bound and splinted. They looked thinner than they should have been. The angle of the sun from his window told him that spring was gone. Weeks, even months, must have passed. He awoke one morning to see his father sitting on the end of the bed. Where is Calry? Aidan asked. That's not why I'm here, his father replied. His face was expressionless, apart from its native cast of stern dissatisfaction. Dresborn received a letter two days ago, and what it contains could destroy us. He had copies made, posted them all over the town, and I took one. I need you to listen, and then answer some questions. He began to read. Dresborn, as you are by now aware, I am a Lecran slave trader. Though that makes us enemies, there is a certain respect that is possible even between enemies. I write this partly from that respect and partly from anger, an anger that you will understand shortly. It appears that we have both been betrayed, and I believe it would give us both comfort to have the treachery punished. You may have wondered how I obtained such good information on the lay of the farm, 
and the approach my men used. Two months before our invasion, I was able to bribe a young boy into divulging every detail of the farm and its occupants. He was to keep clear of the place during a specified time, the time of our arrival. Have you not wondered how Aidan was able to work things out from those ridiculous clues? The little turncoat was only pretending to work out what he already knew. It is to your credit that you were not taken in by his invented stories. I paid him well to keep his mouth shut, paid him very well. First he betrayed you, then he betrayed me. I leave it to you to decide what to do with him. In my land, however, the punishment for this kind of treachery is most severe. It is true I acted deceptively while with you, but I hope that you can see I have nothing to gain from being deceptive now. Aidan had barely listened to the words. Did he say anything about Calry? He asked when his father was finished. First answer my questions, Clawman said. Did you accept money in exchange for that information? No. Did you ever see Quinn before he arrived at Badgerfields? No. Is anything in the letter about you true? I... I don't think so, no. Clawman's eyes were hard. Then tell me what happened, and mind you don't stretch or bend it. I want straight answers. Don't think that your injuries will keep me from getting them. Nessa stepped into the room. Clawman, she pleaded, you can't do this now. He's barely able to draw breath. This is a matter that could spell our doom, woman. Have you forgotten that Lanner is dead? Do you know who the acting sheriff is? Dresborn himself. She opened her mouth to speak, but the deep intelligence of her eyes withered to a girlish timidity as her husband pointed at the door. With a last look at Aidan, she shrank from the room. How is Lana dead? Aidan asked his father. It is currently under inquest. Now tell me. What happened to you? Aidan, discomposed even further, tried to collect himself and see the events again as they had unfolded. Beginning with the supposed Lieutenant Quinn, he pieced those two days together as best he could. It was disjointed, and some parts he covered without detail, like his humiliation before Dresborn. His father's sharp eyes bored into him at that point, and Aidan moved on quickly. When he finished, Clawman looked at him with judge-like detachment. There had been no emotion in his face, not even when Aidan told him of the cliff and the jump. Yes, he said, I think that is the truth. You have not the wits about you to put together such a complex lie, and it agrees in many details with that ramshackle storekeeper's account. Quinn wrote this to avenge himself on you. Aidan should have known there would be no word of approval or fatherly pride. Clawman was a man who never praised anyone directly. 
Sometimes he would use glowing words about someone, but never in front of them. Though Aidan was familiar with this cold reserve, the emptiness of his father's response still cut him. Clawman continued, partly talking to Aidan, partly airing his own thoughts. Dresborn, then, was blinded by Quinn's flattery on the day of his arrival. He declared you a fool in front of his entire staff and a few dozen townsmen, and while his words were still drifting to ground, he was shown to be the fool. He is rightly ashamed. But he can salvage his reputation if he shows that you were in with Quinn from the beginning. Emroy, that pimple-ravaged insolent upstart has claimed full credit for the plan you put together saying the reason he sent you ahead was because he knew you were familiar with the forest. It was a cleverly calculated detail, and this is where the next problem comes in. The men you outran have now begun to tell stories, saying that you moved through Nimless like something unnatural, that twigs don't break under your feet and thorns don't cut you. He cast his eye over the web of scratches covering Aidan's arms and face, and the torn feet still grooved with scabbed wounds. Some in this town are almost religiously superstitious of that forest. They say your trespassings there brought this tragedy on us, that we are being punished for your crime of entering forbidden regions. As a former king's forester, I care nothing for such idiocy but people are beginning to talk of a purge. With Lana around, no such nonsense would have spread. But the sheriff is gone, and the town now looks to the high houses for order, leaving Dresborn in a very powerful position. He is deliberately letting the talk grow wild. He even started a rumor of his own, suggesting the sheriff discovered your treachery, and you killed him for it, pushed him off the cliff, but Nulty was there. Why didn't he say what happened? He did. He said he made part of the jump, barely escaping with his life, as his injuries show, and fished you and the sheriff out of the water. I was there at the hearing. When he was finished, Dresborn said that such a story would require either a powerful swimmer or a powerful liar and that the fat storekeeper did not look like much of a swimmer. Nobody listened to your witness after that. It is starting to look like charges of treason and murder could be laid. I think you are too young for the gibbet, but I can't be sure that Dresborn feels the same, and he is now the law. I fear we will soon be in great danger. But I did nothing wrong, Aidan cried. I don't think Dresborn cares. He loves his pride more than his own daughter. You took that pride from him, and he wants it back. Wants it at any cost. Will you tell me about Calry now? Aidan asked. His father snapped out of his thoughtful manner. The storekeeper said he would be here later. He will be able to tell you. There are pressing matters that need my attention if I'm to keep our house from burning around our ears. He walked to the door, but then paused and turned, 
looking at his son lying broken on the straw pallet. His eyes softened just a little, and he opened his mouth as if to speak. Aidan looked at him, hopeful. They held each other's gaze, his father tottering on an edge. But then his jaw clamped, and he turned and strode from the room, while Aidan remained with heaving chest, staring at the empty doorway. The window-shaped frame of sunlight had travelled across his floor and was climbing the dried clay wall, reflecting, washing the little room in a deep red ochre. His father had left the house after their conversation, and his mother, despite her constant hovering about him, would answer none of his questions. When he heard Nolte arrive, he almost shouted for him. The portly man barreled into his room, and his eyes shone. Oh, bless me, boy. I never thought to see you awake again. Aidan smiled. Nulty carried his arm in a sling and walked with a heavy limp. What happened, Nulty? he asked. The last thing I can remember is throwing the hammer. Nobody will tell me anything except that I've been named a traitor and a lot more. Yes, I'm very much afraid this is true. We must hope, though, that the madness passes and reason prevails. But don't you worry about that now, Nulty said settling himself onto a low stool and stretching the injured leg before him. He looked at Aidan and began. Quinn managed to dive away from the hammer, but the wave from your landing almost toppled the canoe. I think you must have landed closer than you intended. I actually thought you clipped the edge. We saw him lose his balance and fall into the river. If it had been only him, it would have worked. But there was a second canoe. The second man pulled Quinn out of the water, and they caught up with Calry before she could untie herself. Aidan's colour drained. When we saw the second canoe, Lana followed you off the cliff. Whether it was the water or a rock, I don't know, but he did not survive— I think you survived by sheer luck. With the two of you either unconscious or dead, I thought it would be unwise to try the same, so I slipped and bumped my way along the crag until I found an overhang about halfway down. It was still the most awful jump. I pulled you both out of the water. Lana was dead. I thought you were dead too, but once the water drained from your lungs, you coughed and I began to hope. And here you are now. Nulty's soft eyes shimmered. You carried me back. Only until the first river, where the others had built a raft. Two men returned for Lanner's body. A sheriff should be buried in his town. I owe you my life, Aidan said. Nonsense. You and Lana both offered your lives for calorie, and you seem to have been given yours back again. You need to spend it wisely. I'll find her, Nulty. I will. Nulty was quiet, apparently considering whether or not to give voice to what was in his mind. Aidan, he said at length, there's something you need to know about the slave trade. He paused, collecting himself. 
The highest prices of all are paid on Ulnoi, the northernmost of the Lecran Isles, for young girls of noble descent. Easily a hundred times more than for any other strong young slave. To Quinn, Calorie was worth more than the rest of the farm put together. She was probably the reason for the attack. Dresbon was never quiet about his noble line, and it seems that the knowledge reached the ears of an informant who probably takes a cut. Nolte shuffled in his seat. His eyes lifted to Aidan's and darted away again, dropping to the floor, before he continued. On Ulnoi, every year, one family is required to sacrifice a daughter to the gods of the island. Substitute slaves are permitted if they are of high blood. A few weeks back, Dresborn stormed into my shop, demanding to know if I had anything to do with the disappearance of his prized ancestral scroll. When I asked him if what you had noticed was true, that Quinn had read the document, he admitted that the slaver had shown a strong interest in it. Quinn must have taken it to get his prize. Last week... Naughty closed his eyes and pressed them tight. Tell me, Aidan blurted, raising himself up in spite of the pain, peering into Naughty's face for just a glimmer of hope. Naughty dropped his head and spoke at the floor. Last week, a parcel arrived. It contained a note. Quinn said the sacrifice and burial would take place on the middle day of summer, and in order to give closure, he had sent a pouch containing her hair, which he shaved off before setting sail. According to the Lecran calendar, the first of Horth was a week ago, the middle day of summer. I checked my compendium of foreign cultures, and it seems that for once Quinn was telling the truth. That is the day when the rituals are known to take place. The ship would have made it to Ulnoi by then, with weeks to spare. Of what followed there can be no doubt. This morning, the pouch was buried in a grave beside her mother's. I am sorry, Aidan. I am so sorry. Aidan could say no more. He turned his head away and sobbed. Deaf to Nolte's quiet departure. When his eyes were dry, the sorrow deepened into a hollow, voiceless pain, beside which his physical wounds were pale things. The night brought no sleep. Exhaustion finally overwhelmed him at daybreak. During the afternoon, Thomas and Dara came to visit. He had to clear the gunge from his eyes before he could make them out. Dara burst into tears when she saw how his withered frame was trussed to splints and cut to shreds. Thomas was clearly struggling with a lump that interfered with his voice. Wordlessly, he placed a small leather case in Aidan's free hand. Aidan held it up and looked at the design on the cover. A little oak sapling growing beside a large toadstool. He realized what it was, and his eyes grew large. Thomas, he gasped. How did you get this? 
Don't you worry about that. You just hold on to it. There was no need for this last suggestion. Aidan was clutching it so that his nails were white. When he was able to peel his eyes away, he held it against his chest, his fingers as tight as the knots on a barge rope. When Thomas was able to speak more easily, he said, We knew it was all lies, all that filth about you working with Quinn and killing the sheriff. We heard Nolte's side of the story, and though Dresborn told us not to spread it at the farm, me and Dara know it's the truth. I knew you would, Aidan said quietly. Nolte says you ran with bare feet till they were bloody pulp, and then you jumped off a cliff, seven times higher than our bridge to try save her. None of that matters. I never should have left her alone at the clearing. Nolte told me to stay with her, and I didn't. If I hadn't gone to fetch my shoes, she'd still be here. Shoes. I put my shoes ahead of her. I failed her. You did not, Dara snapped. She fixed Aiden with a look of such fire that it quelled all argument. Her father was the one that failed her, and failed all of us, just because he didn't want people thinking you are cleverer than him. You gave everything you could for her. Calry always loved you, and now she knows how much you loved her back. We all know. She dropped onto the stool and covered her face. Dara's right, Thomas said, massaging his throat. You couldn't have given more to save her. What you tried was so terrifying that almost nobody believes it. But we do, said the little girl, lifting her head, big dark eyes blinking. And we are going to tell all the people we can, no matter what Dresborn says. Aidan offered a grateful smile, but he knew the weight of the nobleman's word. Facts would not be determined by truth, but by power. Without the sheriff, Dresborn had more of that than children could hope to oppose. There was something that Thomas wasn't saying, though. Aidan knew the way his friend looked when holding something back. What are you not telling me? he asked. Thomas glanced at Dara. He sighed and looked out the window. There's a lot of bad talk. Talk of burning your home and banishing your family. Even talk of hanging. Julia and our parents are getting worried for you. We've seen people snooping around here like crows. They talk about law and justice, but they are all the ones that used to slip around the corner when the sheriff came their way, like One-Eye Kenin and his two friends that were always in the stocks for thieving. Does my father know? Yes. It's because of him that we heard about it. He came to Badgerfields to tell Dresborn what was happening and ask for men to help keep the law. Dresborn said... Thomas trailed off. What did he say? Aidan asked. I... I don't want to repeat it. I want to know. Thomas looked out the window again before speaking. He said he would let nature do its worst, or something like that, to this low blood and his coward fool of a son. Your father looked like he was going to hit him. And Dresborn looked like Emroy that time he teased William's dog and then realized its rope was untied. But your father didn't hit. He just walked up to him and said something that was loud enough for us all to hear. 
Dara liked it so much she wrote it down. Julia helped us remember some of the difficult bits. Thomas didn't bother trying to read it and simply handed Aidan the page, but Aidan's free arm was too weak to hold it up for long enough. Dara, he asked, would you read it to me? The little girl rubbed her face and took the page with a shy smile. Her voice was small, but it trembled with strong emotion as she read. I'll respect that you were man enough to accuse me to my face, but if you think my son either a coward or a fool, then your wits are beyond the reach of the thrashing you deserve. The only man in this town to match my son for courage was Lanna, and the only folly Aidan knew was to love your daughter more than his own life. She handed the note back to Aidan and added, People on the farm have been talking about it ever since. Long after they had gone, Aidan pressed the note to his chest, remembering his father's words. When it came to honouring or complimenting, Clawman was usually silent while his wife spoke. Anything that even approached sentimentality usually locked his jaw like a trap. Aidan had begun to suspect that his father was simply embarrassed by such things. He also suspected that if he had been there, his father would not have spoken as he had. But there was no doubt in his mind that all of it had been sincere. The words had come indirectly, but they were his to treasure. Chapter 10 Aidan awoke to a strange sensation. It was almost as if he were floating, or rather, as if his bed were floating. He opened sleepy eyes and looked around. The dim, candlelit walls were drifting past him. There seemed to be someone walking in front of his bed, and he could hear breathing from behind him. As he glided into the chill darkness of the night, his head cleared. A sudden fear seized him, and he tensed. Easy, Aidan, his mother's voice soothed. You just lie still. He relaxed, recognizing the tall, nimble form of his father carrying the other end, walking with the long, steady strides of a forester. They lifted him up onto the fully loaded wagon and tied his pallet down. That's everything. It was his father's voice. Open the doors to the goose and chicken houses. I'll untether the cow and mules. Let's not have them dying in their pens when the water runs out. Rough as he could be with his own, Clawman often demonstrated the most peculiar tenderness with animals. In the darkness, Aidan waited, listening to the stamp of hooves, the creak of gates, the rustling of wind through the poplars. He thought back over the past days, how the jeering had grown louder, how the idlers had gathered. Emroy, who was apparently now hailed as a hero, was in the crowd always. There had been stones, and thieving, and then a spear wrapped in a burning cloth that sank into the thatch, angling down over Aidan's bed. Clawman had doused the flames and done all he could to protect his property, but the following day there had been three burning spears. This was it, then. They were leaving. It would probably be seen as flight, an admission of guilt, but what choice was left to them?
His parents returned, and he felt the wagon tip slightly one way, then the other, as they climbed onto the driver's bench. There was a gentle slap of reins, and the wagon lurched. You still haven't told us where we are going, he heard his mother say. Quite true, his father replied. There was a short silence. She tried again. I know you've been looking at the maps of Dinelin. Please tell me you aren't. I looked at many maps, and the only thing I'm going to tell you is to hold your tongue. Homesteads are approaching. Be quiet now. Din Elan. The name echoed in Aidan's mind like a warning. Once it had been sparsely inhabited, but no longer. Bold travellers attempted to pass through it from time to time, and most of them disappeared. The few that returned told of creatures attacking their horses in the night, of trees that moved without wind, of hair-raising calls echoing down the ravines, deep, earth-shaking calls hollow and savage, that had caused them to huddle round their fires and pray for daylight. Dinelan was an untamed place with a murky history. The only part of it that was charted was the wild hinterland west of the mountain spine. Beyond the mountains was a region said to be a turmoil of rocky crests and deep ravines, choked with impenetrable forest. Aidan ran his thoughts back over the rumours that had been peppering country talk. There had always been bad talk of Dinelan, but it had been growing worse. And strange. Many travellers had seen things over the mountains. Unusual storms, weird and sometimes impossible shapes in the heavy clouds. It was always from a great distance, so nobody was certain unless deep into the ale. Many scoffed at the stories, but Aidan was unable to dismiss them after what he had once seen. Though he had never told the adults, the descriptions matched the storm he had witnessed earlier in the year over Nimlus. Nobody had paid it much attention, for rough weather was common in the north, but he had watched, and just for an instant he had glimpsed the impossible. The forest had been different since then. Though he was never able to say exactly what, something had changed, something that thrilled and frightened him at once. That was after only one of these storms. Dinelan had seen many. But whether or not anyone believed the new rumours, the fact remained that those who travelled or explored near those mountains seldom returned. The sensible explanations involved wolves, bears, and the wildness of the land itself, but Aidan wondered if there was more. While he could understand his mother's alarm... He knew his father was no fool. Clawman would never take that road, but like any wise traveller or tracker, he was carrying in his mind a far bigger map than the actual journey required. Keeping his plans from everyone else was just his way. As Aidan stared up into the fields of stars above him, he began for the first time in weeks to turn his thoughts forward. As children... They had talked often of journeying and exploring the outer reaches of Therna and beyond. They had imagined and drawn pictures of the places they most wanted to see, the great fortress of Tullinro, Castith and its famous academy, treacherous Kultum, lost in mystery, Mount Lawfen. 
Calorie had always wanted. The thought fell to ground, like a swallow dying in mid-flight. The stars blurred and wouldn't clear again. Could she see him? For a long time he stared up, remembering, aching. The track wound down the hill, skirted the palisaded town centre, and joined the main road. Though it hurt, Aidan propped himself on his elbows to catch a last look at the village. It slept quietly in the pre-dawn, wrapped in blankets of mist that drifted continuously down the valley. Peaceful. Perfect. How could a place so good, with people so neighborly, have turned on him so unfairly? Not long ago, these same people had ridden with him through the night to defend Badgerfields, had followed his trail through the dreaded forest to rescue their neighbors. Some had even run with him in pursuit of Quinn. As betrayed and angry as he felt, he knew the feelings were short-sighted. He had often seen sheep turned, panicked, and led around by one bleating troublemaker. And Dresborn knew how to bleat. He would have been convincing in the meetings. The town hall would have seethed in response to his speeches. As Aidan looked back at the familiar shapes of thatch roofs rising over the outer wall, his feelings were confused. But one wish stood out, a wish that things had been different, that Quinn had never found them, that life could have remained unchanged, and that they might have gone on living here all their years. He had often pondered death. Tragic accidents, illness, and sometimes outlaws had occasionally meant loss of the deepest kind to someone in the town. But he had never before felt the stab of grief in his own heart. He had not thought its blade could sink so deep or sting so fiercely. Yet he chose not to hide from the memories that appeared before him. His eyes drifted to the side of the road and he began to notice things. There was a young maple tree they had climbed, where Thomas had got stuck and where they had spent the whole summer day coaxing him back down. A little ways on from that was a thick hedge concealing a muddy brook, perfect for mud pies, which had been launched at a passing wagon, where little Dara had yelled that Aidan was standing in her new-made pies. Her shrill voice had carried to the road, and as there was only one Aidan in town, punishment had found them swiftly. A little wooded nook was just coming into view. It was a favorite spot where chestnut trees abounded. They had often made little fires to roast the nuts, and once the little fire got away and burned down most of the hill. This time it was the smoky clothes and singed eyebrows that gave them away, for they had fought bravely to beat out the flames. Aidan smiled at the memory, and it was like fresh water, the first drops just beginning to wash away some of the salt. And it felt good. It felt right. For nothing grows in salt. The wagon arrived at Crossroads just after daybreak. It was a large town built around the famous Compass Point Junction in the middle, the town owed its affluence to the fact that it was the first Thirnish settlement reached by all Arunian trade caravans. The result was a large and very busy market, 
visited from all the surrounding countryside. It was here that Aidan and Calry had learned the manners and accents of various towns and regions. The wheels rocked to a standstill outside a general supply store, where Clawman bought a few bags of grain and vegetables, as well as fresh loaves and cheese for breakfast. Once the purchases were done, he set the wagon rolling again, but to Aidan's surprise took the South Midland Road. Tullinrow is west, he heard his mother say. Why aren't we taking the West Road? Because, my Nessa, we are not going to Tullinrow. But, but where then? Surely you can tell me now. Clawman was silent for some time. Casteth, he said at last. Casteth? Nobody travels that road alone, and even if we did link up with a caravan, the journey would take six weeks. Ten weeks. We are going to take the inland track that passes between Lake Valundal and the Danielan Mountains. Aidan's breath caught. Between? Nessa bolted upright. But... Danielan! And that will lead us right past Kultum. I can read a map. It was partly true, and it was a tender point. Clawman could interpret the lines and shapes, and he knew the names of places by memory, but he could not read the text. Clawman, please, we can't go there. It's the one place in all of Therna that nobody dares approach anymore. It's not just tavern tales. You know I have no ear for those. It was historians. One party after another disappeared. I would know. It was one of my father's chief interests, and I read all the reports. Nessa was a scholarly woman from a scholarly family, something for which Clawman never revealed a hint of respect. Aidan knew well what would happen now. Whenever his mother used any kind of intellectual background to win an argument, his father would do precisely the opposite of what she advised. He did just that, in the worst way. Instead of cutting her down with some retort, he laughed. Whether it was forced or not, Hayden could never tell. He'd heard it so often. His father would now be as set on his course as if his pride depended on it, and perhaps it did. Hayden raised himself on his elbows and looked out to the southwest, though Kultum would still be hundreds of miles distant. For a long time he held himself up. Everyone had heard of the place. It was to Dunelan what fangs were to a viper. His heart began to pound. What was in his father's mind? How could he set a course in that direction? Wouldn't it be safer to join a caravan and go south? Aidan ventured. I'm not going to be much use in an emergency. His father turned and regarded him in silence before replying, Anyone who follows us would look on the west road first, and then on the south. If we take the inland track, nobody would follow us even if they knew where we had gone. Nessa was silent for a time before voicing the obvious question. Why would they want to follow us? she asked. 
There were no formal charges. Legally, we are not fugitives. Aidan sensed the caution in her voice. Clawman laughed. My, but you are naive, dear. The law in the Misty Vales now lives in Badger's Hall, where it nurses a hatred for us that you wouldn't have read about in your books. Innocence and guilt don't come into it. In spite of what you think, we will probably be condemned for fleeing so-called justice, and there's a good chance the law will come after us. But I'm more concerned about thieves smelling easy pickings. He tapped his velvet money pouch. After a while he began humming to himself, and Aidan craned his neck around to see the bulging pouch that clinked as Clawman patted it from time to time. Aidan had been wondering about the unusual brightness of his father's mood. No angry outbursts, no blaming, not even the silent brooding. Glomon almost seemed positive about their flight, as if he were looking forward to a future that overshadowed all they had left behind. That swollen money bag, no doubt, contributed much to this optimism. Neither Aidan nor his mother would have guessed that they were so wealthy. It was a blessing to know they would not be tempted to steal to feed themselves along the way. During the afternoon, they reached a junction. To the left was an overgrown suggestion of a track that led to Denelan. Undisturbed dust, a mat of settled leaves, and the giant networks of orb spiders showed how long the road had rested unused. Clawman, after inspecting the ground, grumbled to himself and climbed back into the wagon. He continued along the well-traveled road. After two miles he turned off to the left and ploughed through long grass for some time before stopping and walking back. When he returned, Nessa asked where he'd gone. Wasn't it obvious? He threw a look of haughty surprise at her, one of those so-you-don't-know-everything looks. I went to cover the tracks. I don't expect they would follow us this far after seeing we were headed south. But if they do, I don't want them seeing where we turned off. If we had taken the Denalan split through all those webs and weaves and dust, it would have been clear as writing a note. Aidan was surprised. His father really was serious about pursuit. Clawman drove them through the grass and under some large leafy boughs, until they broke out onto the disused inland track. They camped in the open for five nights before they reached a burned-out stone house. From there the track became very wild. It had clearly remained unused for many years. In sections, Clawman was obliged to take detours to negotiate obstructions and, more than once, to use his axe on trees fallen across the way. As the distance lessened, the mountains lost their purple veil. They began to reveal green slopes that would turn gold in the afternoons, and dark, rocky faces higher and sterner than Aidan's imagination had ever painted them. For a little over two weeks, they traveled in complete isolation. Aidan's back and limbs began to heal somewhat. He could now sit up, but he could not walk. 
his legs simply refused to bear the weight. At one of the camps, Clawman cut some branches from an elderberry tree and began shaping crutches while Nessa boiled a little dark berries into a jam. Aidan sat and watched, too weak to be of any help. His attention was drawn by the bright, chinking call of a tiny wagtail that strutted fearlessly through the camp, hunting for disturbed insects. He envied the little bird's independence. When the crutches were shaped and the armpit rests padded with cloth, Aidan was able to take his full weight on them, swing his legs forward, and stand with his feet together while planting the crutches ahead for another stride. It was a painful process. Armpits, back, legs, they all ached. When he fell, which happened often, there was no laughter. He practiced for a few days, but it was hardly worth the effort. He spent most of his time near the campfire, miserable, lost within himself. It was Clawman who spotted the smoke, a thin, blue, wispy trail that pointed down into a birch grove a few miles away. When they came near, he stopped the wagon. Wait here, he said, gripping a heavy staff and heading into the trees. A little while later he returned, wearing an amused expression. Now this, he said, I did not expect. Chapter 11 They stopped the wagon outside what Aidan first took for an enormous log and panel cottage, only that it appeared to have been built more like an inn. Just outside the front door stood a middle-aged couple. The man was tall and broad of shoulder, with workmanlike hands, an ox's head and a mouse's expression. It was the woman who dominated the porch. Her short but solid frame was crowned with a wild eruption of yellow curling hair, pulled back from eyebrows that looked to have been raised all her life, demanding from the world just what it thought it was doing. Not even the smile could conceal that this was a woman who knew how to take charge. Welcome, welcome, she cried, clapping her hands in front of her. You are our first guests these past four years. Oh, this is so exciting. I am Harriet, and this is Bor. We have so much to ask and so much to tell. This is going to be wonderful. Oh, look at your wagon, packed to bursting. You must have been on the road a long time. Oh, my. What is this? What happened to you? Aidan had managed to slide himself out of the wagon and was making his way over on his crutches. A long story, Clawman answered for him. Well, there will be plenty of time for stories later, but I think now we should get you settled in, yes? Clawman nodded. After a silent handshake, Bohr hefted the two large sacks that Clawman handed down to him. He led the group through the parlor and down a passage where he opened a door and led them in. He frowned. His wife shrieked. The guests stared around in astonishment. Cockroaches rushed from them like a receding tide, flowing over a few dead rats and frogs. Grey drapes that had once been spider webs were now transformed by dust into useless sagging folds that caught nothing more than lizard droppings and expired moths. 
The floorboards were caked in a fungus so well established that it might have been mistaken for moss, were it not for the overpowering smell of rot. It was as if they had stepped into the bowels of a giant mushroom. Oh, dear, Harriet said. Oh, doubly dear. Oh, mother of a... Sorry, pardon me. It's just that... Oh, 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 my... It turned out that the rooms had been left in perfect order three years back, and Harriet had expected, somewhat foolishly, to find them a little dusty, perhaps, but no worse than that. A hole in the roof explained much of the destruction. Harriet showered her guests with apologies, and found two rooms that were in a less shocking condition. She spent the remainder of the afternoon apologizing and scrubbing beside Nessa, who would not be kept from sharing the burden of cleaning. The men unloaded in silence, while Aidan got the kitchen fire going and was given a chicken to pluck. By the time he was finished, it looked like he had made a fairly complete transfer of feathers from the chicken to himself. Leaving Harriet to finish the scrubbing, Nessa chopped carrots, celery, and potatoes, and tipped them, with a sprinkling of salt and a sprig of rosemary, into the pot to keep the chicken company. The result was a simple yet toothsome pot roast. Bohr nodded in surprise and appreciation when the meal was served that evening. Harriet mumbled something about the meat being underdone. After the meal, that was never without the buzz of conversation, for the women had become fast friends, Clawman accepted Harriet's invitation to remain a few weeks, at least until Aidan's injuries had healed. He offered to pay for accommodation, but she reminded him that money had no value this far from town, so it was agreed that everything would be shared, both labor and food. Is the rooster going to sleep in the house? Clawman asked, as everyone retired for the night. Oh, don't you worry about him, Harriet laughed. If there's one thing I know, it's how to manage my livestock. He's no early riser, that one. Laziest chicken in Therna. We call him Snore. Snore angled his head and gave Clawman a challenging stare. Then, clucking confidently, made his way with great dignity to the parlour window, where he hopped up onto the backrest of a deeply scratched chair and buried himself in his feathers for the evening. Clawman looked sceptical. Morning had not even begun to intrude on the night's rain when there was a feathery disturbance at the same window. A soft whooshing of wings and scraping of claws suggested a few stretches. Then the starry silhouette revealed the shape of a beak and a crown as the king of the morning threw his head back and roared. Barely stifled curses poured from under the door to Clawman and Nessa's room as the panelled building shook with the thunder of Bohr and Harriet, powerful sleepers both, awoke well after sunrise and were surprised by their guests' subdued and somewhat grumpy manner at breakfast. Coloman made his feelings for Snore quite plain. Harriet insisted that he was exaggerating and that it could not be that bad and that, if he chose to, he could ignore whatever clucking had woken him. Coloman dropped his spoon and looked at her without expression and then said that either his family or the rooster would be leaving immediately. 
Snor was given a hock on the far side of the buildings. That day, the men worked well together, setting traps and making repairs to goat pens, chicken coops, and the long-neglected roof of the inn. Their language was the silent understanding of getting the job done. When words were used, they were few and to the point, like, Mallet, next beam, or let me have a go. Aidan found this quiet camaraderie both surprising and amusing. Bohr was an experienced carpenter with an impressive tool shed, though it was no tidier than the house. He had got many of the inn's logs and panels himself. When Aidan remarked on the enormity of the task, Bohr merely shrugged his heavy shoulders. To follow orders and plod through chores appeared to be his complete expectation of life. At dinner, Aidan fully understood why Harriet had called the previous night's meal undercooked. A charred crust lined almost everything on his plate. Boar's look of delighted surprise was gone, and Harriet wore one of satisfaction. This, apparently, was how it was done. It made no difference what herbs were used. All her meals tasted like soot. Nobody dared comment. Aidan learned to pinch his eyes shut and swallow hard. He'd always thought that when people said someone could burn water, it was just an expression. Harriet, however, had apparently mastered that dark art, and could burn anything from water to wooden spoons and whatever else that came in contact with her pots. On the second morning, Harriet bustled out onto the porch where Aidan was sitting at a small table, writing. What are you writing? she asked without preamble. Here, let me see that. She pulled the page out from under his hand. Aidan was surprised at her abrupt approach, but was not entirely upset. After all, what was a writer without a readership? The Adventures of the Mountain Warrior, she read. She was silent for a while, letting her eyes rove over the lines. When she finished, she put the page on the table and sat down. Aidan waited, breathless. Just as I feared, she said, all empty boyish silliness. You have obviously let your imagination go wild with weeds like a garden full of... weeds. Imagination is not good for you, just like weeds aren't. So I'm going to help you dig out the weeds and put yourself in order. Aidan frowned, not sure he liked where this was going. I happen to know, she resumed, that someone your age has no understanding of such notions. She pointed at the page. Love, tragedy and revenge, she said, shaking her head. These are exactly the kinds of ideas that I will not allow in your sweet little head, my boy. What could you possibly know of such things? Aidan gathered himself to answer, but she was too quick for him. You see, nothing. One thing you'll soon discover is that I know how to read people. I'm glad that you're writing. It shows some refinement. But I cannot allow you to ruin yourself with such empty ideas. And violent. Really, Aidan, this is too horrible for someone so young and delicate. I can tell by your injuries that you are made soft. It's time for you to accept that. 
I'd like to see you writing valuable thoughts from now on. Recipes, garden arrangements, even plans for my new shed. But I... I don't want to. Harriet wasn't listening. Something she had apparently developed into a fine art. She was on her feet, pacing, her finger tapping against her pursed lips like someone planning a large-scale renovation, which was exactly what she was doing, and Aidan was the object of this renovation. We'll begin by putting you in charge of household chores. Sewing was the thing that gave the finishing touches to my refinement, but needles can be dangerous. Maybe we'll keep that back until I've taught you responsibility and foresight. Aidan looked out onto the empty road and wondered how those qualities had contributed when Harriet and her husband had built an inn on a dying route. Back down that road were Aidan's friends, who knew him for what he was, who wouldn't try to change him into something else. He reached up and felt the little leather case that now hung from a cord around his neck. Though its touch gave him comfort, it had been a mistake to draw attention to it. What's that? Harriet said. Something changed in Aidan's face. With both hands he gripped the little case and pressed it to him. Harriet narrowed her eyes, but stayed where she was. Her glare dropped to the treasure Aidan held, and he clasped it tighter. This is a bad start for you. A very bad start. I can see there's a lot we are going to have to mend here. I may not be a mother, but if there's one thing I know, it's how to make even the worst person into someone decent. I've done so for my husband, and I can do so with any boy. She threw her head back and glowed with defiant pride. Aidan recognized the ambition in her eyes. She was not a mother, but she certainly wanted the job. Though he dreaded what was coming, he did not have the strength to oppose it, and Harriet was strutting like a boxer. As soon as he was alone, he hobbled off the porch, down the stairs, dug a few handfuls of soil from beneath them, slipped the leather case into the hole, and covered it again. He had a suspicion that Harriet just might root through his things when he took a bath. If she found that case, if she looked inside... That night he spoke to his father about Harriet's threat to reform him, but Clawman merely laughed and did nothing, perhaps thinking of his dinner and hoping Aidan would be made to cook. Then Aidan spoke to his mother. She listened attentively, promised to stand up for him, and quailed under Harriet's domineering presence. From the next morning, Harriet took charge of Aidan as a personal project mending him with constant criticism and ensuring that he was never without some self-improving duty. He was given vegetables to cut, drapes to clean, furniture to polish, and floors to scrub. He couldn't help but notice that the dirt he removed was thick and old. Harriet was only ever satisfied with Aidan when she had just corrected him— Anything that came of his own initiative, or for which he showed any kind of eagerness, was a threat that had to be weeded out. He was not allowed to be one of the men. He was constantly pulled from their company and sent elsewhere on some domestic errand.
his opinions on anything were found to be wrong. Harriet pointed this out and generously supplied her opinions for replacement. It quickly became evident that she knew all there was to know of anything worth knowing. Whenever she received new information, she would secretly digest it with a bored expression that said, Old news. On some topics, the breadth of her opinions made up for the scarcity of detail. Sailing, for example, was dealt with in one grand sweep. All sailors are fools, because what happens when their boats sink? If we were meant to breathe in water, we would have fins. This was followed by a patient smile and a lift of the chin that signified, Betch hadn't thought of that. Laughter would have been dangerous, and Aidan just didn't care enough to argue. Yet, silly as the woman could be, it was clear that she was proving herself a good companion for his timid mother. So he withdrew into a little shell and let the tide roll him around. But the waters were only just beginning to stir. No matter what he was doing, Harriet found the time to supervise him, to point out the spots he had missed or scoop out carrots that had been sliced too thickly. She monitored everything he did, evaluated him constantly. The worst was her encouragement. Well, Aidan, she would say, you worked well today and showed a much better attitude. I was really pleased to see you pulled yourself together and did a better job of sweeping the porch. I think we are improving you well. Tomorrow, I want to see you doing even better than today. And I want to see you smiling as you work. It's not just the results, but the attitude too. Smiling is the key. Sometimes humming a song. I'll be watching and listening for those tomorrow. But you are doing very well, very well indeed. This was harder to bear than her anger. She was really just exulting in her domination, securing her rule over him. Hours began to feel like months. Aidan came very close several times to smashing the broom across the table. This house was turning into a jail. Within a matter of days, he found himself pressed under a new social order that had all the weight of the law. If he hobbled out for a walk, he would be confronted on his return with a tapping foot and a demand to know what he had been doing. But he had to depend on Harriet, too, for the medicinal herbs her garden provided, the massaging of his stiff and shrunken legs, in which she showed more skill than his mother. His food, his bed, and, at times, the arm that helped to steady his tottering steps. She was an attentive nurse. Having to lean on her arm undermined his right to complain, or rather, his urge to scream. He wished he did not have to depend on her so, but what choice did he have? Gratitude and suffocation held each other in place, but by the end of the first week it was the latter that was dominating. Harriet told everyone with obvious triumph that her efforts were turning this delinquent into a more polished and respectable boy. Aidan was convinced she was trying to turn him into a girl. She seemed to have done the same with her husband, who, big as he was, 
quailed under her stare, and took orders as meekly as a chambermaid. Aidan found some comfort in being able to slice a few earthworms into the stew on occasion. Any spiders he found got dangled on Harriet's chair. And where else to put that smelly dead frog than in one of her spare boots? By listening to Harriet's instructions and then disregarding them and doing whatever he felt like, he actually learned to cook quite well. Harriet generally shook her head in disapproval when she tasted his dishes. Underdone, was the usual judgment, along with, Not enough salt, and badly sliced. Then she would down her portion and help herself to more. During the second week, Aidan arrived late at the dinner table, and a fairly typical scene played out. What did I tell you about being late? Harriet snapped. I was getting my boots on. Couldn't find the one. Well, you should have put it where it could be found, now shouldn't you? Aidan grumbled something about putting them on the sill to dry and one falling out, but he said it too softly. He didn't really want to be explaining himself to her. Excuse me? Don't you mumble at me, my boy. Nessa and Boar cringed. Clawman picked up his bowl and headed out to the porch, something he had taken to doing in such moments. When his temper was roused, he could be terrifying, but walking out on conversations was another thing he was practised at. He showed particular contempt for these petty squabbles. Harriet followed his back with her eyes before returning to Aidan. He was staring at his bowl, trying to hide within himself to find some quiet corner where his presence would not be offensive. He just wanted to be left in peace. Are you sulking? Harriet demanded. No. Look at me when you speak to me. Aidan looked at her and sighed. Did you sigh? Ha! So you are sulking. Gave yourself away, didn't you? Don't you turn your head away. She waited for Aidan to turn back. Sighing is the first mark of sulking. And if there's one thing I know, it's how to put an end to sulking. Now you snap out of this and fix a smile on your face this instant, or you'll be scrubbing floors till midnight. He could no sooner have smiled than sprouted feathers and begun laying eggs. So he scrubbed. He began doing things poorly. Why, he was not entirely sure. Perhaps it was a desperate attempt to keep part of himself from Harriet's conquest of him. It was this very imprisonment that sparked something in Aidan. In a dusty part of his mind, he began to remember that he was not a mule, a drudge without mind or soul. He began to realize that he missed the freedom of wandering through the trees, of racing the wind, and laughing in the exhilaration of a rabbit chase, of searching the hills for mysteries and listening to the forest for secrets, of climbing so high that he was afraid, and then casting his eye over a world far wider than it had appeared from the ground, of wondering what lay in a direction, and then setting out to discover, of pursuing a course that was his own. So one afternoon, while Harriet was burning something for supper, he slipped out and asked his father if he could join the men, then hobbled out into the yard 
where he worked beside them on the jobs that his crutches permitted, getting himself as dirty as he knew how. When Harriet found him, she threw a mighty tantrum and ordered him to clean himself and get back into the house where he belonged. Aidan's reply was strategic. My father said I could work with him. Harriet glared at Clawman, who looked back without expression. Neither said anything, and she stormed back into the house. Aidan released a small sigh, wondering how long the respite would last. When he turned, he saw his father was looking at him with a hint of amusement. As soon as the work was done, Aidan limped out into the trees in search of the solitude he had so desperately craved. It was difficult going. His left leg had healed enough to take weight, but his right was considerably weaker. He moved through the woods, and his thoughts soon began to tug in other directions. After covering a very painful mile, he found an isolated spot where the birch trees grew thickly, and he could sit and let his mind loose without fear of interruption. He had kept his feelings deep, guarding them well from Harriet's prying. Now they tumbled out. Sadness over the events in the Misty Vales. The invasion and destruction of peaceful lives had gradually been giving way to anger. A white-hot anger that rose in him now and caused his breath to come quickly. For mere profit, men had brought death to the gentlest and kindest person he had ever known. He would repay Quinn with a fitting violence, a fitting justice, and not just Quinn. Lekrow, the nation that had been no more than a rumoured threat, had entered his life and torn half his heart from him. Lekrow had become his personal enemy. He realised how much he hated tyrants, the strong who stood on the weak. If he had only been stronger. It was a thought that had returned to him often in the past weeks. He needed to learn to face up to men. He needed to grow strong, stronger than the tyrants that marched over his life. Quinn, Dresborn, and even the one man who had begun it all. Then, once he was able to keep his feet before even the strongest of men, he would avenge her. After that, he would avenge every person that had fallen to that hateful nation. Before he died, Lekrow would know the sting of its own whips, its slave ships would find the bottom of the sea, and chains would be turned on their masters. If no army was bound that way, he would raise it. There was no solace to be found in hoping these traders would avoid him. That they would pick another place, another town. That was no better than wishing tragedy on others. There was a time when the hunter had to be hunted. One day. Suddenly the thoughts were no longer idle ideas. The images seared, fixed themselves in his mind. It was not the purpose he'd expected to hold, perhaps not the purpose his parents or even Callery would have wanted, 
But as he pictured burning ships and slavers hurled into their own dungeons, there was a fierce stirring in him, a hunger that demanded action. No, she probably wouldn't have wanted this. But every time he thought of her, and he knew it would happen often in the years to come, for how could he ever forget her? Every time he would see those flames, and he would let them grow. It had to start now. Fighting against pain, he got to his feet and worked his way up to the top of a knoll that faced west, that faced Lekrau. He dropped both crutches and grimaced as he took weight on the shrunken right leg. Then, throwing his fist in the air, he let out a scream of defiance that tumbled through the valley and echoed between the rugged crags. It might have seemed a small thing, the raging of a mere boy. Perhaps even something a man might have laughed at. Yet there was flint behind it, flint that could one day set whole nations alight. The echoes faded. But in Aidan's head they seemed to grow louder, building, growling, sparking. When he returned to the house, his step was firmer, his face grimmer, and something flashed in his glance. He did not work in the house again, and instead remained with his father and Bore. Harriet voiced her growing concerns— that he was losing all the ground he had gained, that he had slipped down the ladder again into reckless, filthy, and shameful ways. Aidan began to realize that there were some people whose good opinion he actually didn't want. From then on, things changed quickly. He brushed from his mind the dull passivity that had gathered there. He ate well and started to exercise his legs, overdoing it at first and causing enough pain to rob himself of sleep for two nights. But when he found a bearable routine of flexing, stretching, and slow walking, he began to build the muscles without damaging them. His right leg still hurt, but he was at least able to walk again. He took full advantage of this. By the end of his first month at this lost inn, he was disappearing for hours at a time into the woods. There had always been a wildness to him, but it was like it had been uncaged and now grew by the day, despite Harriet's frantic efforts to tame him. Eventually, she abandoned her project and regarded him with surly disappointment. As his evenings were freed, Aidan found he had the time to resume his lessons with his mother. They read to each other from the store of books Nessa had managed to slip in between her belongings while packing. When the others retired, the two of them would translate stories and jokes into Arunian, talking and laughing late into the night. Instead of making him tired, Aidan found these times reviving his mind in the same way exercise was reviving his body. As Aidan's strength increased, so did his father's restlessness. One afternoon, Aidan spotted a column of grey smoke a few days' journey back along the trail they had taken. When he reported it, Clawman dashed from the house and ran to the nearest vantage point. 
he returned, pale and tense. Time is up, he said. We leave at first light tomorrow. Chapter 12 The women were seated at the table when Clawman, followed by Bor and Aidan, rushed into the house. Clawman told his wife in clipped terms what he had seen, and informed her that they were to begin packing immediately. But who is it? Nessa asked. No way to tell at this distance, and we are not waiting to find out. It's been half a year since that slaver tragedy, and her faces haven't been seen in the Misty Vales for at least two months. Do you think they are still after Aiden? Clawman's expression shifted, and his eyes turned back to her, as if he had been thinking something very different. Aiden? Yes, of course. Who else? Aidan felt his skin turn cold at the idea of being dragged before a court with Tresborne as judge. Is it more of that hullabaloo from the Misty Vales? Harriet asked, in the way a nanny speaks to a tail-spinning child. Clawman raised an eyebrow at her tone. He replied without expression, It seems they aren't satisfied with our exile. There was a heavy silence in the room. Casteth, you say? asked Harriet. Clawman nodded. Bor and I have been talking. We've had enough of being marooned out here on our own. This was supposed to become a busy road. Instead, it's been forgotten. So, we would like to come along and start over at Casteth, too. Aidan muttered something rude under his breath. We will take the Danielan Road, east of Volundal, said Clawman. Through the territory of Kultum. Nessa paled, and Aidan shuddered as they now remembered the original plan. Then we cannot join you, said Bor, whose eyes were large with disbelief. How could you even consider that route? Haven't you heard what— Oh, hush, said Harriet. The quantity of stories only proves that they are all nonsense. That's always the way it works. The more stories there are about something, the more certain you can be that none of them are true. Or haven't you learned that yet? It was the nanny tone. Boy dropped his head. Everyone else shifted uncomfortably. Anyway, Harriet continued, that is the shortest route from here, and I don't want to be travelling when the baby gets bigger. She patted her belly and winked. Realization didn't come immediately, but when it struck, Nessa leapt off her chair and threw her arms around her friend. The men exchanged a silent handshake. Aidan slipped away, and, after checking that nobody was watching, retrieved the little leather case from under the stairs, hung it around his neck, and tucked it under his shirt. Bor and Harriet had a large wagon drawn by a ponderous cart horse. They had to pack and unpack several times through the night before they were satisfied. Finally, Bor strapped a few chicken coops on top and tied a dozen goats to the back while the rest were freed. Clawman groaned as Snore flapped his way up the luggage and settled himself bravely beside the hens. Bor and Harriet lingered a while as the other wagon moved off. When they joined the trail, their faces reflected the thoughtfulness of leaving home. 
Clawman doubled back to cover the tracks and to pin a note to the door. Aidan had watched over his mother's shoulder as she wrote what her husband dictated. The note invited visitors to make themselves at home until the owners returned from a two-week-long gold scouting trail. Aidan hoped that one of the visitors would be literate. Anyone would wait a long time for news of gold. For ten days, they travelled east, Clawman pushing for speed, seething at every obstruction, peering back from the top of every rise. The terrain grew more rugged and the land wilder by the league. Often in the night, Aidan woke to the noises of nearby sniffing and the leafy crunch of padded feet. Once, the camp erupted into a furious squawking and flapping, the yells of the men and screams of the women were enough to frighten away whatever had applied its very sharp teeth to the hutches, as deep grooves told in the morning light. The next evening, there was another attack. This time the growls were deeper, and the wagon shook with some violence, but by the time the men approached with flaming branches, there was no predator to be seen. It was only when the sun rose that they discovered some of the goats were missing. Clawman looked for a long time at the wide three-toed prints in the sand, without being able to recognize them. After that, they kept the fire burning high all night. Whoever was on watch had the responsibility of adding wood whenever the flames dipped. They lost another four goats when Harriet dozed off. Near the end of the second week, they reached a split. Left led to a pass in the mountains, and eventually to Rasmon. It was the old Arunian road, forgotten and overgrown. They turned right onto what was little more than a vague suggestion of wagon ruts. Mostly, they were not sure if what they had was the road or a deer track. Times beyond count, they had to double back and find detours around gullies or thickets the wagons couldn't cross. Twice they came upon stone bridges spanning deep ravines. Clawman walked up onto the first of them alone, while the others watched in tense silence. Aidan could see his father stepping across holes where rocks had lost their grip and plunged into the churning river below. When Clawman came back, he shook his head and opted for a long detour. The second bridge was in better condition, though it spanned a far more terrifying gorge. This time the detour would have been too long. They led the wagons over, one at a time, and all released deep sighs of relief when the last wheels rattled off the stones onto the grassy earth. At the foot of the bridge, Aidan found a stone pillar engraved with symbols he had never seen. He scraped away some of the lichen and peered at this remnant from a distant time. The edges of the script were weather-scarred in a way that told of great age, but the symbols themselves told nothing until he began to look more carefully. Some of the shapes were almost like pictures. Waves, fire, the moon, a bird and he began to wonder if it might actually be possible to understand something of the meaning. He pored over it, full of imaginings, until voices called him back to the present, 
and to the receding wagons. More and more regularly, Clawman sent Aiden ahead to scout and find where the dwindling marks reappeared. When Harriet objected to a child being given that responsibility, Clawman's reply was terse. I taught him. He can manage. Then he turned to Aiden and whispered, If there's one thing she knows, it's not to be found out here. Aiden laughed, and his heart swelled. It was a sudden togetherness, a sharing, and he knew how much he had missed working beside his father. Clawman was often distant, even when near, but in that little shared secret, that moment of understanding, the magic of a father and son bond was rekindled. From then on, Aidan scouted with a will, cutting across any terrain to reach a vantage point from where he could discover the best route. He was now able to walk without pain, and could even jog for short stretches. Hills grew around them as they approached the constantly rising Denilan Mountains. When they reached the foothills, the colossal peaks filled a great portion of the eastern sky. Mornings were now cloaked in a dreamy shade, and dew remained long on the grass until the sun was able to clear the spine of the range. The trail rose and fell steeply over the many valleys, and sometimes wound along the contours of great mountain slopes that pushed out between the hills. Aidan often found his eyes drifting from the road, drawn up the grassy banks that rose higher and steeper, until, at last, when it looked as if they would fall back on themselves, they gave way to sheer walls of grey rock. The precipices were stern in aspect, and bewildering in size when they could be seen, for they were lost more often than not in mist and cloud. It was the first time he had been at the foot of one of the great mountains, and he knew now why there were so many poems about them. He also knew, without bothering to attempt it, that it would never be possible to squeeze them into words. The shapes of the peaks, oddly enough, were more obscure from close. They hardly resembled the names they must have been given from a distance. The Red Fist, the Bullhorns, the Chariot, the Three Sisters. The horns looked as blunt as the fist from here, and the sisters were nothing alike. This, however, did not take away from their impressiveness, as each day they soared higher and higher over the approaching travellers. The wagons splashed and clattered over rocky beds of young, shallow rivers, and creaked up the ridges where the tough stalks of dense tussock grass sighed in the wind. From here, they were finally able to look out over the great expanse of Lake Volundal, a body of water so vast as to be more of an inland sea. Aidan had often heard of the great lake. Many myths and adventures surrounded it, some of which played out in his imagination as his eyes took in the great reaches, like the fleet of fishing boats that sank in a storm and were said to now sail beneath the water searching for the harbour. When the lake was still, it was a giant mirror, cracked only by the occasional bleaching of fish or a busy fleet of ducks. But when the wind was restless, the choppy water looked dark and deep and full of mysteries. The mood of the party grew heavier as they progressed. 
Clawman's eyes cast about in all directions, not just behind. They were now in the heart of Denelan, the territory of bears and wolves said to be unusually bold and vicious, and soon they would enter the lost realm of Kultum. Travelling so near to the peaks, they often woke in thick mist that would slip off the rim of the mountains and glide down through the valleys during the night, swallowing the slopes and woods in a murk of quiet secrecy. It made travel far more dangerous. Aiden never ventured far ahead in these conditions for fear of getting lost in the vastness of dim, shrouded hills. The day was just beginning to clear when Nessa exclaimed and pointed to a stand of trees a few miles up the valley they were crossing. Look! They're as big as the pearl nut tree! Even at a distance, it was clear that the trees were giants, swaying with ponderous gravity and the wind that caused lesser trees to shake and shiver. It was not just the trees that were oversized. Even the surrounding scrub and wildflowers stood as thick and tall as reeds. The island of strange growth reminded Aidan of the way grass springs up near a seep or over a patch of rich soil. But he had never known water and compost to produce such growth. Aidan wanted to explore, but Clawman kept him back, eager to push on and leave the area by nightfall. Aidan slept fitfully that night. It was a little before dawn when something drew him from sleep. He sat up and listened. A chattering river leapt down its rocky bed nearby. A few crickets creaked. There was a muffled pop from the sleeping coals in the fireplace. Somebody, probably Harriet, had let it die out again. That was not good. He listened now with a sense of alarm. It had been something else, something that had not belonged. A huge sound filled the air. He jumped to his feet. The distant reverberations of something between a bellow and a howl shook in his chest. The tone was floating and mournful, but full-throated, deep and resonant. Clawman had his head cocked. He was listening, too. Nessa's eyes were wide open. What is it? Aidan whispered. It boomed again. Far away, yet loud enough to rouse any sleeper. Moore and Harriet, however, slumbered on. The pattern of the call reminds me of a woodland fox. Clawman said, not whispering. But it's obviously too deep, too big. It must be something like a bear. Though I don't know any that call in this way. It is probably an animal that we don't see further west, and it's definitely something with a big throat. It sounds lonely, said Aidan. Though it was dark, the embers illuminated Clawman well enough to reveal a hard look. Don't you get any ideas about going out there? It's probably a lonely stomach and you'll fill it nicely. This is not the Misty Vales. We don't know this area, and some of the stories just might... You stay put. 
With that, Clawman got up and began to rouse the fire and boil water, stamping his feet and cracking branches as loudly as he could. Sleeping on the watch was something he was not prepared to accommodate. Aidan knew there would be no point lying down again, so he rolled up his blanket and sat on it in front of the reviving flames as a grey dawn crept in. But that did nothing for his restlessness, so he climbed a tree, hoping to see through the holes that were torn in the mist from time to time. All he could make out were leaves and a few treetops. When he was slick with an icy film of gathered mist, he dropped down through the branches and tucked into a breakfast of boiled maize crush. A simple porridge, but delicious. The deep, hooting call ceased, but Aidan could not shake a feeling that made him want to constantly check behind him. As soon as his bowl was cleaned and his blanket packed, he scuttled up the tree again in the hope of glimpsing the strange animal. But as he hung in the mist, another thought crept towards him. The fortress of Kultum could not be far ahead. This was the part of the journey that had been hanging in all their minds, like a great sleeping bat nobody wanted to rouse. He climbed down as wheels began to creak and roll out of the camp, jumped onto the back of his father's wagon and climbed to the top of the baggage, the highest point. His eyes were busier than usual. It was later that morning, as the hills were just emerging from their misty blanket, when he spotted a dark, round tower, standing well over the distant hills, cruel, fang-like spires cutting into the sky. It brought an end to conversation. They travelled with their eyes fixed ahead. The beast with the strange call was forgotten. The land was such that they were not able to give the fortress a wide berth, for on the left the mountain pressed its flanks out, and on the right the lake crept in and stole the low ground. It was with a feeling of some inevitable advancing fate that Aidan watched the tower loom higher with every advancing mile. Most of the day had gone when they emerged from a thick glade to a sight that caused even the horses to stop and raise their heads. Both wagons shuddered to a halt. The whole party gaped. The ancient mountain fortress of Kultum was something that few claimed to have seen, but there were none who had not heard of it, and for good reason. It had been the home of the Gelarak people, the most powerful and, without a doubt, the cruelest empire ever to dominate the western mainland. Their navy had ruled Lake Volundal, using it to reach far out into the surrounding areas. Fleets would swoop down on lakeside towns, and armies would march inland. They would take what they pleased, and none could oppose them. Taxes were harvested with a brutality that was almost inconceivable. Villagers were simply burned alive until the coffers were full. There had been many uprisings. Coalitions of rulers had more than once laid siege to their oppressors, but the great fortress had never been taken. Rebel armies broke against the walls like waves bursting on a rocky peninsula. Yet at the height of Gelarak power, the oppression abruptly ceased.
a wrecked fleet of ships was found washed up after a storm, and this was the last that was seen of Kultum's population. The fortress lay open in deathly silence. Plague was the word, mostly, but stranger theories abounded. Explorers and researchers, once they ventured behind the Great Walls, were never seen again. The emptiness of Kultum was a question that had lured many into its shadows, and released none. While Aidan was not free from curiosity's tug, he knew too much about those doomed ventures. Looking from this distance was more than enough. The fortress was colossal, on a scale that he had never imagined. He had heard stories, even read an account of the dimensions and architecture, but to actually see it now, where it crouched on its mountain throne, to fall under the spell of its silent watchful power that seemed to hush even the songs of birds, he shivered. It was as if he had stumbled across some giant predator. The fortress rose over a hill with sheer, quarried sides dominating the surrounding land. Only the nearby mountains stood above it. The hundred-foot-high walls were of dark stone turned black in places, where centuries of trickling water had stained the surfaces and fed cloaks of moss. Trees fought for light at the base, while ferns draped, spilling from narrow slits and cracks. An enormous creeper clung from the great round tower and reached its thick arms out over the surrounding buildings like tentacles. Despite the invasion of plants, a few cracks and some crumbled stone, there was little structural damage that could be seen. Most of the towers and turrets stood firmly among the city that rose within. The place would have been impenetrable even now, if it were not for the lowered drawbridge and the heavy wooden gates standing ajar. Though the castle itself was impressive, there was something else that made it significantly more intimidating. In front of the walls was a plain where about a dozen statues ringed the buildings, facing out as if on guard. But these were statues the likes of which none of the travellers had ever seen. From a distance it was clear that they stood nearly as high as the walls themselves. Some of these stone giants took the shapes of fully armoured soldiers, one with a sword many times the height of the surrounding firs, one with a poleaxe the size of a small ship. Beyond the giant soldiers were mythical beasts with features so lifelike that they appeared only to be holding their breaths while under scrutiny. The party found it as uncomfortable to take their eyes off them as to stare. Clawman was the first to snap out of the trance and urge the horses on. They chose a course to the right and hurried around the outside edge of the plain. Nobody spoke as they rattled past, though their eyes turned constantly to the left. From the shadows and the high windows, Aidan found it easy to imagine the much-rumoured darkness looking down at them. Amid all the speculation, the one thing unanimously agreed on was that those who attempted to explore Kultum never returned. It was clear that none in the party wanted to know why.
Probably a high for bandits, Boar said. Foolish to linger. That was about as many words as Aiden had heard from the man in a week. It was also complete nonsense. There would be no bandits in such a forgotten corner of the world. But nobody argued. Not even Harriet raised her opinions on those empty stories. Aidan looked back at the hollow eyes of statues and the dark slits in the turret. There was something watchful about the emptiness of Kultum, and he was very happy to be traveling away from it. They had covered about a mile when a high, keening howl floated over the air and turned it to ice. It was Harriet who shrieked the word that leapt into everyone's minds. Wolves! Chapter 13 Both wagons stopped, and all eyes scanned the hills. There, said Clawman. They looked in time to see the grey shapes surging down the distant slope, racing towards them. It was a big pack, very big. The fold of the land soon hid them, but everyone knew what was coming. Aidan looked around. There were no trees nearby, no refuge, except... The fortress, Clawman shouted. He turned the horses and lashed them to a gallop, causing the wagon to leap over the ground. The other wagon, drawn by the ponderous cart horse, fell behind. Take the reins, Aidan, his father shouted, handing them over and reaching back for a bow that he tried to string. The fortress grew larger, and they turned off the track and bounced over the plain. They headed for the stone road that cut a long, twisting way up a steep slope, edged on the left side by a sheer drop into a rocky chasm, and leading, eventually, to the giant gate. Don't slow down! Clawman yelled over the clattering wheels, as Aidan allowed the horses to ease the pace through the first corner. But the wagon might tip. Don't you question me! Clawman found the whip and applied it to the animals. Aidan braced himself for the next corner. The wheels skidded and kicked up a shower of chips from the cobbled surface. He felt the inside wheel lift slightly and caught a glimpse of the drop beyond the outer wall. The next corner was worse. Clawman looked behind him and spun round, his face pale. He lashed the horses furiously and did not hold himself back as they approached the last corner. We're going too fast! Aidan screamed, pulling on the reins. His father wrenched the reins away. The corner was on them. The horses had veered off their line in the confusion and now made a jagged turn. The wagon lurched, its inside wheels lifted and struck the inner wall, thrusting the wagon over onto its side. It slid over the road with a grinding of stone and rending of beams until it crashed into the outer wall, which collapsed and fell into the chasm. The three people had been thrown to the ground, but the horses were dragged after the wagon. It looked as if they would be pulled over the edge until the strain became too much and the leather snapped. The animals surged up from the ground, stamping and rearing, while the wagon, with all the family's worldly belongings, hurtled downward to be smashed and lost among the rocks far below. Aidan pushed himself off the ground 
A heavy rattling drew his attention, and he turned to see the other wagon taking the first corner at the bottom of the hill. More than a dozen wolves were closing in, coats rippling, ears flattened, long legs reaching for more ground with each stride. Run! Clawman yelled, grabbing his wife's elbow and heading for the gate. Aidan was half a stride behind. It was perhaps fifty paces. Before he reached the gates, Aidan saw what looked like a drawbridge lowered to the ground. As he approached it, he understood its purpose. The final sixty feet of road was simply missing. With the drawbridge raised, there would be a barrier of air over two hundred feet deep. Aidan tried not to look to the side as he ran after his parents onto the bridge, their feet causing the ancient beams to shudder beneath them. They had to bend their course around two large holes where rotten timbers had fallen into the chasm. The walls, imposing from a distance, were mountainous now, ancient buttresses that reared overhead and blotted out half the sky. A hideous, turret-like figurehead stood over them, directly above the gate, leering down through hollows that Aidan half expected to disgorge burning oil. They reached the end of the drawbridge and sprinted between the colossal wood and iron gates, at least three feet thick, into a long stone passage with an elevated ceiling. A gridwork of heavy iron bars loomed ahead. It was a portcullis that could have held back any army, but fortunately it was half-raised and probably rusted into position for good. They sprinted underneath the iron spikes and burst out into daylight. Aidan staggered to a halt, casting his eyes around him. Horror locked his feet in place. It was not the height of the walls, or the weight of the iron and stone, or the vastness of the courtyard in which he now stood that froze him. Kultum was not empty, not as Aidan understood the word. Skeletons were strewn everywhere. Some were the bones of animals, but many were not. The eye sockets of countless skulls fixed him with dark, haunting stares. Beyond the acres of dead remains, the courtyard was enclosed by heavy walls of stone. Against them, standing as if on ceaseless guard, were lines of twenty-foot statues, soldiers with the heads of snarling tigers, bears wolves and lions. Lips drawn, they glared at the intruders from green-jeweled eyes set in black stone. Clawman seemed less affected than his son by the deathly spectacle. He only hesitated for an instant before turning to the side and rushing them all into a guardroom. Once within, he put his shoulder against the door of iron bars, and with feet skidding on the dusty floor, heaved it closed, drawing screams from the neglected hinges. He kicked the bolt until it broke free of its rust and scraped home. As had become his habit, his hand went to the velvet pouch on his belt. But it was not there. He had left it with the baggage. Aidan began to tremble as he saw his father staring into the courtyard, fists and jaws clenching. He knew those signs. He knew what was coming. 
the fragile closeness they had built over the past weeks, no more than twigs and thread, was about to be met with steel. Clawman turned around, his whole body rigid. Nessa was standing between them. Please, Clawman, don't. She may as well have spoken Arunian. There would be no more reasoning with him until the rage had given its way. He thrust her aside and strode at Aiden. That was everything, you wretched, disobedient fool of a boy! He roared, his face twisted and contorted by the violent emotions, almost unrecognizable. Everything we own! He lunged forward and struck Aiden on the head, threw him to the floor, and proceeded to kick him while shouting profanities, setting his fury loose to take its accustomed course. When Clawman turned away, gripping Nessa by the arm to keep her from comforting her son, Aiden crept into the corner and scowled. Gradually the paralyzing fear drained away, and what took its place was a cold, whispery anger. He glared at his father's back. His fists shook as he imagined driving forward, hitting, screaming, and settling the debt. Yet for all the flames of retaliation that grew inside him and swirled around until his vision was seared, this was his prison. He knew from hard experience that the anger would not liberate him. It would only torment him with images of snarling revenge that tasted so sweet and would later turn to a dead weight of depression and guilt. But he did not care and gritted his teeth all the more until his head shook with the violence of his thoughts. These feelings were his secret, his to guard. It was his right to nurture them and to indulge the glowing hate, shivering before its cold fire, drawing it into his bones. Clawman was staring out through the bars at something or nothing. For some men, it was drink that moved them to this kind of utter destructiveness. Clawman needed no such aid. When it flared, his anger carried him past all restraints of reason. It carried him to a place where the treasured bonds with his wife and son, even if they were treasured in secret, were forgotten, where all he could see was the inferno of his passion. And every time, it was getting worse. Aidan knew his father's eyes would be hooded with shame for many weeks, but it would be a bristling, angry shame, as though the fault lay with the one carrying the bruises. The two horses galloped out from the passage into the courtyard and did not stop. One threaded its way between the heaps of bones until it found itself in a far corner. The other disappeared beneath a colossal arch at the far end of the courtyard, and the echoes of its hooves were lost within the unstirring city. The second wagon boomed through the passage and clattered under the portcullis into the open, surrounded by the leaping, snarling pack of grey wolves. The big cart horse screamed and snorted, kicking and stamping as the wolves darted in and out. The goats were gone. Harriet was bleeding from a cut on her face and bore from gashes on both arms. 
It looked as if they were about to be torn apart and devoured only a few yards from safety. But then, something strange happened. A few of the wolves raised their noses to the air, and their tails dropped as they began to whine and glance around them. Unease spread quickly. The pack lost interest in their prey. Their heads spun in all directions. Boar took the opportunity to crack his whip on their backs. Several yelped and fled, opening a path to the guardroom, where Clawman stood and called. Wolves began to shrink from the courtyard and slip out the gates. Boar said something to Harriet. They jumped from the wagon and ran to the door that was held open for them. Two wolves moved forward, more out of habit than intention, but they quickly turned away, looking around with wide eyes and twitching heads. A sound, like a heavy pouring of coarse sand, drew and filled the courtyard. All looked in vain to find its source. It seemed to be coming from everywhere, but there was no movement on the ground or on the walls. Aidan was on his feet now. Tears brushed away. The experience pushed back into a festering vault. Something was happening. He looked at the wolves and tried to determine where their ears pointed. Some were as bewildered as the people, but a few on the opposite end seemed to have agreed on a direction. He followed the angle of their heads. Not far from the wagon, there was a wide ramp that descended into the ground. A thick, wooden trapdoor had once covered it, but this was now splintered and crumbled. It was completely dark beneath the fragments of wood, but Aidan was sure this was the source of the rough, pouring sound. He had heard of sand being used as a timer, shifting ballast for large traps. He also knew that Kultum had been home to the most advanced engineers of many ages. Tales of castle explorations rushed through his thoughts. Arrows whistling out through cracks in the walls, floors collapsing over spear-filled pits, falling rocks, channeled floods. He had never thought he would actually face any of these. But what happened next was unlike any of the stories he had read. The trapdoor snapped open, and a sound rent the air, like the explosion of steam from a cauldron overturned on a bed of coals. Aidan covered his ears and fell to the ground as a cloud of black vapor burst over the wagon. From within the cloud, something enormous moved. Everyone fell back from the door. There was a deep, fleshy thud that Aidan felt in his chest and a violent clatter of wagon wheels. Wolves yelped and cried, scattering in all directions, some even vanishing into the city. Those that remained in the courtyard shrank into corners with their tails tucked and every hair raised. The sandy sound returned, just audible under the squealing and whining, but this time it died away quickly. The air cleared, revealing nothing but a wagon dripping with sooty slime and a scattering of frightened wolves. The cart horse was gone. Tattered ends of the harness lay on the ground. Did anyone see what it was? asked Clawman, his voice thin. Nobody spoke. Nessa whimpered. 
They waited for a long time, but nothing else happened. We need to get out of here, Harriet gasped. Yes, said Clarman. But if we run without the wagon, we will not last. I'll fetch my horses. Boar, try to make something of the broken harness. The rest of you, stay in here. The wolves paid scant attention as the men left their refuge, but Clawman and Boar each took a heavy bush knife from the wagon. Nessa continued to whimper as she saw her husband striding through the mounds of bones to the far corner, where one of the horses turned and pranced about, held in place by its fear. It reared several times when Clawman tried to take its bridle, hooves whistling through the air at head height. But eventually the forester was able to snatch a broken rein and gain control. It was an even slower process, coaxing the animal back through the maze of skeletons towards the wagon. Clawman held it in place while Boar repeatedly fumbled the harness straps. At last, the knots were secure. They drove the wagon around to the entrance of the guardroom, away from the trapdoor. One will not be enough, Clawman said, looking at how the horse strained before the huge wagon. He left them again and weaved his way towards the distant arch, one of the three entrances to the city, where the second horse had disappeared. A dark forest of towers and spires and hulking buildings rose up beyond the walls of the courtyard, daring, challenging. As Clawman walked on, he grew smaller and smaller against the backdrop. It almost seemed that Kultum was swelling over him. Aidan watched him walk away and tried to get a hold on his emotions. He wanted to lash out. His anger still lingered. But as he thought of his father meeting his end, something began to wail inside, growing louder with each breath. I'm going with, he said, and slipped out the gate before anyone could stop him. He was halfway down the courtyard when the buttresses and towers rang with a horse's scream, a wild scream of fear that was suddenly cut short. Three wolves dashed out through the archway ahead and bolted past, paying him no heed. Then Clawman emerged, running hard. Everyone in the wagon now, he yelled. Aidan's face flushed with relief that his father lived. His father's flushed with anger. I told you to stay inside, he shouted. Do you need another lesson? Aidan turned and ran. He followed the women, climbing up on top of the luggage as the wagon began to move. Clawman took the reins. He gave the trapdoor a wide berth as the wheels turned and rolled out of the courtyard, through the passage and over the drawbridge. String it! Clawman said, picking up Boar's very crooked bow and handing it to Aidan. It was not easily done. The ridges were poorly carved and the string was as weathered and dried as the lizard he once put in a box and forgot about. It would not suffer many shots. Once it was strung, he handed it back. He hoped his father would tell him to put it to use, but instead he handed it to Boar, who made it immediately clear by the clumsy way he attempted to knock an arrow, that he had little skill with the weapon. They moved down the stone road as fast as they dared. All knew what had happened to the other wagon, 
But when they reached the plain beneath, Clawman drove the horse to its limit, which was little more than a fast trot. They passed the five goat carcasses that were leaping and jerking between tugging jaws as if still alive. Not until they had covered several miles did Clawman slow the pace. Boar's arrows never landed within ten yards of a wolf. He would have done better to throw his tools, but the pack always withdrew after smelling the black coating that clung to the wagon. Though it looked and reeked like the slippery gunge from some untended drain, the foul substance seemed to be ensuring their safe passage. The wolves did not come near them. Aidan had no illusions about what would have happened otherwise. Those carcasses continued to jump around in his mind. At the first rise, Clawman's horse showed itself no match for the lost cart horse, so several heavy bags and crates had to be discarded. While they were unloading, Harriet asked in a shaky voice what Clawman had seen. Streets were very dark, he said. Saw no more than old bones. But I heard enough to know that my horse was gone. That is one place I will never set foot in again. Little more was said about their experience as the travellers put ground between themselves and the fortress. Nessa remained traumatised for several days, and even Harriet lost her tongue for a while. The adults stood guard every night, but there was little sleep to be found within the turmoil of their dreams. When Aidan offered to take a shift, his father refused without offering a reason. So Aidan took a shift every night in secret from his bed coaxing his ears out into the night. Sometimes he fell asleep, but he quickly learned to keep himself uncomfortable with roots and branches. It only failed once, and he awoke with a neck as gnarled as one of his roots. He found it best to double Harriet's watch, and it was well that he did, for Denelan was not yet finished with them. It was the ninth day from Kultum. Harriet was going through her routine. She started by sighing and pacing, proceeded to sitting, then leaning, then leaning a little deeper, collapsing, and finally snoring. Aidan got up and tossed a few branches into the dimming fire. He took the bow and a quiver of arrows, climbed onto the wagon, and wrapped himself in his blanket. He found a comfortable position, settling into a nook between bags of luggage. The gentle growling of the fire lulled him. His thoughts drifted, slowed, deepened. A soft crack of a twig and a snort from the horse brought him to the surface with a start. He looked out into the darkness but saw nothing. Quietly knocking an arrow, he aimed out into the trees where he thought he had heard the sound but the horse, ears pricked, was facing the other way. His father had always said to watch an animal's ears for direction. Deciding to trust the horse, he turned around and looked back towards the fire and the four sleeping bodies. On the far side of the camp, something shimmered. It was like liquid darkness that oozed out from the grass. Some of the black edges revealed themselves as it stalked into the firelight on powerful, coiled limbs. 
It was lower than a wolf, but longer, and much heavier. Aidan had only ever looked at drawings of panthers. He had never seen one in the flesh. He could barely see it now. But the outline that betrayed frightening speed and power was unmistakable. It was heading for his mother. There was no time for careful aiming. He drew and loosed the arrow in one motion. It was a wild shot, plugging into the ground well short. The panther stopped but did not turn away. It looked at him. Then it looked at his Nessa, and crouched deeper, hindquarters bunching. No! Aidan screamed, throwing his blanket aside and vaulting off the wagon. Get away! Get away! He ran towards the fire and, instead of digging around for a burning branch, simply kicked at a section of red-hot coals. The fiery embers showered the huge, snarling cat. And Harriet. The panther was gone in a blink without making a sound. Harriet made many sounds and continued to make them for some time. She called Aidan a lying, vengeful, mean-spirited, ungrateful, disrespectful, uncivilized, immature, irresponsible, untrustworthy delinquent. She bawled for the benefit of any creature that happened to be within half a mile. Where, Aidan? Where? she shouted. I don't see any panther. Do you, boar? No. What you take me for? A fool? Do you think I don't see through your little schemes? I think it's clear to everyone that Aidan has had enough time to ruin his character, and it's time I took him under my charge again, beginning with an admission of what he was trying to do here. And fitting punishment. She began to simmer down when Clawman found the prince, clear as writing. Who had the watch? he asked. Wasn't it you, Harriet? Yes, and there was no panther. The prince must have been there from before we got here. I would have seen them. These prints are fresh. But what I want to know, now that I look at where the coals fell, is how they could have stung you unless you were in your bed. I was not sleeping, if that's what you imply. I was simply resting an injured leg. And snoring, Aidan mumbled. She turned to him, with eyes more threatening than the panther's. Nobody slept again. They built the fire high and waited for daylight. It was only after traveling a few more days that they began to rest. Then something got the chickens, crushed the cages and took all of them except Snore, who flapped down into the campsite and sheltered among the people. They heard a bear the following night, but it did not approach. After that, the land grew less wild, and things settled down. Nessa slowly regained control of her nerves, enough to allow her to resume lessons with Aidan. They took up their reading again. Aidan's interest in the war histories now had a keen edge that he didn't attempt to disguise. There was one book that he read three times, A History of Some of Therna's Greatest Warriors, beginning with the legendary Crom. Whenever Aidan snagged on a difficult passage, he would ask Nessa for an explanation. Though she revealed little enthusiasm for the descriptions of battles, even she was impressed by the feats of bravery 
especially those of Cram. He reminds me of William, she once said with a catch in her throat. Fearlessly loyal. Except twice as big, Aidan reminded her. Remember the time Crom picked up a coal stove and flung it through the door when the rebels inside refused to open up? I'm sure it's exaggeration, Nessa said, with a smile, as she ruffled Aidan's hair. But he didn't believe her. Wouldn't believe her. In the company of these great men that strode through the worn pages, he was liberated. He wanted to believe in the impossible, the chance of a life that rose above what he had known. These men told him that it could be done, that even the strongest oppressor could be overthrown. Sometimes in the evenings, Aidan would move a little ways from the others and sit with his back to a tree, looking out at the great wall of mountains that stood silent and majestic in the moonlight. No one to bind them, nothing to press them down. He felt the bruises that still marked his arms. Something was becoming clear. Hoping to grow strong under his father's rule would be like trying to grow a tree under a rock. But even if his father did not constantly crush him, Aidan needed to learn more than his father could teach. Men like Quinn were not only strong, they were trained, well-studied, and cunning. He would need to be more so. An idea sprang up like a bright yellow flame in dry tinder. At Castith, there would be an army. He would join it. He would learn to fight, and he would enroll for officer's training, where he could study the art of war, perhaps even under the great leaders like the generals Osric, Velian, or Erinath. He was old enough now to be an apprentice. Even his father would understand that. He would have to be careful how he asked, though, and would need to pick the time well. Over the next weeks, Aidan worked hard to develop his hunting skills, bringing in birds, rabbits, and occasionally a small deer. The meat was no mere luxury. Their supplies were dangerously low. When he brought his kills in, there was a part of him that tried to forget the past, and that hoped for a nod or a word of praise from his father. But those grey eyes seldom met his. This was how it had happened before. It was Clawman's sudden anger that moved him to break the relationship, but it was lingering shame that kept him from mending it. It would be a long time before the freshly painted incident would fade, a long time before they would laugh again. Nessa was quick to praise Aidan's hunting, which she said was remarkable for someone of his age. Though he appreciated her compliments, they only made his father's silence louder. At times like this, he mulled over the words Thomas and Darla had brought him, the words his father had spoken, and he wondered if he would ever hear such words himself. Harriet, however, was not so backward in making her feelings known. She shook her head with exaggerated disapproval every time she saw Aidan return to camp, dirty, scratched, and flushed with returning health, though she ate her share of the meat without difficulty. 
In spite of her constant dissatisfaction that hung like a low, grumbling cloud, the storm did not burst again. Perhaps it was that they were no longer under her roof. Whatever the explanation, Aidan was thoroughly happy with the change. But there was one storm that he longed to see again. Every day he looked towards the mountains, hoping to glimpse those cloud formations, the spectacle that had recently become legend. A few storms did cross their way, but only the usual wet and angry kind. He did, however, see several more of the giant trees. Unlike the first, though, almost all of them were dead. A few more weeks of travel brought them to the end of autumn and the beginning of the southern settlements. The track became a road, and for the first time in months, they were found in the company of other people. The landscape had changed. Gone were the tumbling hills and valleys of their northern home, where grass and forest grew as thick as wool. Southern Therna looked to be an area of great open spaces. As they reached the top of a gentle rise, the wide Casteth Basin rolled out beneath them. Colossal plains, covered in fine grass, reached away into a hazy distance. Standing like sentinels over the low-lying bowls of land were hills clothed in dark green trees and topped with rocky faces. Between them, farmers ploughed and sheep grazed, the animals speckling the fields with tiny puffs of white. The sky, however, held not a single cloud, and the warm afternoon breeze drifted up to them, carrying a distant lowing of cattle and the murmur of water. A lazy silver river snaked across the plain, and a few miles ahead, on its banks, were the walls of the great southern city, Casteth. This was the first inhabited city Aidan had seen. Where Kultum had awed him with its towering walls and sense of fearful power, Casteth bewildered him by sheer sprawling size. He had never even imagined the possibility of so many houses. They gathered with increasing density along the roads nearer to the city walls. He could only wonder how they would be packed against each other within. Travellers poured towards and from the city gates like ants. On the south side of the river, much of the land was covered in a large forest, and that gave him some comfort. Beyond it, to the west, was an unusual range of mountains that stood straight up from the ground like a knife pressed into the earth along its length. He had read about the Pelamines. They were not high, but even from here the sheer face was impressive. After questioning several travellers, Bor and Harriet decided to look for work in one of the many inns that lay outside the city. Clawman kept a tight silence and said only that he would head into the city itself. Bor offered to pay double for the horse, because without it his wagon would have remained at the fortress. Clawman would accept only the regular price. When Harriet insisted, Clawman became firm, almost harsh, as if he had been offended. The women embraced and promised to make contact as soon as they were settled. The men, apparently seeing no need to break from tradition, exchanged a silent handshake. 
Aidan had chosen to walk much of the recent journey to build his strength, but the walking now was unlike any he had yet done. Traffic began to fill the roads, and he learned quickly that the road itself belonged to those on hoof or wheel, while those on foot kept well to the side. He had heard stories of Castith, but because it was said to be smaller than the northern stronghold Tolinro, he had naturally assumed it to be small, a kind of overgrown village. There was nothing village-like about what he now approached. The number of people was overwhelming, dizzying. But what surprised him more than the number was the diversity. Nobles glided past in varnished carriages drawn by horses that were groomed to dazzling perfection, while filthy, ragged children shouted and ran abreast, holding out their hands until the driver's whip chased them off. A farmer in a dirty woolen tunic trundled along, pushing a cart of turnips and cabbages and singing a light ditty. Then he flung the handles down and thrust his arms in the air to call down pestilence after being splashed by the chaise of a wealthy silk merchant. The merchant's clothes proclaimed him a man of great class, while his shouted reply revealed him a man of none. An open wagon, humming with flies and drawn by mangy oxen, sloshed past, headed towards a dump near the river. The smell of the wagon struck like a hammer. Aidan pulled her face as he guessed what it contained. A little further along was a stall filled with sweetmeats, and beyond that, a gallows, where raven-pecked criminals performed their parting service to the city by delivering a warning to all. The heavily defended gates of the city grew sterner as the distance shrank. Soldiers of the guard were everywhere. Above the gates, the battlements were lined with more soldiers, all fully armed and threatening in their bold uniforms of yellow and red. Aidan was glancing from side to side, and he noticed more than one guard looking at him. More guards stood at the gates. Their faces spoke no pleasant welcome, and their eyes drilled through the stream of people that flowed in. Some they stopped and questioned. Of these, they sent a few back in the direction they had come from, with harsh words and sometimes blows. This was nothing like the oversized cattle gate at the Misty Vales, where Began exchanged cheery greetings and quiet jokes that brought loud laughter. Aidan felt his pulse racing. The overwhelming crush of people, the closeness of the air, the approaching hostility. He could not even pretend to belong here. The soldiers would stop them. The soldiers did stop them. Chapter 14 The senior guard looked from Aden to Nessa to Clawman. Name and business, he said in a strange, flattened accent. Albert, son of Sian, Clawman replied. Tired of the north, hoping to start over. Our wagon was lost on the way. Aidan and Nessa had both glanced up at the use of false names and an untrue story, but the guard failed to notice their expressions. Northern accent, northern ignorance, he said. Castith won't be an easy landing for the likes of you. 
His face softened as he glanced at Nessa's frightened eyes. Go to South Lane by Miller's Court. Cleanest lodging you'll get for copper. If you can pay with silver, there's some fine places in the northeast quarter. Clawman thanked him, and they turned to leave. Aidan had been so lost in dread, struggling with wild fears of being sent away or being jailed for the breach of some strange law, that the sudden relief was like the lifting of a physical weight. He felt an immediate liking for this senior guard with the graying hair and grandfatherly authority. He wanted to reach out and establish a form of kinship, especially as he intended to be a soldier himself. "'May I ask your name?' he said. The guard smiled. "'In twenty years there's nobody ever asked me that. You must be small-town folk.' He smiled at the adults and dropped to a knee before Aidan. Cameron is my name. What's yours? Aidan. Good name. A brave name which looks to fit you well. I hope you're able to settle down here, Aidan. As our south side mayor likes to say, may the winds of bounty reward your labour. Thank you, Aidan said, attempting to shake Cameron's hand. Ah, said Cameron, stopping him. In the south we greet men by grasping the forearm. Like this. He gripped Aidan behind his wrist and gave a firm squeeze. Else you'll be getting some strange looks. You can take a woman's hand, but the men won't like it. Remember that. I will. Thank you again. Cameron smiled, nodding to all three of them, and returned to his post. Aidan felt his heart swell. His face glowed. Nessa smiled. Clawman glared. As they walked away, he pinched his son's ear and muttered, Next time you speak past me to a soldier, I'll nail your tongue to the wall. But I only meant to be friendly. You meant to be noticed, and that is something that could destroy us here. Aidan was not sure what his father meant. Surely Dresborn would not attempt to find them here but it was clear that now was not the time for questions. As they walked through the gates, they passed a building on their left that had soldiers all around it, obviously a small guard barracks. Aidan assumed the main barracks and military headquarters would be further in, probably near the keep. He followed his parents into a broad cobbled street marked as King's Lane, which appeared to serve as the central artery for the city. The road was lined with stalls and booths of every description. Cutlers, tailors, shoemakers, carpenters, fishmongers, and many more. Scattered here and there were stands where farmers displayed the produce of their soil. All around, chickens clucked from their cages. Girls trilled as they moved through the crowd with trays of delicacies. Buyers haggled, and children shouted and jostled, pursuing their games. The town crier, backed by a trio of jolly musicians, cast his voice over the din with the day's news, including royal decrees, notorious criminals' sentences, and the weather prophet's lies. Though much of the arrangement was haphazard, it became clear, as they continued, that the buildings were growing larger and the clientele better dressed. 
feathers, capes, furs, and rare cloth of blue and purple. Eventually, they came to the emporium of the ill-mannered silk merchant. Aidan saw his mother look across the road with a hint of nostalgia at the office of the scrivener. He remembered that her father had owned three such enterprises and had taught her the skills that she had since passed on to him. Clawman stopped to ask an elderly man of respectable appearance for directions. The man frowned at the mention of Miller's Court. He pointed across the road without a word, turned, and walked away. They pursued the road indicated, stopping and asking for directions several more times. Streets became narrower and dirtier. Here people moved more quickly. Few lingered where the shadows fell heavily and the smells rose thick as soup, a soup gone horribly wrong. It was in one of these alleyways that Clawman asked a group of older, very seedy boys for directions. Their cocksure disrespect was barely concealed behind a thin coating of servility. They would be trouble. Aidan could sense it. One came up and started to explain. Two others approached and tousled behind the first boy, knocking him onto Clawman. Aidan caught just a glimpse of a hand slipping from his father's pocket, grasping the little pouch of coins that Boar had counted out. He was about to yell to his father when he noticed everyone had stopped moving. The first boy was frozen where he stood, and his hand slowly found its way back to the pocket, returning the pouch. It was then that Aidan saw the dagger that his father held under the boy's chin. He must have had it ready before asking assistance. Clawman whispered something, and the boy nodded as much as the dagger would allow. We have a guide, Clawman said, allowing his prisoner to step away. This way, sir, the boy said, as he walked past his companions, shaking his head at them. Aidan's desire to be out of this tightening, hostile place was growing to a panic. He shrank from the glares of the boys, now undisguised, as he hurried between them. The only thing that kept him from running was the narrowness of the alley that was clogged ahead of him. Miller's court might once have had space for a court, but it was hardly possible to imagine a more densely populated spot of land. Houses pushed up like weeds competing for any shaft of light. South Lane breathed a little more, being opposite the southern wall of the city. Before dismissing him with a coin, Clawman took the boy aside and spoke to him. Aidan saw the youngster nod with more than a trace of deference before he spun and slipped away into his warren of shadowy lanes. After speaking to a few landlords, Clawman began to haggle with a thin, oily-looking man who was clearly more interested in Nessa than in him. Clawman appeared not to notice this, and complained about the price, which shifted downward with each glance the landlord made over Clawman's shoulder. Finally, they struck an agreement, and the family was led up four stories to an apartment that consisted of a single room and a window. Nothing else. It was dry in places, and the mildew had not quite completed its conquest of the floor. Other than that, it was acceptable to a man of low means and perfectly horrible to a woman of any means. Aidan knew his mother's childhood had been a comfortable one.
He saw her wince, but she voiced no complaint. The landlord scurried to the window and pushed it open. It made a crunching sound, and he couldn't get it closed again, so he pretended to be setting the right angle and left it. There, he said with a weaselly smile. Best view in South Lane. His eyes wandered to Nessa. It will do, said Clarman, who held the door for the landlord and closed it after him. He walked to the window, busy with his own thoughts, while his wife and son looked on. Borrow some rags and a bucket and have it clean before I get back, he said, stepping out the door and closing it behind him with a thud. Nessa's expression was as bleak as the room. She stood in shock. It took her some time before she was able to process the experiences of the day sufficiently to break down and cry. But after a little while, she brushed her tears aside, buried her embarrassment, and summoned the courage to request what she needed from the eager landlord. Then she got scrubbing. Aidan decided he would not add to her misery, so put his back into the labor. Clarman returned with blankets, candles, and a loaf of hard, dark bread that had not recently emerged from the oven. They ate their first meal by candlelight on the floor. Little was said. Nobody had the energy to talk, though Clawman's eyes held a flicker of something like keenness. Before lying down for the night, he said something that kept Aidan awake as effectively as one of his roots. Your time of idling has come to an end. For once your small size makes you useful. The forest is gone, but I have a new forest to teach you. New eggs for you to fetch. The words unsettled him more than the thin drizzle slanting in from the open window. When he finally slept, the dreams were dark. That velvet pouch bulging with coins began to take on a new meaning, an impossible meaning, but one that would not be banished. He remembered having once seen such a pouch on Dresborn's desk, and could imagine no context in which Dresborn would willingly have handed it across. Then he remembered his father's panic when he had seen smoke near Bore and Harriet's home, and constant watching behind them on the trail, the false name given at the gate. Confusion grew into an awful suspicion. What kind of man was his father? Did he know him at all? Aidan awoke with his throat on fire and the drizzle still running out his nose. When Clawman heard him cough that morning, he swore and made him stand at the window facing out. Don't you splutter over me before tonight. Would you ruin our fortunes again? With that, he dressed and stormed from the room. He did not return for the next two days. They were not comfortable days. In spite of the lateness of the year, the room sizzled and steamed during waking hours, the heat unlocking rotten vapors in the soggy boards, and the evening rain continued to spit through the window, replenishing the damp. 
The landlord knocked several times a day, calling through the flimsy boards to check if they needed anything, and if Aidan wanted to go and explore some exciting places he could recommend. Nessa froze at such moments, and the look in her eye caused Aidan to grip the handle of his knife and to keep the door bolted, though the bolt would have popped off the frame with the slightest shove. By the end of the first day they were worried. By the second night, Nessa was pacing. Do you think we can send a message to Bor and Harriet tomorrow? she asked. Aidan was gratified that she should ask him. He pointed out the difficulty of finding a messenger when they had no money. They could not both go, because one had to remain in case Clawman returned. She proposed weakly that she should go, but even Aidan knew that a foreign woman alone was more likely to draw attention than a boy. So, a little before first light, on the following day, he traced his way through the maze of buildings, getting lost and nosing his way back on track. It was unlike pushing through the dense confusion of a forest, but he was soon depending on the same feeling for direction he had always used, mostly without thinking. Sun, slope of the ground, sounds, smells, temperature, movement of the air, and the general character of spaces. The detours helped him place a few more landmarks on his internal map, and he was sure he could find a better way back to South Lane than the one they had first taken. As soon as he was through the gates, he began to worry about his mother. He had left quietly, but the landlord had a sharp eye. The mounting worry urged him on. Soon he was running. It was early morning when he reached the area where their company had parted. It was Snore's crowing that put him on the right path, and with a few questions he was able to locate the deep slumbering couple. Harriet's sleepy face grew distraught and Boar's grim as they listened. Soon they were bustling out the door and headed for Miller's Court. Aidan made only one wrong turn on the way back and recovered quickly. They could hear raised voices by the time they were halfway up the stairs. Aidan heard his mother scream and raced ahead. He threw the door open and ran into the room, his mother crouched against the wall, and his father stood over her, his hand raised. He spun on Aidan. Where have you been? I... I... We thought that it was dangerous here. I went to... I chose this place, Clawman said. Is your judgment now better than mine? It seems you also need another lesson in respect and obedience. Aidan cringed as his father advanced on him, anger rippling his face. But the blow never fell. After an extended silence, Aidan opened his eyes and looked up to see Bor and Harriet standing in the doorway across the room. There was no friendly recognition. So this is how you manage your family, Harriet said. When your anger boils up, you tip it out on them. I thought I glimpsed fear in their eyes before. Thought I saw them flinching when you made sudden moves. You dare question me under my own roof. The man of the house is to be respected, not like your neutered oaf with a cabbage leaf for a tongue and milk for blood. 
Bohr swallowed but said nothing. It was clear the insult had struck hard. Harriet colored. You call this respect, she said, pointing at the cowering wife and son. She flinches every time you turn to her. You like that? Those bruises Aiden had after we escaped the wolves, that was you, wasn't it? Lost your temper after losing the wagon, didn't you? That's why you couldn't look him in the eye for weeks afterwards when he tried to impress you with all that silly hunting of his. I would guess the only time you truly give him recognition is when you're too angry to hold it back. Isn't that so? Aidan cringed. For once Harriet had struck the mark. Even he felt his father's shame and couldn't bring himself to look at him. He wished, though, that Harriet had understood a little more, enough to know that her tirade would only serve to provoke. Instead, she carried on. Clawman, it's time I put you in your place. If there's one thing I know, it's how to— Enough! Clawman bellowed. The look he turned on her was pure hatred. Get out of my house, you foolish woman, before I give you something to flinch at. Suddenly, whatever ran in Boar's veins began to boil. He stepped in front of his wife and fixed Clawman with a look that had no milkiness to it. You... you speak to her like that again. I'll... I'll... His arms were pushed out, fingers twitching. Words, as usual, did not serve him well, but he made his meaning clear enough when he smacked a heavy fist into his palm. Even Clawman flinched at that. Bohr let his eyes linger a while, and then turned to leave, but Nessa called him back. Wait, she shouted. She got to her feet and spoke in a voice that trembled as though her very soul were quaking. If it were just me, I could take it. But I cannot stand by and see my son beaten like a dog any more. Harriet, you have finally said what has died on my tongue for years. And if I don't speak now, I'll never find the courage again. Clawman, it cannot carry on. Aidan wished someone would say something. The silence that now filled the room was more threatening than any of the preceding words. His father's lips twitched, and his eyes grew as hard as frost. You have chosen poorly, he said to her with deathly composure. From now on, you would be wise to count me among your enemies. With that, he strode from the room and slammed the door behind him, striking them harder with his leaving than he had ever done with fists or boots. Nessa disintegrated into a flood of tears, and Harriet rushed to her, while Bohr stood silently by. Despite Harriet's insistence, Nessa decided to wait a week, in case Clawman changed his mind. Both Bohr and Harriet looked worried as they left. Aidan had never expected to want their company, but as their footsteps faded down the stairwell, the fear that crept up in him was sharp. When he and his mother were alone again, in the little empty room, he felt the weight of the city begin to swell and press from all around. Not even in Deneelan had he felt so trapped 
so vulnerable. There were enemies here he would not even recognize, enemies against which he could take no precautions. The day was interminable. Heat and worry exhausted him. That night he remained awake as long as he was able, but finally a deep sleep fell on him like a thick and heavy blanket, shutting in fatigue, shutting out everything else. Chapter 15 When the town bells pealed out through the darkness, Aidan thought it might be some midnight celebration. But then other sounds filtered into his dreamy half-thoughts. Crashing timbers, panicked voices, and a deep roar that sounded at first like a rushing wind. He opened his eyes. A ruddy glow from the gap beneath the door revealed twisting billows of thick smoke. Mother! he yelled, and burst into a fit of coughing. The smoke was filling the room at an alarming rate, drifting up through the floorboards. His bare feet told him that the boards were dry, for once, and hot. He reached his mother and began shaking her. She surfaced slowly, dulled by the thick air, and looked around in a stupor. Is it day already? Fire! Aidan shouted. We need to get out! She staggered to her feet, taking in the scene and grasping its meaning. Flames began to leap up through the gaps in the floorboards as they staggered to the door. They opened it and immediately fell backwards from the heat of the flames that surged into the room. Aidan slammed the door closed. It felt as if the skin on his face and hands was bubbling. For a moment he was overwhelmed with the pain in his temporarily blinded eyes. When he was able to look around, he saw his mother biting her fingers, eyes traveling the walls helplessly. It was clear she had no idea what to do. Neither did Aidan. A puff of clearer air disturbing the smoke reminded him of the permanently open window. He rushed across, leaned out, and looked beneath him. The walls were panelled and sheer. He might be able to climb down, but his mother would have no chance. He looked up. Long beams projected just over the window. It looked as if it would be possible to step from there onto the roof and then move along the row to a building that was not on fire. Nessa was still biting her fingers, staring. Mother! Aidan shouted over the growing rumble. We need to get onto the roof. His mother looked at him with something between disbelief and horror. Look, Aidan said, drawing her to the window. We can't go down. The only way out is up. She stared for a long time at the people running and screaming in wild confusion. Aidan looked back at the flames growing through the floorboards and the smoke streaming under the door. At last, she agreed. Aidan went first. Trying not to think of the fall, he put his left leg over the windowsill and gripped the inside of the frame with his right hand while reaching out with his left for the outer beam. Once he had a firm hold, he released his grip on the frame, leaned out, and reached for the next beam. With his hands secure, he stood on the base of the sill, jumped into the air between the beams he was holding, at which his mother gasped, 
and straightened his elbows, taking all his weight on his arms by pressing down with his hands. This allowed him to swing his feet onto the same surfaces. For a light-bodied tree-climber, it was nothing much. A step would take him to the roof. He shouted encouragement down to his mother over the rumble of the fire and the screams of those fleeing it. But something was wrong. Even over the past days, he had noticed a vacancy and slowness in her eyes, an aimless shuffling within some deep internal labyrinth. Now the shuffling had slowed to a halt. Mother! he yelled. You have to move or the fire will catch us. I can't carry you. She gazed at him with semi-lucid recognition, then, with no apparent awareness of the danger, repeated the motions Aidan had just demonstrated. She might have lacked his agility, but her greater height made the maneuver far less demanding. He grasped her arm and helped her onto the roof. It was built of slippery wooden shingles, and it was steep. Barefoot, they were able to creep up to the spine. One shingle leapt out from under Aidan and almost took him as it spun off the roof into the waiting void. When their heads rose over the apex, they reeled, taking in the full force of their enemy. The fire that they had seen in the stairwell was but a hatchling. The surging beast that towered before them, its feet planted in Miller's Court, was a monster, a swelling fiend with blood-red limbs that curled and thrashed overhead. It roared with enough force to shake the ground as it ate its way forward. They stared and blinked, dumbstruck, their eyes dazzled by the glare. The whole city seemed to be lit up, bright as day. Once he had recovered his wits, Aidan looked around for some escape. To the right, shingles burst and caught fire ahead of the second blaze, as flames surged up from below. He could feel that the roof beneath him was warming quickly. To the left, there was no fire, only a little smoke, but neither was there a way down or a crossing to another roof. It ended in a sheer drop of four stories. But if they could get to one of the rooms at the end of the wing, Aidan thought, they might be able to find a different stairway. This way, he called, tugging his mother's sleeve. When they reached the end of the roof, he leaned over the edge and saw that the shutters of the room beneath were closed, blocking that entry. He decided that this might not be a bad thing, as he didn't want to trust his mother with that climb again. Making sure of his footing, he began to work a shingle loose, careful not to drop it on the crowded street below. Once the first was out, he found it easier to remove more. The beams under the shingles were close together, but they were weak and old. A few good kicks produced a hole big enough to climb through. The ceiling boards were soft with rot and broke easily, allowing him to see into the room. It was dark. He helped his mother, lowering her down into the room, and followed after her. With a pang of fear, he realized that there was smoke in this room too. He ran to the door and pulled it open. Small flames and acrid clouds filled the stairway, billowing into the room, but the heat was bearable. It would not be that way for long. He grabbed his mother's hand and pulled her out onto the landing and down the stairs. At the second floor, the flames had spread across the stairway, but were still small enough to be crossed. It was when they reached the first floor that their good fortune ended. 
Two furiously burning trusses had fallen on the stairs, blocking them. There was no way to squeeze past without being set alight. As Aidan looked, he heard the growing roar through the wall partitions. It was close. He could feel the floor shaking as the monster rumbled forward. There was no time for careful thinking and thorough planning. Covering his face as well as he was able, he ran up to the first truss and kicked it, then dived back from the heat. It still stood. He tried again. This time he heard a crack. On the third attempt, the truss split and collapsed, but as it fell, it brought down a section of red-hot planking that struck Aiden across the side of his head and pinned him to the ground. The hiss and stink of burning flesh were accompanied by a pain so acute that even his mother's screams were dreamlike and distant. He was vaguely aware of being dragged through the opening he had created, down the last stairs and into the cool air of the street. Water! Water! He heard her shouting, but there was no water to be spared for Barnes. As he lay on the ground, he caught a glimpse of a man running wildly down the road. There was something wrong with him because he was glowing as brightly as the fire. Someone doused him with a bucket, and Aidan recognized the landlord. All his oily skin was burned away. He stood shuddering for a moment, looking at his red hands, before uttering a single sob and dropping forward onto the ground. Aidan could think no more ill of him, and only wished he would get to his feet. Then the pain found him again, and he cried out. It felt as if there were glowing embers still clinging to the side of his head. He was on fire himself. He reached up to brush the coals away, but all he felt was a soft ooze, and the sudden agony kept him from touching it again. The street grew brighter, and his mother dragged him away from the heat to the city's outer wall. She crouched down as the whole wing erupted in angry fire. The great beast now towered over all of South Lane. Aidan looked around at the people leaping from windows perched on collapsing roofs and fleeing between buildings that rained fiery projectiles among them. It felt unreal. The bells had grown distant. Even the screams were muted, lost somewhere in the foggy glare. His mother sat beside him with her arms clasped about her, staring vacantly, rocking in a childlike trance. It was morning by the time the blaze had lost its fury and retreated into the blackened ruins. Smoke hung in the air, darkening the sun's light. When Bor and Harriet appeared, they were clearly exhausted from searching. It was as if Aidan had been waiting to hand over the watch, for in the moment he recognized their voices, his head fell. The chatter of birds and the touch of a cool breeze caused him to stir. It was the second time he had awoken in bandages. The first time he had lost spring and part of summer. This time, judging by the soot he had to blink out of his eyes, he'd only slept through a day and a night. He looked around, taking in the small loft, its single window, and a closed trapdoor. He reached for his head, which still felt as if it were on fire, but his fingers met with only bandages. 
The gentle pressure hurt, even through the dressing. He climbed from the bed and waited until the pounding in his head subsided enough to be bearable. It left him giddy. Yet be careful while raising the trapdoor and descending the ladder into the room beneath. Nessa sat in a chair, staring out the window. Mother, he said. She didn't move. No sign of your father, she said, her voice soft, eyes unfocused. Aiden had expected as much, yet the words struck a hollowness inside him. It rang with a note near to loneliness, but with intruding overtones of anger, like the buzz of a string or the rattle of a gong. Then Nessa's look cleared somewhat, and she turned to Aiden. What kind of mother have I been? I never stood up to him, never asked for help to protect you. Even during the fire, what good was I to you? If it hadn't been for me, you might not have been burned. Don't talk like that, Aidan said, sitting beside her on the couch and taking her hand. I didn't want to tell anyone about him beating us either. Anyway, you did ask for help, and it was you who pulled me out of the fire in the end and got burned doing it. Don't try to hide the bandage on your other hand. I saw it when I walked in. She smiled and ruffled his hair. And some things... You always were older than your age, if that makes sense. You always wanted to be as old as Calorie. Oh, I miss her. Aidan had to look away until the blurriness left his vision. After a long silence, he decided it was time to be open, to share the plan he had been nurturing. I'm going to make sure that what happened to her is brought to a stop, he said. So I've decided I want to become a soldier, like the great generals. Nessa looked at him with her quiet eyes. A soldier? So that's why we read all those war books on the way here. Aidan nodded and waited. You no longer want to be a forester? Do none of the other trades interest you? No. Have you thought this through properly? Are you sure? I'm sure, very sure. Nessa sighed. No mother would have the military as her first choice, she said. But I suppose if all mothers kept their sons from the army, we would all fall victim to those like Quinn. She looked at him again. I know it would not have been your father's first choice either, but he would not be displeased. My father would have been proud. So. You don't mind? I would rather you become a scrivener or a clerk in some high tower where you'd be safe, but I think you'd just die slowly. Your veins are filled with as much fire as blood. She eyed his bandage. Wait until your injuries have healed, and then perhaps Bor can take you to the barracks. You will need money, and I'm afraid I have none, but I'm sure Harriet will help. She's been a good friend to us. But she's been such a... He was about to name the four-legged beast well known to dairy farmers, when Harriet, as if drawn by the mention of her name, bustled into the room and began scolding Aidan loudly enough to make his tender head ring. Off with you, she said.
stop disturbing your mother. She needs time to rest, and so do you. She took him by the arm and returned him to the ladder. Later, Aidan climbed down again, but his mother had been moved to another room. He tried the doors that were not locked, but all he found was Harriet busy at the sink. He closed the door quietly and retreated to his loft. For several days he rested until he could stand without feeling as if his head was about to burst like a squeezed grape. He crept downstairs regularly, and when he was able to find his mother, they shared quiet conversations until Harriet intruded and separated them. With Clawman out of the way, she was riding high in the saddle. Nessa implored Aidan to stay on good terms with Harriet. Her frequent appeals for him to be accommodating revealed that she saw the discord well enough, but tried to mend it on Aidan's side rather than where it originated. Without realizing it, she was repeating the fault she had so recently lamented. Too fearful to intervene and hold back the tormentor, she was pleading instead with the victim to be more submissive. It was a solution that would resolve the conflict while entrenching the problem. Aidan didn't have the words to understand, but he could feel the wrongness of it. One morning, Harriet called Aidan down to the kitchen, where she was seated with Boar. Aidan took the place indicated. Your mother is weak, she said, weak in body and in mind. She was a prisoner to fear and guilt for too long. What guilt? Aidan asked, annoyed. She never hurt anyone. Guilt for not defending you like she should have. Do you think I would have stood by and watched? Aidan bristled. Harriet was treading very freely on ground that was private. We need to discuss your future, Aidan, she said. Due to your mother's weakness, it's necessary for someone more capable to take charge of you. It is time to start again with your lessons where they were cut off. There will be no more hiding behind your father. I am going to set you on a decent path, and Boar will see to it that I am obeyed. Aidan looked at her, unsure how to begin. For the duration of their travels, he had avoided speaking of his plans because Harriet had shown a readiness to listen in and then peck at him. He had found that the best way to survive was to keep distant, and when that was not possible, silent. But silence would not aid him now. He needed money in order to enter any trade, even soldiering, and who else could he ask in a city of strangers? But before he could frame his words, Harriet continued. You have spent more than enough time dabbling with bows and slings, poking around in forests. These kinds of things are for dirty, reckless boys and trappers, and you will be neither. We have discussed it and have agreed that you are to enter a trade. The best course for you would be something very different to whatever your father tried to teach you. You must be scrubbed of his influence. So we have decided to apprentice you to a chef at the inn nearby. You will start today. During the evenings, I will resume the task of improving your character. It is clear to me that your mother's influence has spoiled you, indulging your irresponsible notions. That will also come to an end. 
Aiden tried to calm his pulse. The throbbing felt like hammers against his temples. I want to become a soldier, he said. Oh, don't be ridiculous, Aiden. Look at you. You've been in bandages half the time I've known you. Your frame is not sturdy enough for soldiering. But my mother, I have spoken to your mother and cleared up that foolishness already. Aidan wasn't sure if she was lying or telling the truth. It worried him that both were possible. You, my boy, do not have the makings of a soldier. All of us can see it. Aidan knew his face was turning red. He knew his next words would be red, too, but he made no attempt to hold them back. The things that put me in bandages killed grown men. Ask my mother if you don't believe me. Do you think soldiers don't get burned, or that they fall from cliffs without getting hurt? What do you know about the army, anyway? Harriet's lips were bunched as her eyes narrowed, but Aidan was not finished. And you talk about getting rid of my father's influence, but how many times did his trapping or my hunting fill your belly? He taught me. It was his skills that kept us alive on that journey, or have you forgotten all this now that you're comfortable? Bohr placed his hands on the table and rose to his feet. He looked at Aidan, shaking his head. This man, they had assumed to be a plodding ox, was turning out to be more of a guard dog silent and watchful until roused. Aidan drew back. He knew he had taken the wrong tone. He considered explaining his reasons for wanting to take up arms, but that would mean bearing the deepest part of his soul, and he would not do that here. I want to become a soldier, he said again, more quietly this time. You will do no such thing, Harriet snapped. If there's one thing I know how to correct, it is stubbornness. Now get to your room, pack your clothes, and clean yourself up. Then come down here with a better attitude. The chef expects you before mid-morning. She tapped her knuckles on the table with a look that declared the conversation to be over. Aidan dropped his head, turned, and left the room. He had no choice. He did as he was told went up the ladder to his room, packed his little bag, and cleaned himself up. Then he climbed out the window and headed for the city. Harriet could tap that table all she wanted. She had been accommodating and kind to his mother, but her kindness did not grant her ownership of him. He was no chef's assistant, and he was not going to be bullied into this woman's choices. He covered ground quickly. The last thing he wanted was for Harriet to send Boar after him. How he would get into army training without being able to pay fees was a problem that rose tall and stern. But for now, his biggest worry was escaping the prison Harriet had built. At the gate, Aidan's bandaged head drew some attention, but the guards did not appear to bother much with children, and they let him pass. Cameron was not on duty, so Aidan approached the most friendly-looking of the guards. Hello, he said. I want to become a soldier. Where should I go? The guard's surprised face broke into a grin. Oi, fellas, looky here. We've a young one that wants to start soldiering. 
A few of the guards looked across and smirked. Looks like he's had some experience with violence, one said. The others laughed. Order! The guard who shouted was clearly the ranking officer. He walked up. Don't mind them, he said to Aiden. Only difference between you and them is that you aren't pretending to be grown up. There was some grumbling behind him. The barracks are in the middle of the northwest quarter. You could go through the seeps, but I wouldn't recommend it. Rather, follow King's Lane all the way up. You'll pass the Regent's office on your left and the city market on your right. The road branches at the keep. Don't stare at the guards. Take the left branch, follow it west, until it brings you to a big courtyard and the gates of the barracks. The marshal's headquarters are nearby. They have an office that faces the same courtyard. Don't mistake them for the army. What are the marshals? Aidan asked, intrigued. I think I once read something about them, but it was only a mention. You don't know about the Grey Marshals? The soldier was almost shocked. Ah, oh, I suppose I should have guessed from your accent. You are new here? Yes, sir. Well, then I'd best warn you that the Marshals are not men you want to be mingling with. They are a strange breed, only ever seen where trouble is worst, normally at night. They are wolves in their grey cloaks, sent in to deal with things the rest of us would rather not know about. Are they soldiers too? Certainly not. There is a divide between us that not even a common cause would be able to bridge. They skulk about in secret. We deal in the open. A regiment of our men came across a pair of them in the seeps last week, tried to question them. When they refused to answer, the soldiers tried to escort them to the barracks. Ten men they were. Spent the next week in the infirmary. Two marshals, Aidan exclaimed. Wolves, I tell you. Unnatural and uncivil. Best keep your distance. Soldiers are the ones you want. In Aidan's mind, the information was having a different effect. If ten soldiers could have the stuffing beaten out of them by two marshals, then how far would a soldier's skills get him? He needed to grow strong, not jolly and chummy. Aidan glanced past the old guard at something that had caught his eye. The young guards were questioning a group of pretty young girls, while a heavy-looking cart trundled by unnoticed. He saw one of the girls glance nervously at the cart and realized she was connected somehow. The girls were a decoy. Thank you, Aidan said. In return for your kindness, can I point out the cart that has just slipped past your guards? I think you'll find something in there that doesn't belong in the city. The old guard knew to act on tips. His orders were crisp and loud, and the big man trundling the cart was apprehended. It cut Aidan when he heard one of the girls screaming for her father. As he watched, he caught sight of someone riding a horse through the crowd. Through the clutter, he couldn't tell if it was Boar, but decided it would be best to avoid finding out. Aidan ducked into the first alley and began weaving his way northwest. It wasn't the path the soldier had recommended, but it was now necessary to avoid open roads. He pulled his jacket from the pack and wound it round his head to hide the bandage, lest he leave a trail of observers who could point after him through the entire city. The girl's wails kept echoing in his thoughts. 
It reminded him again of that hanging he had watched. For some reason, the man's wife had been present. He could still hear her scream. Sometimes he still felt angry at the hangman. Was the law just another tyrant? Was it better to let all people go their own way and not interfere? He wondered if his father might have said yes. He paid little attention to the surroundings while he busied himself with his thoughts. He didn't notice how the lanes grew narrower, darker, and the idlers more watchful. Part of what eased his thoughts was a presence of another boy a few years older than him, fifteen or sixteen, he thought. They had been walking a few yards apart for several blocks now. Though they shared no words, they exchanged a look or two, found each other unthreatening, and established a kind of neighborliness, the peculiar bond often felt by travelers on uncertain roads. Though taller, the other boy was slight and shrew-like in his movements, almost timid, but he seemed familiar with the area. When a split in the alley offered a broader road to the right, he hesitated. Aidan, eager to show some initiative and pluck, walked on, but quickly wondered if it had been a good decision. A large group of older boys was gathered here. It looked as if they were doing some kind of dance. They stood on either side of the road, eyes fixed on each other. One at a time they would leave their line and walk up to the other side with jaunty steps and cold, challenging stares. The stares were returned with such vehemence that it seemed the prelude to a fight— but it never went further than these threatening gestures. Apparently the boys were gaining some enjoyment from the performance. Encouraged by this, Aidan decided to walk on and slip past. He assumed it was just another unusual aspect to this city's culture. But instead of continuing, unaware of him, this strange dance immediately reformed around him, placing him at the center. He smiled and tried to excuse himself, but there were no smiles in return. Everywhere he stepped a glaring face appeared, blocking his way. He was sure the looks of hatred were given in jest and would soon be cast off. Then he was not so sure. But how could they possibly be in earnest? He'd given no cause for offence. It was when the first shove threw him off balance that he knew he had made a mistake. Chapter 16 The blow that took him from behind almost split his head apart. He dropped to his knees, and even before he hit the ground, a quick hand snatched the bandage and ripped it away. Cries of disgust filled the alley, and several boys spat at him. He's here. Is my ground, Oozehead? Who gave you permission to enter, especially with a filthy, pus-drenched head like yours? Aidan's thoughts were clearing. The words drifted past, unheard. Deep, wild instincts were taking over. Oi! When I am talking... No rabbit ever bolted from a circle of hounds the way Aidan took off now. 
He darted between a pair of legs before anyone could reach him, felt the whoosh of something through the space he had just occupied, and put on a wild burst of speed. A big hand lunged towards him, but he struck it away, veered, and almost had his teeth knocked out by a swinging stick. He dived beneath it and tumbled to the ground, where he slipped and sprawled through rotten vegetables and filth that was even more evil-smelling. Before he had stopped sliding, he pushed himself up, filling his hands with the mush as he did so. He was almost quick enough. The gang was behind, but one of their number had been loitering near the far end of the alley, and now pounded to a stop in front of the slime pond. He gripped Aiden by the neck with steel hands. I've got the little... That was all he managed, because he suddenly got something he had not expected when Aiden lunged up and slapped both handfuls of muck into his eyes. The steel hands released instantly, accompanied by a howl of pain. Aiden slipped past, leapt over a broken crate just ahead of stretching fingers, and haired away down the alley. He didn't stop until the pain in his bad leg was strong enough to taste. This alley was darker, but it was quiet. He could hear the shouts behind him. Apparently the boys had given up the chase. The voices were receding, but were also getting louder and more excited, like the yapping of dogs on a trail. Suddenly, Aidan remembered his young travelling companion. On cat feet, he stalked back to the last corner and peered around. It was as he had feared. The young boy had watched for too long. They had him now. Blows and kicks were raining down on him until he was too stunned to defend himself. Answer me! It was the same voice that had spoken to Aiden. He couldn't make out the speaker, but between the gang's legs he could see his friend. I... The boy tried before a boot dug into his back. Did I say you could talk? Laughter. The speaker's voice reminded Aiden of Emroy. This is my ground. You'll be respecting me. You'll be looking up when I talk to you. The boy tried to look up, but something swung a baton against his head with a sharp tonk that brought a cry of pain. Did I say you could move? More laughter. Mean laughter. When it was quiet, the first boy spoke again. I am the anvil. You remember that, you little cockroach. Next time I find you or that ooze-head friend of yours here, I crush you. For now, well, I'll just be cleaning you up a bit. There was a sound of shuffling and coarse laughter. Aidan guessed what was happening before he saw the filthy, splashing stream. The laughter continued. Much better, the anvil shouted when he was done. Now send him off. The boy was hauled to his bare feet and relieved of his jacket and shoes. They kicked him away and pursued him with a hail of stones, rubble, and an assortment of rotten vegetables. The taunts and threats that pursued him were no less vile. Aidan felt sick. He had stood there and done nothing, just watched. He knew there was little he could have done, but that didn't make him feel better. He saw the boys pulling open a bag and tossing out the contents. A shirt, a wad of paper, a book, a sling. Wondering why it all looked so familiar, 
Aiden realized that it was his bag. His shoes were there, too. Obviously, he had lost them in the first wild dash. There was no going back for anything now. With a start, he slapped his hand against his chest. It was still there. The little leather case was hanging around his neck, and he pressed it to him. If any of the boys had reached for it, he would have fought to the death. He hurried away from the scene, uncertain where he was going, only that he needed to be well away. The numbness of flight was receding, and the injuries began to seep into his thoughts. He realized the skin was gone from a heel, several toes, his knees and elbows, and his head ached like it had been struck by an anvil, as in fact it had. At first he was confused by the suddenness of it all, but as he hobbled on through the alleys, the treatment he had felt and witnessed began to soak itself past the skin, and such a torrent of anguish swept through him that he found his eyes moist, his teeth clenching. The gang had only managed to get in a few shoves and cuffs, but after all that Aiden had recently been through, the force of each blow was multiplied a hundredfold. Anger started to burn in him. He wanted to go back and find the anvil, or Dilbert, or Zofia, whatever his real name was, and beat him to a pulp, restore his own identity, his sense of being someone who deserved respect. But he couldn't. So instead he grabbed a plank from a broken crate and assaulted the nearest wall, feasting on images of a gory revenge. He battered away until the wood was in fragments, and his fingers raw with splinters. But when the fury subsided, the heat gave way to something cold. Aloneness. He began to realize just how small he was in a city that was as cruel as it was strange. The people that walked past looked at him without the recognition he had been accustomed to in the Misty Vales, and in its place was a constant wariness, almost suspicion. As an unaccompanied, penniless, barefoot and dirty boy, what hope did he really have of walking off the street into military training? And if this failed, where would he go? He scraped the shreds of his confidence together and pushed on. Aidan was exhausted when he stumbled out of the maze of alleys into a surprisingly spacious courtyard. The military offices and barracks were clearly marked on one side. On the other side was a colossal, high-walled enclosure. The sign over the main entrance arch proclaimed it to be the Casteth Royal Academy of Security and Foreign Associations. The wordy name baffled him for a moment, until he realized that this must be the great academy that was famous across the whole of Thurna. Nearby, an office set in the wall was marked... Casteth Marshall's Public Office. He hadn't realized that it was at the academy where the Grey Marshals were trained. Suddenly, he wanted to enter Marshall training in a way he had seldom wanted anything before. He found a small pool of rainwater, where he washed the blood and filth off as best he could, neatened himself up, and approached the entrance to the Marshal's head office. As he drew near, his hands began to fidget. The guard at the door raised his eyes. 
the look he wore was not inviting. Aidan's step faltered, and he stubbed his already skinned toe. When the shudders had passed, he looked up again. The guard was watching him and shook his head. His face was as hard as the offending brick. What remained of Aidan's bruised courage collapsed, and he turned aside and found himself hobbling away towards a nearby library. It appealed to him on a few levels. Solitude, his love of reading, and most importantly, opportunity. All the buildings in this area clearly belonged to the military, and this would have to be the famous library Aidan had read so much about, where Castith's great tacticians drew their books on histories and cultures. Respectable members of the public were allowed to browse during the day, when they would occasionally find themselves alongside the military's renowned strategists and leaders. The guard here was not paying attention. But, just to be safe, Aidan walked beside a middle-aged couple as they climbed the stairs. Once within the building, he kept them between himself and the librarian's desk until he could slip down one of the aisles. The library at the Misty Vales had consisted of a few dozen books and scrolls, on topics ranging from soil management to trade laws to tales of sea monsters, intermittently lost and found on Nulty's shelves. Nulty had his own personal collection, but Aidan had never seen it. Dresborn's shelves held some stuffy volumes of lineage, and Nessa had kept two shelves of histories. What surrounded him now was nothing short of staggering. Had he not seen it, he would never have believed that this many books and scrolls existed. The racks were so high that movable ladders stood against them at intervals, allowing access to the upper shelves. He walked down the aisle, his bare feet hardly whispering on the thick carpet. Cool, leathery air seemed to swallow all sound. It reminded him of walking through the forest paths of Nimlis, a place for remembering, forgetting, sorting things out. There was a similar kind of space to think here. He took a few turns, moving towards the back of the building, and found a place well away from anyone else. Then he let his eyes start drifting over the spines. Some had the titles written on them, others only an arrangement of numbers which he assumed to be the library's code. A title caught his eye, and he drew out a squat volume, The Five Generals of the Elgin Epoch. If he were to meet one of the great military leaders in this place, it would do well to be found with such a book. Sitting down on the carpet, he opened the cover and began to pore over details with a young tactician's eye. If questioned, he wanted to be able to deliver an answer that would impress. The scribe's hand was elegant, but still clear. Aidan was less familiar with the southern variations on some of the letters, but his mother had taught him the differences. Soon he was lost in a scrutiny of events. At first he was enthralled, but then he grew confused, and finally dismayed. This book was not what he had hoped. He was on the verge of abandoning it when the aisle darkened. This is no place for boys. The voice had a depth and command the likes of which Aidan had never heard before. He gasped and leapt to his feet, leaving the book on the floor, 
The man was enormous, filling the space between shelves, and so tall that he would have no need of the ladder. Iron-gray hair and weather-worn skin suggested age. Powerful limbs and lithe movement decried it. He looked strong enough to walk through walls of stone with only minor inconvenience. His face was hard, not mean, but stern as flint, and with just as much promise of fiery sparks. But then it all went wrong. This was no military man. The hair was not just combed, but groomed like a nobleman's. The suit was cleaned and pressed to fastidious perfection, and the shoes were so carefully polished that they glistened like beetles in the sun. This was someone who belonged in glittering halls on velvet couches. He was no campaigner. He'd probably never handled anything dirtier than silver cutlery. Aidan turned and scurried off before being sent on his way with more than words. But before he reached the end of the aisle, the big voice rang out with paralyzing authority. Stop! His feet stuck fast, as if gripped in the deep carpet. He swallowed and turned around, fearing that he had damaged something. The man was holding the book. Aidan prepared to run. You're reading this? Yes, sir. The man regarded him. This is not likely reading material for someone your age. Did you understand it? Was it instructive? No, not really, Aidan admitted. He could have said more, but all he wanted was to get away. My thought not, the man said, returning the book to the shelf and lining the spine against its neighbors with absolute precision. As I said, this is no place for boys. Don't let me find you meddling here again. Something about the injustice of the man's conclusion bit Aidan. He had endured enough injustice for one day, and drew himself up. I didn't understand it, because it makes no sense. How could catapults have sunk Lecran ships anchored near Verna? I knew an old sailor, and he used to tell us about how shallow the water is there because of the reefs. The ships would have been half a mile out. Even our big thumper catapults don't have a range like that. I think the ships were sunk in some other way, like maybe they got blown onto the reef, and someone is trying to make it look like we pounded them. I also can't see how seven hundred soldiers could march twenty miles through a dense forest during the night to defend the town by morning. Even during the day with the bright sun, it's difficult to go fast and to keep going in the right direction through forest. I think the soldiers set off a day or two before the beacons were lit. Must have been some commander's lucky guess. Now this historian wants to make it look more solid-like, as if our defences don't need look. This is supposed to be a book about facts, and it seems to be loaded with fairy tales written to make us look invincible. The big man's face did not look like it was accustomed to showing surprise, but it was getting some practice now. How old are you? he asked, walking up with giant strides. Almost thirteen? The man studied him. For a twelve-year-old boy, you have quite a mind for detail. I'll grant you that. Not many have uncovered the problems with this book so quickly. How did you learn of such things? Who taught you? The unexpected interest the man was showing caused his face to seem less severe. 
it revealed a deep sincerity that made Aidan want to talk, to share some of the weight he carried. I used to speak with the old soldiers a lot, and I read a lot. My mother taught me and my friend... Aidan couldn't bring himself to say her name. Not today. Taught us to read. We read many stories and histories. I agreed to discuss the stories with her if she discussed the battles with me. So we knew all the great battles in detail, and all the great generals. I would like to meet this friend of yours. The man stopped short at the look on Aidan's face. Aidan coughed to clear his throat and swallowed a few times. I tried to save her, but I couldn't. The man waited, so Aidan continued. They were Lecker slavers. They took her as a sacrificial substitute because she had noble blood. He pressed his eyes shut. When I'm grown, I'm going to tear that trade to pieces and sink what doesn't burn. Every one of those murdering priests is going to meet his filthy god. She was the kindest, gentlest person I've ever known. As soon as I'm strong enough, I'm going to bring them justice and make sure they can't take anyone else the way they took her. The man dropped to his haunches and looked Aidan in the eyes. Revenge is a selfish pursuit, full of empty promise. I would know he said. But you speak of justice, of defending the innocent by felling their oppressor. I see that anger is still fierce in you, but I believe you'll learn to temper it with wisdom. He stood to his full height. How will you reach this strength you need? Who will train you? I wanted to become a marshal. He stopped speaking. The man was eyeing him critically. How sturdy are you? The selection process is extreme, and the training is even more so. You don't look to be in the best of health. I'll recover. I just need a little time. You won't have time unless you are prepared to wait a year. There are two things that shot through Aidan's mind. One was a bellow from his heart saying that it would not stand idly by for an entire year. The other had an even keener edge, a vision of yellow curls and raised eyebrows, demanding that he get back to where he belonged this instant. No, Aidan said quickly. I'm ready now. He wished it were true. The man nodded. Very well. Let's get you enrolled. I tried already. The guard warned me off. He won't let me in. Only one guard, you say? Yes, but he was big. There are meant to be three. Come along. If you're going to be part of the military, it's time you learned something about discipline. Aidan had to run to keep up with the long strides. Librarians stared as the unlikely pair passed the front desk and left the building. They marched down the courtyard towards the academy entrance with its solitary guard, passed it, and turned into a little recess. Two more guards were crouched in the shade over a board, gambling chips piled on each side. Without breaking stride, the big man kicked the board over, causing the soldiers to leap to their feet with angry yells and blazing eyes. 
but their eyes grew with fright as they stared up at the towering intruder. He said nothing. In two swift, effortless motions, he flat-handed both surprised faces with enough force to send the helmets flying. His hands were as big and heavy as coal shovels, and must have been just as hard. The soldiers skidded across the bricks and slumped against the wall. Aidan glanced around. He could not afford to be seen in the company of a man assaulting the city guard. But he was too frightened now of his guide to say anything. This strange man adjusted his suit and led Aidan back to the entrance, where the solitary guard turned rigid, saluted with a trembling hand, and backed against the wall. You should have reported them, the man said, his eyes sparking. Yes, yes, sir. Sorry, sir. It was just that— I am going in to sign a register. By the time I leave the building, you will be back here with two new guards and two more will be chaining the post-deserters. The guard saluted and took off, sprinting towards the barracks on the far side of the courtyard, yelling at the sentries long before he reached them. Aidan and his companion turned away and entered an airy chamber ornamented with brass hangings and large paintings. A clerk sat behind a wide marble desk, talking to a man and a boy who looked to be about Aidan's age. He was saying something about fees and enrollment times. The big man walked past the line of people, snatched a register off the desk, asked Aidan his and his father's name, and wrote them in. The clerk noticed, but made no attempt to interfere. Aidan's curiosity was gnawing at him. What kind of person had such authority? Royal blood might have explained it, but nobody with royal blood would act with such directness. Perhaps he was rich. Rich men tended to have social power. Dresborn had been similarly respected. But nothing like this man. Now we need to make a visit to the infirmary. The apparently wealthy patron said, as he led the way out again, past three rigid guards. And you are going to tell me how you arrived here. After Aidan was being re-bandaged by a middle-aged nurse, he told the man about all that had befallen him, leaving out details that might cast too dark a shadow on his father. So, your mother's friends have become your slave lords, and to boot, you are friendless, homeless, and penniless. Well, I think I can solve a part of that. Follow me. He strode, Aidan jogging at his side, to a row of closely built apartments and ducked under the doorway on the ground level. It was hardly the lodging of a wealthy man, and Aidan was left wondering again. Furnishings were simple, but the uniformity, the symmetry, and the intimidating spotlessness of the place pointed to an owner who tolerated no deviation from perfect order. Seating himself at the heavy oak table, chair protesting furiously, the man motioned for Aidan to do likewise. Your trials will begin on the first day of winter, when you will find a bunk with the apprentices. Until then, you may remain here, pending your mother's permission. Fees are dealt with. 
I'll have clothes delivered by evening. All I ask is that you keep the place tidy and help with the cooking, if you have any skill, for I certainly lack it. Most of my meals turn out like that greasy sludge we boil and throw from the battlements. It's even been suggested that my stew might be a more effective deterrent for attackers. Aidan was crying now. The man's kindness had knocked down his walls. The accumulated strain and injuries poured from him in deep sobs. You don't have to eat it. The sobs gave way to laughter, and the jumbled flood of emotions carried on for some time. I don't know how to thank you, Aidan said at last. I don't even know your name. Cook something I can swallow without effort, and I'll be thanked enough. My name is Osric. Aidan stared, mouth agape. Osric? General Osric? The General Osric? To you I am just Osric, understand? Aidan nodded, trying not to stare, failing. Supper will level your opinion of me. It was true. There was plenty of stew to be had, and Aidan went to bed hungry. Osric never cooked again, and Aidan began apprenticing to his childhood hero, the most famed of all Thurnish generals, as a chef, after all. Chapter 17 Any warmth now brought by the sun fled early and when the night sky was clear, shallow pools that lay in the open reflected icy stars for only a brief spell before they froze into opaque tiles. But strollers who happened to tread too freely on one of these tiles would be given the chance to see stars of their own. Though light blankets of snow settled occasionally, the frail coating seldom lasted the day, unlike the deep northern drifts. Aidan stepped carefully through the darkness along streets that were now familiar to him. He had not intended to be up so early, but Corey, an old friend of Osric's and owner of a bakery known to the whole city, had a way of charming sleep from the clutches of the sleeper. Aidan's morning began an hour earlier, when the wind drifted down from the southeast, from where Corey filled the air with maddening vapors. Dreams of roasting barley bread golden oatcakes, and a special blended grain breakfast loaves that crunched as if singing to the belly were enough to wrench anyone from slumber. It wasn't long before Aidan was at the service door, marked in the darkness by a frame of golden light. The main entrance had not been unbolted for sales, but as the general's apprentice, many back doors were now open to him. He slipped inside, and, before long, re-emerged, satchel bulging with breakfast loaves, and one, of course, in his hand. On the way back, something caught his eye, and he slipped into an archway against a door. Shapes were moving further down the road, darkly clad men whose movements were furtive and stealthy. They were busy with a window, expertly removing the shutters. Two of them climbed inside while the rest kept watch. 
Suddenly, the door of Aidan's alcove was shoved open, knocking him into the road. The light of a lantern fell directly on him as a man in his nightgown emptied a basket of refuse at his feet and told him to push off. The door slammed. The gang was looking at him. They knew. Tripe, he said, and ran. He glanced over his shoulder. Three of them were in pursuit. On an inspiration, he ducked into a broad lane that ended with a sharp bend. It was the worst place he had found for running at night. He still had the bruises. Nearing the end of the road, he slowed gradually, carefully, until he was walking. The men appeared at the top of the road, at a run. Aidan put his hands in his pockets, smiled at them, and sauntered around the corner. He heard the pounding of angry tread, the gritty crunch of boots on stone, then of boots on something far less gritty, and then the horrified screams as the three pair of boots took to the air and three bodies skidded along the ice and slammed into the wall. One lay groaning, but two scrambled to their feet and hobbled after the little shadow that darted around another corner. Aidan took several more turns in quick succession and tunneled into the darker alleys. He was sure he had lost them, but decided it would be best not to show himself in any of the broader roads. It meant a detour through the squalid part of town, where he had met the Anvil and his gang. The Heaps was the official name of the area, but everyone knew it as the Seeps. Most of the illegal trade and shady dealings in the city happened here. No signs marked businesses, at least not accurately. The barber could produce a few combs and a rusty razor on inspection, but no client ever emerged from his rooms with shortened hair. There was a cloth merchant who couldn't tell the difference between wool and silk, but who was able to supply, to those who earned his trust, second-hand jewellery at impossible prices. The innocent purveyor of pipe tobacco had patrons who seemed to have been leached of health. They would often enter his store in a frantic itch of paranoia, then, a little while later, float out with distant eyes and bleary smiles. The taverns here were dirty and loud, and the attached inn served a number of other purposes. Soldiers regularly swept the areas and made some arrests. But a business that needs no signboard simply dissolves away at the slightest hint of trouble. Aidan was making his way through a section where only the most desperate pursuer would follow. No one but a drunk or a fool walks through the darkness at the back of a sleazy tavern. And he was just that fool. At least he would be left alone. Rancid air spoke forcefully of the night's party the inland celebration known as Harvester's Toast. There would be many sore heads today. He feared that his would be one of them. His throat tightened. He felt dangerously close to retching. The vapors were particularly ripe this morning. One of his shoes sank into something soft. In the darkness, there was no telling what it was. He blocked his imagination, forcing himself to walk without thinking. The next street was hardly any better. This part of town needed a rainstorm with a temper. A few shadowy forms darted ahead of him through the narrow walkways. 
no doubt on shadowy pursuits. The streets opened up a little, and he quickened his pace. Just ahead were the academy and military courtyard. He raced over the open ground and reached the door to Osric's apartment as a clerk ducked out. Good luck, the man said, wiping his brow. You're late. The general is waiting for you, and it looks like he ate a thunderstorm for breakfast. But I'm still early. Not early enough for him. It's the opening assembly this morning, remember? Aidan hadn't forgotten, but the detour through the back alleys had taken longer than expected. The sky was growing light. He took a deep breath and stepped inside. Aidan! Osric spoke in a shattering tone of raw command. Even after seeing the gentler side of the man, Aidan still found it easy to preserve a healthy respect. Sometimes the general could be truly frightening. It had become clear that the first impression had been more or less correct. Osric was, in fact, built from a combination of metal, flint and fire, a solid monolith of a man that towered around seven feet off the ground. The steely frown he now directed at the boy would have withered a number of veteran soldiers in their shoes, but Aidan recognized this as the general's frustrated look, one that held no personal threat. Most of the officers, in fact, most who knew the general, were cautious. Aidan was one of the few who had learned to interpret, Where in the name of blackest torment have you been? As, I've been worried about you. It is the morning of the assembly, Osric barked. Do you want to be late? I got spotted by a gang working Baker's Lane. Had to run. The frown relaxed slightly, then deepened into a familiar look of pained exasperation. Aidan wondered what he had done wrong, but suddenly guessed it and sighed as Osric began. Could you not have given just half a thought to your appearance before leaving the house? It looks as if you mopped the floor with your head. You're wearing your sleeping shirt, and there are breadcrumbs all over your face. You would agree that I don't put much stock in appearances, but responsibility demands complete respectability. Aidan did not agree with the first statement at all, and wasn't too sure about the second, but he held his tongue. There were very few days when Osric didn't make some complaint about his appearance, especially his shoes. Even now he saw the general's eyes fixing themselves with growing ire on that area. What in all the rotting wastes did you walk through? I was keeping off the main roads. I had to take a detour. So you managed to find a route through a swamp. Aidan considered explaining, and then realized that Osric's swamp was several degrees better than the reality. If only it had been a beautiful swamp. In the end, he abandoned his defense and said, I brought you breakfast. Got the oven fire going before I left so you can melt cheese on some of Corey's breakfast loaves. Osric eyed him, clearly not ready to be mollified. Finally, he turned and finished with, Clean habits are the first guard against disease. A single desperate campaign will teach you that. One day you will accept it. Now where is this breakfast? The courtyard hummed with excitement. Three hundred boys had gathered from the city and the surrounding villages. 
Positions within the Castith Marshals, or Grey Marshals as they were often known, were coveted for reasons noble and otherwise. The Marshals carried great authority, and were trained in ways that were a matter of enduring mystery to those outside their ranks. Curiosity, therefore, was a strong lure. Others felt the temptations of power. It was understandable for a family to want one of their sons to be a Grey Marshal, but the ambitions of most were headed for disappointment, as the majority of applicants would be filtered out and referred to the regular army. Many fathers who stood around, loud with such eager praise for the institution, would soon be its most bitter critics. Aidan had not wanted his mother walking through the city for the sake of a ceremony, so he and Osric had visited her the day before. Aidan had laughed when she hung wordless at the sight of the towering general. "'Told you they didn't exaggerate,' Aidan said. She had been full of encouragement over the trials. Remembering her words gave him an added layer against the cold. Boys from the same villages chatted nervously, shoving and stamping in the chilly dawn, waiting for the mayor's opening speech. Aidan felt a sharp sting behind his good ear. The other side of his head was still dressed with some light bandages. He spun around in time to see a small boy with bright red hair turning away and almost managing to conceal a pea-shooter against his wrist. Aidan watched. Slowly the head pivoted, and the young eyes met his. They stared with such a grotesque parody of innocence, defying accusation, a look that was almost hostile. Aidan felt his skin grow hot. He was tempted to walk over and even the score, but at that point there was a general stirring and hushing as people began turning to the front. Three men approached the steps of a wooden podium. Aidan recognized those on the outside as two of the masters of studies whom he had met briefly at Osric's house. They were both short and grey, and the lined faces appeared to be etched with letters and runes that had been so many years before them, but apart from this they could not have been more dissimilar. Giddard, who crabbed his way up the stairs on the left, was withered like a man who had missed too many meals, and Rodwell, stumping heavily and filling the space on the right, appeared to have eaten them. The man in the middle, who by his splendid robes and chains would have to be Balfour, mayor of the city south, was tall and strong, and strode with confidence. He was a striking leader, displaying golden hair, golden rings, and a golden voice with which he now greeted the assembly. Blessings of the dawn to you, he said, his words ringing across the courtyard. Aidan wrinkled his nose at the man's lofty expression. It would have been pompous even for a gathering of kings. It is a fine day to embark on a noble course such as you have chosen, and well have you chosen. The Casteth Marshals are our pillars of strength, our shields of honour, and our ambassadors who carry themselves not with pride, but with the humility of service to our people. There was a warm buzz of agreement and loud cheers. Aidan wondered if the rest of the speech would continue along these lines, fine words chosen to hide facts behind a pretty glow. He wondered if spies was hiding behind the word ambassadors. 
Recently, he had learned that the marshals were not only trained in the ways of war, but were taught to speak several languages, and that much of their time was spent in places where foreign relations were complicated. But this was of minor interest. What mattered to him was that, of all positions associated with the military, the mention of marshals was the one to draw instant attention, even fear. Whatever their training was, he wanted it. Needed it. As you all know, there are only a few places made available each year. Silence fell over the courtyard. For the next two months, tests will be held until the selection of twenty is made known, and training begins in earnest. I would speak to those of you who do not find a place in the final number. Be bigger than the petty lure of jealousy. Remember that the selection process is not about choosing the best boys, but choosing those who are most suited to this particular form of service to our great city. A few grunts and calls of agreement sounded from various points in the crowd. It is important that we do not have marshals in whose ears other callings sing more sweetly. The next two months will enable us to know who belongs here. Today I ask of you two things. Commit to giving more than you have ever done, and have the bigness of heart to embrace either continuation or redirection with equal ardor. Balfour pressed his gaze masterfully over them. We are glad to have you all here this morning. May you advance with honor. He bowed his head and stepped back as the crowd applauded. Something zipped through the crowd, and Aidan felt another stinging bite behind his ear. The impressive accuracy only made him angrier. Clerks made their voices heard. They divided the assembly of boys into fifteen groups of twenty and directed them to bunks in the army barracks. Only those who made it through the selections would see the inside of the academy and the marshal's training grounds. Aidan gritted his teeth as he spied the red-headed pea-shooting tormentor at the back of his group. Pea-shot. That would be an appropriate name. Debtors had to have names, and there was a debt to settle. It was appropriate that this heckler had the same red hair as Emroy. An army sergeant was assigned to their group, and led the way through the heavy iron gates of the barracks, across a large courtyard, down an airy corridor, and past many doors with numbered brass plates above them. Sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. They stopped outside number nineteen. Inside was a long room lined with beds, upper and lower. The boys waited while two clerks conferred. Aidan drifted to the back of the line, where Peashot idled and looked about with cocky self-assurance. His arrogant slouch and mean little eyes were enough to light Aidan's fires. The rage stored away from fantasies he had cradled of revenge on his father, on Emroy, on the anvil, surged up in him until he almost choked. It was time to change things. He had been weak under his father. But today was the beginning of a new part of his life. He would no longer sit passively and be a soft target for every malicious boot. If scores were not settled, who would ever learn to respect him? 
they needed to know that he was not afraid to take revenge, and it would begin now. With no introduction, he grabbed the smaller boy's ear and twisted it until he saw the look of pain. If you want to keep your ear, midget, then aim elsewhere. Understand? The little boy tried to grab for Aidan's face and kick at his shins, but the pain Aidan was causing took the strength from those efforts. The little foxy eyes, though, were defiant, even mocking. Aidan's anger leapt in him, and he made no attempt to tame it. He hit the boy in the stomach and shoved him against the wall, thumping his head hard against the bricks. The defiance fell away, like a shattered screen, and revealed someone very young and small. Aidan saw his advantage and twisted the ear further. Understand, he repeated. Yes, the boy said, coughing and gasping. Aidan was filled with a strange elation. Power. Control. At last he was taking charge of matters. Instead of cowering in corners, he was dealing with those who needed to be put in their place. He grinned to himself as he walked away. He felt good. At least he expected to feel good. Instead, he became aware of a strange, creeping discomfort. He tried the smirk again, but it reminded him of the way the anvil had leered. He straightened his face out and began explaining to some inner judge why it had been necessary, how the debt was now settled. But he knew he had done more than settle a debt. It had not been about justice at all. He had let his anger out to satisfy itself, and the aftertaste was not sweet. He tried to pass it off as a small thing, but small as it was, it carried the odour of his father's lessons, as if poured out from the same jar. And then he imagined what he would see in Callery's face if she had been watching. And perhaps she had. He felt a deep revulsion with himself that drowned out the next set of instructions. Boys were rushing into the room, leaping onto the hard boards. Aidan was left with the bed at the entrance. He noticed that Peashot had no choice but the one above his. The boy tried to hide his face. Aidan guessed the reason when he saw a sleeve dabbing downturned eyes. And he could not smirk now. The soldier was speaking. Your first assignment is to collect bedding straw from the army farm on the south road. You are all injured. Five of you have a useless leg, five a useless arm, and the rest are blind. He handed out white bandages and allocated afflictions to the disappointed boys. If we see anyone using an injured limb or a blindfolded boy using his sight, he will be going home before supper. On that first day, there was a lot of laughter, and names were learned quickly. Nobody from Aidan's group went home, but it was rumoured that three from another group had cheated and been sent away in disgrace. Though he joined in, as was required, the day was poisoned for Aidan. He could not help but notice that Peashot neither laughed nor smiled all day. He resolved to make amends as soon as possible, 
so that evening he took his dinner plate and sat opposite the small boy, who had found an empty table. Listen, Peashot, I'm sorry for being an ass earlier. I was just angry. If I can help you... The boy stood up and left the table without a word. Aidan felt as foolish as he looked, sitting alone. The next day they ran around the city twice, seven miles that had them gasping for breath. Aidan managed the first lap easily, but during the second his leg began to weaken. Since recovering the ability to walk, he had not attempted such sustained exercise. He was one of the last ones back. On his return, he was directed to the stables, where he found the rest of the boys. The first job was to take out the old straw, which had them trying not to breathe. The next was to empty the barrack latrines, during which ten of the better-dressed boys staggered out and simply went home. At the evening meal, an uninviting colourless stew that tasted vaguely of lentils and smelled, like everything else, of latrines, Aidan tried again to apologise, and met with the same result. It was no less embarrassing. He realised that he was feeling constantly awkward. When there were activities underway, he, like everyone, was slotted into some kind of social grouping by duties or by the officials. He belonged. But in the idle time, little clusters or pairs of friends drew together, and he was left standing alone. Peashot had joined in with another group. As a small-town boy, Aidan had never really made friends. He'd simply grown up with them. He wasn't sure what to do or how to do it, and began to feel increasingly out of place. At times, when he took his bowl to a table by himself, too uncertain to impose on anyone, the loneliness and embarrassment of his isolation became so strong he started to consider just walking out on the whole thing. One evening, approaching his empty table again, he decided it was time to put timidity aside, time to cross some barriers. He recognized a rowdy group from his dorm and sat at the end of one of their benches. Since leaving the Misty Vales, he had still to share a decent conversation with anyone his age, so he was more than a little uneasy. As he sat, the talk died. All eyes turned on him. You're the northerner, aren't you? asked a strong, dark-haired boy with handsome features and the most unusually bold, piercing eyes. Aidan had seen him often. Malik was his name. He was popular, definitely someone who would be good to have as a friend. Aidan smiled. Yes, I got here before the winter. Malik frowned. Why would I care when you got here? There was a ripple of partly withheld laughter. Aidan felt a sudden prick of doubt. Had he aimed too high with this group? They seemed to be speaking a language of their own to which he was not privy. Their eyes were full of it. Tell us something interesting about where you're from, North Boy. Malik said. What do you mean? Anything. Something that we wouldn't know. The boys gave him their full attention, but not in a considerate way. Their fascination reminded him of how jackals or vultures behave around a stumbling fawn. 
He tried to string his thoughts together, stumbling. Well, uh, something that maybe I don't know if you've heard, but the snow there can easy get to three feet on the fields. In a bad winter, that is, sometimes. Blank eyes regarded him. Sorry, North Boy, but was that it? The interesting thing? Deep snow? Well, it was always very exciting, uh, that is, for us at least. Aidan was thrashing about in his memory for anything that could rescue the situation. Once we lost a sheep and we had to burrow around for half a day to find it. Thomas, actually, Thomas was my friend there, he got lost himself, even though he was only twenty yards from the pen. Aidan laughed to cover his discomfort. He laughed alone. Their eyes were lances. Then, when he fell silent, the whole table erupted in hard, barking hilarity. He had never known laughter could be so unfriendly. His appetite was gone, but he dropped his eyes and ate simply to disguise his humiliation and confusion. He did not belong here. They did not want him. Hey, North Boy, sing us a song. They say that northern lads have voices like milkmaids. The laughter broke out again. This time the table alongside had caught on. More than one reference was made to his pretty bonnet bandage that covered most of his head. Silence, everyone! A song! A song! They stared at him, hungry. Though nothing showed on his face, Aidan was drowning in a maelstrom of anger and tears. He dropped his spoon in the bowl, stood, turned, and headed for the gate. A wave of boos and jeering rose up and struck him from behind. It only helped to carry him forward. When he reached the gate, it was shut. The guard had slipped away. There was another boy waiting, tall and skinny as a winter tree. You also wanting to leave? The other asked. Aidan nodded. Then he looked up. Your accent is different he said. I'm from Verma. Don't fit in. Not with this crowd, the tall boy said. Anyone from outside Casteth gets treated like gutter scum. Not all of them are bad, if I'm honest, but there's enough of the bad ones to turn everyone else rotten. Oi! Both boys looked out through the gate, and Aidan took two rapid steps back. The anvil stood just within the light cast by the barrack torches, his gang assembling around him. He strode forward, dipping and hoisting his shoulders, thrusting his chin, jerking from side to side. This time there was no mistaking it. The half-dancing gate was a studied and perfected expression of raw hostility. Threat, challenge, defiance, all combined and embodied. It was almost as if belligerence had been turned to art and then made to walk. For the first time, Aidan got a proper look at the anvil. He was not the biggest member of his gang by height or breadth, but he was certainly the biggest by presence. He swaggered and jinked with an expansiveness and intrusiveness that dominated the space around him. Quick hands twitched and quicker eyes constantly thrust here and there like accusing fingers. 
He did not wear rags. His clothes looked surprisingly good, but nobody would have taken him for a young man of class. The way he carried himself bespoke his character all too clearly. Look at the little army men, nice and safe behind their little gate, he shouted. With a sudden lunge, he reached through the bars and swung a thick club, catching the tall boy on the cheek and knocking him to the ground. There was a roar of applause from the gang. Oi, would you be looking at that one? said the anvil, pointing his club at Aiden. I think we remember you, and I think we know your name. What's his name, lads? Oosehead, they roared. Come out here, Oosehead. I think you've been needing some attentions from us. Last time you left early. But I heard you stay to watch your friend. Isn't that so? The boy from Verma was on his feet again, tottering slightly. What does he mean? He asked Aiden, his voice shaking. Don't know. Never seen him before. Aiden lied immediately wishing he hadn't when he saw that the boy believed him without question. It felt like the time he had tricked a lamb into taking a mouthful of feathers and glue. At first Aiden had thought it would be funny, but by the end he was laughing only to conceal a growing misery at betraying the simple animal's trust. And this open-faced boy had not deserved a lie, even a little one. Aidan's thoughts were interrupted as something struck his shoulder hard. He saw the club skittering past into the shadows. He turned and walked away from the gate. Thief! Thief! he heard from behind him. You stole my club! You'll be coming out here and handing it back from your knees or I'll hunt you down, you duck-livered coward! Aidan kept walking. He saw the guard hurry back to his post and heard him shout at the gang, but the anvil was not to be put out by a soldier behind a fence. He shouted right back, and the jeers rose from the rest of the gang too. Come into our world, soldier man. Let's see how long you last. We've marked you now. We'll know you. We'll learn where you live, who your family is. You fetch us that little thieving coward and toss him out here, or you'll be sorry. It was the last Aiden heard. He hurried out of sight behind the buildings and found an empty fire pit. By the time he was able to think clearly, the surge of self-pity that had almost borne him out the gate had passed. The boy from Verma settled on the other side of the fire pit. There was blood on his cheek, and it looked like he was trying not to cry. What's your name? Aiden asked. Lorimer. Lorimer was as awkward as he looked, but there didn't seem to be a mean bone in his gangly frame, and Aidan discovered that it only takes a single friend to put loneliness to flight. He would be able to face the next day. They both would. The rest of the month continued in a medley of exercise, running, hauling, climbing, even icy swimming, and a good deal more menial labor. Aidan and Lorimer remained, but some boys found, as Balfour put it, that other callings sang more sweetly in their ears. Near the end of the month, everyone was told to gather in the courtyard. The chief supervisor announced that they would have one day to rest, and recommended that they make good use of it. More than two hundred of you will be going home, he said. The first round of eliminations takes place the day after tomorrow. 
Aidan bit on a knuckle. He knew he was not ready. Chapter 18 This elimination is one that tests agility, strength, and stamina. It was ironic that Rodwell, the soft, rotund master who embodied none of these qualities, should be explaining the rules. For two nights, Aidan had fretted over the need to sleep, and more or less kept himself awake with the fretting. But there was no lethargy now. He fixed his attention on Rodwell, not missing a detail. The crisp morning caused puffs of steam to dance around the man's mouth as he continued in a surprisingly thin voice for one of such generous girth. You will run from here to the army farm, where you will complete a series of obstacles, return along a trail to this square, and finish between the two orange poles. Orange flags have been set out to mark the entire course. The rules are simple. First, you must complete the whole circuit, including every obstacle. Anyone who is unable to complete an obstacle will be punished. Carrying rocks, crawling through mud, that sort of thing. In every case, the punishment will take longer than the obstacle, so skill and agility will be rewarded. The second rule, no interfering with your opponents. Foul play will result in disqualification. The first eighty to complete the course will progress to the second month and the final eliminations. Aidan took his place at the start, trembling partly with excitement, but mostly with worry. He had recovered well from his injuries in the Misty Vales, but he had not yet reached his full strength, not even close, and the fire had set him back further. Looking at the crowding boys, he wondered if he would be able to beat enough of them. Most were bigger than him, and many looked strong, as if they had been training for years. His worry deepened. What would Osric say if he failed at the first trial? Race officials approached. The babble of nervous voices died down. Aidan found he was breathing fast. The churning in his gut made him feel suddenly lightheaded and weak. Two officials raised their flags. Silence. Every head was raised, every muscle tensed. The flags dropped. Aidan felt only partly conscious. The roar of voices, the shoves from all sides, and the working of his own legs were dreamlike, as if his senses had overloaded. Then it all burst on him, and he found himself in the center of the surging mass. Some were sprinting ahead. Others jogged, husbanding their strength. Some broke off to the sides and filtered into the back roads, but most kept together and tramped up through the main streets towards the city gate, temporarily disrupting the morning's business. He recognized Lorimer, the tall boy from Verma, loping away near the front on his long spider legs. The boy could certainly run. It was as they were passing through the gate that a tight group drew up alongside Aidan. The large boy nearest him growled. Go home, North boy, and gave him a sudden shove to the side. Aidan lurched and just managed to get a foot underneath his weight, but the shove had carried him off the road and he trod on an apple-sized stone that turned beneath him. 
In one horrible instant he felt and almost heard the rending of ligaments as his ankle twisted. Immediately he took the weight off the foot and tumbled into the rocks. The bruises were nothing in comparison to the pain that had shot through him that still thrummed in his ankle. He sat up and looked around. There were no officials here. Nobody could make a case for him. He got to his feet carefully and tried a few steps. It wasn't as bad as he had feared. As long as he avoided uneven ground, it was a pain that could be endured. Another twist would finish him off, though. Making sure he kept away from other runners, he set out, grimacing at the first strides until he became used to the little stabs of pain. He was sure he would not be the only one to sustain some injury, and it was going to take a lot more than a mild sprain to hold him back. Once he had found his pace again, Aidan kept slightly behind the middle of the field, preserving his strength. He knew the day would drain him of every last drop. The route was familiar, but somehow it was different today. He wondered why he was breathing so hard. Then he realized that even the moderate pace of the midfield was faster than any pace they had set before. But if he slowed down, he would never make the first eighty. He tried not to think about the distance and kept his eyes on the ground, setting targets of fifty yards at a time. When they arrived at the farm, orange flags guided them to the first of the obstacles, a series of a dozen ropes that had to be scaled, traversed, and descended. Falls meant starting again. Aidan decided to catch his breath before beginning. He knew it had been the right decision when he watched a group of panting boys run past him and attempt the climbs. They all slowed, began trembling, and slid down, burning their hands. Once he was breathing normally, Aidan took hold of a rope and scaled it with little difficulty. From there he traversed another that was fastened between beams, climbing underneath, using hands and heels. He descended and ascended the next two ropes and traversed again. For one who had spent much of his time clambering through high branches, this section was a breeze. He was a lot nearer the front of the field when he descended the final rope and set off for the next obstacle. The track wound over a steep hill coated in a wintry fur of long, dry grass. On all the north and west-facing slopes, the grass was frosted white, awaiting the sun's touch. Aidan looked out from the crest over a series of hills dotted with orange flags. The distance was intimidating, but it was less worrisome than the spectacle immediately beneath him. Sunk partly in the shadow of the slope was a muddy dam, and its surface was alive with struggling, splashing bodies. He cringed. That water would be freezing today. The swim, however, was only about three hundred yards, and there were rescue boats at various points. They would probably mean both life and penalties for those who clung to them. A few boys crawling around the edge of the dam let him know what the penalty would be in this case. He ran down the slope and sat on the bank to remove his shoes, but the nearby official shouted to him that the dam was to be swum fully dressed. Aidan groaned. That would turn the three hundred yards into a lot more. He ran into the water, gasping with every deepening step. The water was so cold it stung. When he was deep enough, he began paddling. 
At first he tried to kick, but his encased feet seemed to pull him backwards. He found the best was to bend his knees and let the shoes drag in his wake, while pulling with his arms. It was like paddling a mostly sunken coracle. The going was very slow, but fortunately he had no lingering injuries on his arms, and they felt strong enough. He began to drift past a few swimmers who bobbed and splashed around him. From all sides he could hear rapid breathing, and by the time he reached the middle, his breath was beginning to whine. The water was bitterly cold here, sapping his strength further. He saw several boys clinging to boats. Aidan turned on his back and propelled himself just enough to keep his feet from sinking, but without the use of his legs it proved hardly worth the effort. He was growing worried. The water here was dark, cold, and deep. Would it not be wiser to head over to a boat, and rather do the mud crawl? Two laps around the dam if you touch a boat, the nearest official called. Two laps? He would never make up that loss. The shore was not far away. He decided to push on. Breathing fast and paddling with short, almost desperate strokes, he turned away. There was no concealing the urgency in his panting now. The shore hardly seemed to come any closer. He was sinking deeper in the water than he had at first, obviously slowing. The scream for help was on his lips when he sensed a change. It was growing warmer. Sudden hope gave him a burst of strength. He clawed at the water with doubled efforts until he paddled into a sun-warmed, muddy swirl and decided to test the depth. His feet touched the bottom. He waded the last forty paces and stumbled up the bank, water cascading from his clothes and sloshing in his shoes. It was high time for a rest, but another swimmer crawled out of the water behind him and set off for the next obstacle. Aidan stumbled after him. The next sections involved climbing over nets and walls, filling a leaking bucket from a nearby river using a cup, Sprinters required fewer trips and finished in a fraction of the time taken by joggers. Crawling through muddy trenches, carrying containers of rocks up a hill, and, finally, running the homeward trail. It was the rock hall that finished Aiden. He'd been able to nurse his ankle over the other obstacles, but doing so in this one had put too much weight on his bad leg. It ached in a way that worried him. He knew his reserves were running out. Though he had gained much ground on the agility sections, he began to lose it again as he started the trail. Runners passed him. Ten, twenty, forty. Eventually he stopped counting. A glance behind showed lots of empty land and little else. He imagined the disappointment on Osric's face and decided that he had more to give. Blisters ate into his feet as he clumped along the trail. He had to walk the hills, but flew down the declines with long runaway strides. He passed several boys on the last downhill, the achievement spurring him on. But when he reached the level at the foot of the slope, the feeling of weightlessness died under the crush of exhaustion. He stumbled to a halt. His shoes felt like millstones. Hands on knees, he doubled over, groaning as bones and muscles made desperate complaints. 
He was too tired even to swat the flies that settled and began crawling over his face. He needed a moment. There was a sharp sound of something flicking through the air. A wasp-like sting brought him up, and he slapped a hand against his injured neck. Peashot glared and ran. Aiden forgot everything in the surge of indignation. This was one injury, one foul more than he was prepared to take. He had no hope of catching the fleet-footed fox, at least not with heavy plodding strides, so he tore at his laces, hurled the shoes away, and set off in pursuit. Immediately, he wondered why he hadn't done this earlier. Peashot glanced over his shoulder just in time to see Aiden flying towards him. Wrath and fear urged them to a speed that should have been impossible at this stage of the day. Aiden had to slow somewhat, and Peashot, ever aware, slowed as much as he could afford while still preserving a safe distance. The trail led them back to the road, and they ran on, the walls of Castith rising in the distance. Aiden's feet were taking a hammering on the stony road, but freedom from the waterlogged shoes had given him wings. A large crowd of boys was passing through the city gates about a mile ahead. It looked like a good hundred of them. So the hope of making the first eighty was gone. He paid no attention to the runners he was passing and fixed his eyes on the little darting menace. Peashot was showing himself to be fleeter of foot than Aiden had expected. They ran on, weaving through slower groups, and began swerving between carts and pedestrians as the road intersected others and traffic increased. Finally, the walls were before them. They sped through the city gates, blind to the guards and deaf to the cheers and laughter of the people. Instead of taking the main road, which was now heavily congested, Peashot slipped down a narrow alley. It enabled him to streak away from the crowds, but not from his pursuer. Over the past weeks, this had become Aidan's ground, too. The gap between the boys closed as they threaded the dim corridors, moving swiftly through the city towards the barracks. Aidan could hear his tormentors breathing now. Another few turns and he would have him. Finally, they burst into the open. Peashot stumbled for the last time, and it was all Aiden needed. He shoved from behind, throwing the smaller boy down, and then pinned him on his stomach, a knee in his back. But now that he had Peashot at his mercy, he hesitated. He remembered the last time he had taken personal revenge, letting his temper and hatred have their way. It had not felt good. It had not made him feel strong. Threatening, yes, but not strong nor had it done anything to mend the hollowness his father had left in him. As he looked at his fist, he understood for the first time that using it this way could never be strength. It was the opposite of strength, a spineless yielding to low urges. He took the weight off his knee and sat down against a sun-bathed wall, giving himself over to the ragged pursuit of air and the throbbing in his bad leg. Peashot turned over and sat up, surprise and relief blending on his face between the red and white splotches of exhaustion. Noises reached them from the far end of the courtyard, as two boys crossed the space and were greeted with, Seventy-five! Seventy-six! It only took a heartbeat, for realization burst on Aidan and Peashot. 
they leapt from the ground and sprinted over the cobbles, just as a large group of runners emerged at the other end, also at a full sprint. The distance closed. It would be tight. Peashot was ahead, but Aidan's bare feet moved in a blur, and he caught up. The other boys were taller, fierce-looking contestants that pounded the earth with big strides. Wind hummed in Aidan's ears as he leaned forward and threw every last ounce of strength into his legs. He passed the smaller boy, and they shot between the finish markers to the sound of Seventy-seven! Seventy-eight! His bad leg buckled, and he plunged forward, skidding and tumbling, until he came to rest in a panting heap. He was only dimly conscious of a growing riot of voices behind him, something about barefoot and rules. A horrible thought began to grow as one of the race officials approached him. What happened to your shoes? the official asked. I took them off on the last section of the trail. You were told to keep them on. It was one of the rules. We were only told that for the swim. Nobody said anything about the run. The official shook his head. You should have known. You are meant to keep your shoes and will have to be disqualified. It means that... Silence! The voice was enormous and quite familiar. The courtyard hushed instantly. Osric was not shouting, just making himself heard. Those near him backed away. Rules are presented before they are to be obeyed, not after. Agreed? Everyone agreed, except the boy who had apparently raised the objection. Osric fixed his eyes on him. The boy nodded quickly. No rule against running barefoot was made known. Does anyone contest that? Nobody contested it. Osric walked away, and conversation resumed. Aidan hobbled over towards Peashot. There were several things he wanted to say, many of them barbed. The small boy's defiant screen was up, but Aidan had no desire to break it again. Finally, putting his hand to the tender spot on his neck, Aidan grinned. Good shot, he said, and lurched off to the barracks. Chapter 19 The nurse removed the last of the bandages, and Aidan stared at the polished brass plate, shocked by his reflection. The top of your ear will not regrow, I'm afraid. The hair on the side of your head may, in time, but I doubt it. I think the best would be to keep your hair a little longer to cover the damaged area. Aidan barely heard. He had not expected this. There were scars that gave a kind of respectability, but this did the exact reverse. A heaviness descended on him. How could he present himself in daylight? He looked like a chicken half-plucked and part-mutilated. One of the younger nurses walked into the room. He turned his head away in embarrassment, keeping the ruined side of his head from her. The older nurse saw what was happening and gestured for her young assistant to leave. This may be a difficult time for you, Aidan, but you will be your own worst critic. Nobody will pay it as much attention as you, and eventually not even you will notice. Besides, you are strong and healthy. 
You have much that others don't. On the way back to his dorm, words fluttered around and behind him. Singed, branded, scorched, roasted. Then there was the innocent question of a child come to visit his father at the barracks. Daddy, what happened to that boy's head? He looked so ugly. The embarrassment of the parents was almost more stinging than the curiosity of their child. The nurse, Aidan was beginning to realise, had not really told him the truth. The first eighty were back, following a two-day rest. Aidan had spent most of the time sleeping and reading at Osric's house. His leg and ankle were so stiff and sore that he could not walk the day after the race. He had been looking forward to the company of the others. Now he dreaded it. The groups had been rearranged, and the only face he recognized from his original dorm was Peashot's. The reception from the others was as bad as he'd feared. Wow, what happened to him? You should have kept the bandage. There's a barber out there who needs to be tried in court. You forgot to toast the other side. If I had a hog with a face like yours, I'd dock its tail and... Ouch! Which snivelling son of a... Aidan stared in surprise. Peashot faced the big boy down, his little tube still poised. It was Jemro, a beefy young giant said to be as mean as he was strong. For someone of his size, he covered the distance at an impressive speed. Peashot ducked the first blow and landed one of his own in a muscle-bound neck before the momentum of the charge carried him to ground. He received only one stunning punch to the eye. The next stopped short when Aiden grabbed a handful of blonde hair and tugged. Jemro bellowed and leapt to his feet, catching Aiden with a wild backhand that sent him reeling. Aiden's bad right leg collapsed under him, but he scrambled to his feet again. He was not afraid of boys like this. If you had a hog, he shouted, your manners would make your mother unsure which one to feed on the floor. Jemro looked like he did not know exactly what Aiden meant, but he understood the tone clearly enough. Nobody insults me, he yelled, and charged. Aiden backed away quickly, taking his weight on his good leg and keeping his eyes locked on Jemro's until he felt the wall behind him. As the charge commenced, he narrowed his eyelids to slits and let his features contort with the anticipation of pain. Jemro would crush him against the wall. The eagerness in the big boy's face was plain to see. Then, when the distance between them was little over a body's length, Aidan dropped under the charge and felt the wall shudder with a meaty thud and a clonk that had the percussive quality of a skull. Jemro moaned. His trembling knees appeared unable to reach a decision. Aidan assisted them with a good kick, dropping the bully in a solid heap. He stepped back and waited, but the oversized boy only cradled his head and whimpered. Aidan hadn't exactly thumped him. It hadn't been a fight in the traditional sense, but he didn't think Jemro would be too eager to start with him again. The chatter resumed as he walked back. Boys retold their favorite moments of the encounter in excited voices. Aidan found his bunk. It was the same one, and Peashot had his too.
You don't have to fight my battles. Peashot said, I didn't ask for your help. I didn't ask for yours. Why did you shoot him? Peashot thought about it. He just needed tenderizing. When he started speaking like that, I had no choice. Why did you think I needed tenderizing? Aidan asked. You reminded me of someone I knew. Someone I owed. And now? No, you're all right now. Good, Aidan said, feeling his bruised jaw. I'm feeling tender enough. The next month was one of study. At the end of the month, they would be examined on the knowledge they had acquired. Their characters would then be reviewed and the final list of twenty names compiled. The bombardment of information began on the first day and covered history, law, navigation and cartography, foreign relations and war strategy. Giddard drew a few chuckles when he pointed out that the last two subjects were not intended as a sequence. Those who could not write sweated with the effort of retaining information that now streamed from the masters. Giddard and Rodwell took the classes of history and law respectively, and both proved to be thoroughly impressive teachers, particularly Giddard. He could hold the whole lecture hall in silence, retelling ancient chronicles in a way that brought dead kings to life and stirred the dust of forgotten battles until they raged again in the minds of his students. Law was far more interesting than any had expected. Rodwell, in his piping voice, presented the subject by making people the focus rather than policies. He was careful to maintain a flow of interesting examples, illustrating how laws were applied to individual situations. Unfortunately, he also maintained a flow of frothy missiles, as those near the front quickly discovered. It was a curious thing to see boys stampeding into his class, only to fill up from the back. Aidan began to itch again with a returning hunger for knowledge, a hunger that he had known back in the Misty Vales, when his mother had been able to teach him without interference. His father had exploded at them one afternoon, accusing her of turning Aidan against him with her lessons. By then, Aidan had reached the stage where he was conversant in two languages. Callery had also been taught Arunian, and the three of them had often shared long conversations in the foreign tongue. Clawman, who had always sneered at the idea of being taught anything by his wife, had seen these gatherings as a personal attack, as if he were being shown up for his illiteracy, excluded and mocked. It was during the last of these confrontations when Aidan had stepped in to defend his mother and learned to fear his father's hands. After that, Nessa had stopped teaching her son during the day and only risked short lessons at night. Now, without the looming dread of his father's wrath, Aidan's mind stirred, looked about, and found itself eager. He scribbled notes as fast as his hand would allow. Once, when the boys reading over his shoulder began to distract him, he switched to Arunian and was rewarded with their frustration and eventual loss of interest. Classes would end at mid-afternoon, and the boys could spend the evenings as they chose. Most gathered to discuss and refresh themselves on what they had been taught during the day, cudgelling their brains to retain the growing mountain of material. Few could read or write, 
some of the literate ones kept to themselves, revising their notes in private. Others, like Aidan, would read them out to the groups that quickly formed around them. It was no labor to him. At last, his company was widely sought, even if it was only for the sake of what he could offer. Peashot was seldom absent from these groups. Aidan often noticed him repeating extracts to himself and imagined his ears to have the same foxy sharpness as his eyes. Though they were not quite friends, there was a growing understanding between them, a growing respect. There were friendlier, politer boys, but there was something dependable about Peashot that ran deeper than his manners, which were appalling at all times. Aidan realized it when he imagined being in another fight, though he wasn't sure how. He knew that Peashot would be the one to stand with him. Not many in the dormitory could read, so Aidan was regularly prevailed upon. Jemro objected on the first night, saying he would smash the mouth of the next person who opened it, because he wanted to sleep. There was a short lull, and then an eruption of voices, individual boys finding courage in the anonymity of the mass. Jemro was told, among other things, to go sleep at the farm with the other lazy beasts, to go have a rematch with the wall, and to go stuff his head into a compost heap and moan there. The upshot was that he pretended to sleep while Aidan read, repeating sections that some struggled with and adding a few bits of relevant information gathered from his own reading. Some proved to be adept learners, in spite of the inability to use letters. One boy, Vale, understood foreign relations in such depth, his father being a sea merchant, that he was able to explain some aspects in even more detail than the lecturer. He also seemed to be possessed of a near-perfect memory, recalling any facts that had been too quick for the pen. They assumed he was illiterate until he snatched one of Aidan's more poorly recorded pages and filled in the blanks. Vale simply did not need to write in order to remember. When it was discovered that Aidan was apprenticed to the great general himself, he was harried for inside information concerning the exams. But Osric had foreseen this, and forbidden Aidan to contact him until the exams were over. The weeks passed, and the day approached. A stony-faced clerk explained how things would proceed. All the exams would be oral. There would be six rooms, one per exam. The boys would enter each of the rooms individually, where they would be asked a set of questions, and their answers would be evaluated. The announcement caused an immediate outcry and panic. What was the sixth topic? The clerk would tell them nothing more. Aidan was kept up late the night before the exams with questions and requests to revise sections. Nobody minded. Even Jemro was seen to be mouthing a few of the passages. The big day arrived. It was a dark, icy morning, an iron sliver of midwinter's heart. The courtyard was buried under frozen sleet. Boots stamped constantly. The same clerk instructed the group to line up according to height. Peashot mumbled something and scraped his way to the front. Aidan was only a few places behind. Once a boy was called, 
The rest would not see him again until they had finished their examinations and were taken to a hall where they were to wait. Aidan watched as Peashot was called and led towards the first exam. The shivering, stamping line watched in silence. But things got noisy when they realized conversation was not forbidden. Aidan's turn came sooner than he had expected. He tried to calm himself as he was led along a one-walled, open-air passage to the first room. An official stopped him and made him wait several paces short of a closed door. When the door creaked open, the boy who had stood ahead of him emerged wearing a look of abject shock. Next! A dart could not have given him a sharper jolt. Aidan scurried into the room where he was confronted by a large desk, behind which sat Giddard, his lined face as hard as the morning's ice, and two clerks who were dipping quills and preparing to score the new candidate. Aidan suddenly realized that Giddard was speaking, no, had finished speaking, and was looking at him, apparently awaiting a response. I... I'm sorry. I wasn't listening properly. Not listening properly? That's a poor start when our purpose is to determine if you listened properly for the past month. I asked your name. My name is... Uh, his name. What was it? Giddard furrowed his brow. The scribes frowned. Thoughts scattered like rabbits under a hawk's shadow. There would be no chance of recalling anything now, not even a name. What a way to leave. He would be known as Aidan the Nameless. Ah! Aidan, sir. Yes, Aidan. That's my name. Aidan. The clerks frowned again and shook their heads as they wrote. Very well, Aidan. I have four questions for you. Try to answer promptly. He directed a meaningful look. Yes, sir. The clerks dipped their pens and held them ready to pronounce judgment on the attempt. First, name the kings who marked the seven epochs in Thurna's history. Aidan relaxed. This would be easy. Then Don, Tarna, Mur, Athgrim, Elif, Rocknera, and Elgar, who still holds the throne at Tolinro. Do you want me to say that Tarna was a queen and not a king? Noted, Giddard said without looking up. What is the origin of our city and its name? It was started by prospectors who discovered a large silver deposit, and while they were here they found that the soil was much more fertile than at the coast. After a few years they were making more from crops than from mining. The name of the city is an abbreviation. It was originally called Castle of Athgrim, shortened to Castith. Originally it was much smaller, and only the keep— That will do. Next, why did Thernet lose the southern reach of its sea border? This was something that had been covered at the end of one of the first days, when many pairs of eyes had glazed over. Aidan had taken notes. He could see the words in front of him, where well, there was a problem. A big problem. He began tentatively. It was during the... Uh, the floods of the... the... Era of Mur, when the, the soil. What is the matter, boy? At this rate, your answer will span the morning. I'm sorry, sir. It's just. 
I made that section of notes in Orunian and Cleo Aruna Amenim in Liriastor. Aidan should probably have expected to find that he was not the only one in the room who knew the language. He had not spoken it in a long time, but was able to recite his notes with something far nearer to fluency than he had achieved by translation. One of the clerks smiled slightly and made a note. The other looked at Giddard, blank, waiting for enlightenment. It was correct, Giddard said to him, with a touch of amusement. Final question. What do you feel was the biggest mistake made by any of the kings during the epoch of Athgrim? Aidan considered. He knew what the wizened master wanted to hear, but he had a different view on this, one he was eager to present. Banning of the Midwinter Jubilee in the reign of Leod. Giddard frowned, clearly disappointed. How could that be worse than doubling taxes and wasting the money on royal finery, or starting a war in a desert where troops would be defeated by lack of water? Well, in my hometown, which is the Misty Vales, Giddard nodded. Every year we held a fair, but one year we had a new sheriff, and he decided that the fair was wasting money and slowing production because it took people away from their work. Instead of working harder, laborers just stood in the fields and complained for months. It was the worst yield ever. They still grumble about it as though something had been stolen from them. The sheriff lost more support from that than from his fancy clothes and the big carriage that our taxes paid for. We replaced him before the year was up. I think that banning the Midwinter Jubilee was the thing that got people to hate King Leod. It was only two months later that the coup began, leading up to the Crimson Summer. I think people are used to putting up with wars and taxes, but this would have felt like the king was attacking their happiness. I think it was the decision that made Leod an enemy to his people. That's a new perspective, Giddard said rubbing his chin in contemplation. And not without merit. He nodded at the clerks who made their entries. One more question, he said. The clerks looked up in surprise. I understand that you have perused the five generals of the Elgin Epoch. As a young historian, how would you describe the nature of recording? Aidan shuffled. Was it a trap? Had Giddard been one of the contributors? Obviously the man had spoken to Osric, so there was no backing down from his original criticism of the book. Very creative, he said at last. Giddard nodded, a hint of mischief in his eyes. You may proceed to the next exam. Law proved a less enjoyable examination. It seemed that Rodwell was in the clutches of a bad breakfast because his face twitched and contorted during Aidan's answers, making concentration difficult and confidence impossible. Aidan knew the answer to the first question, which involved levels of crime and punishment. He was less convincing with the next one, dealing with means of assessing witness integrity. But it was the last question that he found nearly impossible to answer, with the corpulent man wincing and shuddering at random causing his chins to wobble and drop little beads of sweat. Aidan was asked to give an example of how mercy might be allowed a voice at the court of justice. The memory of the girl crying for her father at the city gate was still vivid in Aidan's mind, and he explained how sentences might be mitigated for the sake of dependence. 
Rodwell did not seem impressed with the answer, saying that such mitigation would then encourage large, unsustainable families. Aidan left feeling thoroughly deflated. Navigation and cartography presented no difficulties, the names of towns, rivers, and mountains being long known to him. The calculation of distances and directions, and drawing according to scale, he explained easily. The examiner for foreign relations was a young man named Collis. He had an apparent love for questionable cultures, and bristled visibly at any hint of intolerance. There is no such thing as a bad culture, he would say, just as there is no such thing as a bad spice. It's all about being able to appreciate and understand from an unprejudiced perspective. Collis looked bright and eager. Well, Aidan, due to the imminence of the Lectron threat, I've decided to focus my questions on their fascinating culture. First, name the three most important celebrations on the islands of Lekrau. Aidan's jaw locked. He fixed his eyes on the oak floorboards, trying to contain his disgust. He had ignored every word said about Lekrau, and had more than once been tempted to walk out when Collis had played for affections with Lekran folk stories and even jokes. As he considered his experience of Lekrau, his feelings became words and barreled out. Their entire economy runs on slavery and murder, and you want me to talk about their celebrations? Collis drew himself up and glared with the wrath of injured pride. Your prejudice is due to ignorance, boy. Sheer ignorance. The proceedings require that I put the question to you again. Name the, the only celebration of theirs I want to know about is when every one of their ships burns, every slaver with blood on his hands hangs, and the rest are locked in their own cages. Thank you for your candor. You have made it clear that you are not fit to be a marshal. If being a marshal means I have to be chummy with murderers, then I agree. Aidan had seldom been so angry. He stormed from the room. That anyone could sympathize with the beasts that Quinn represented was incredible to him. He had half a mind to go back and suggest that Collis try an interesting new spice on his next meal, one that a world of fools had not yet learned to appreciate, that ignorant and prejudiced people knew as arsenic. Name! The voice broke in on his vengeful thoughts. It was Skeet, the petulant retired commander who clearly resented the fact that he was stuck teaching boys, not out on the field hurting people with sharp and heavy objects. Aidan gave his name crisply, fire flashing in his eyes. He was in the mood for a brawl. He was going to be failed anyway. First question. You are a force of a hundred archers at the top of the Naril Valley, which provides excellent cover. A division of four hundred heavily armoured infantry enters the bottom of the valley. You must defeat them, even at the cost of your men. What is your first order? Run away. What? Skeet slammed his fist on the desk. Though he was a relatively small man, his aura of sparks and smoke gave him a colossal presence. A partly shriveled left arm proclaimed the reason for his recall from the field, and the rest of him proclaimed his frustration. Explosively so. At first, Aidan had thought this master to be similar to Osric, 
but he had learned that while Osric was a deep cavern of hidden thought and carefully directed power, Skeet was all immediacy and reaction. With him, annoyance felt was annoyance expressed. Aidan glared back. I saw that valley not so long ago. It is a death trap for archers. It is filled with low branches and vines that would make a clear shot impossible, even from ten yards. The high ground means nothing because the slopes are so thickly overgrown the infantry would be invisible while they moved uphill. Even if arrows were somehow shot on target, they would get caught in the tangle of branches. You said it has excellent cover, but it's the kind of cover infantry dreams about. Skeet's fist hovered, seeming a lot less sure of itself. Your next order? Retreat to the plain with the archers and wait until the whole force of infantry has taken up the chase. Shoot a few crooked and broken arrows to make it seem like arrows are out, and then lead them far enough onto the plain to make their retreat impossible. After that, unload on them. If they charge, run away again. Their armor will make them slower and they'll get tired quicker. If they flee, chase them. They won't survive long under falling arrows. Only fools are people who've got no knowledge of terrain would attack in the valley. Loss of sight, loss of command, loss of advantage, and no knowledge of the outcome until the last survivors trickle in. Skeet took a deep breath as if to say something, then let it out again, this time scowling at the notes in front of him. He looked up at Aiden. Blood and fire, you're right. Then he turned to the clerks and spoke in a dangerously quiet voice. Which of you half-wits set this question? Both shrank into their seats. Each pointed at the other. Skeet ignored them. Good work, Aiden. You are the first to impress me, and I fully expect that you will be the last. The next two questions were simple explanations of standard tactical procedures. In the sixth room, there were only two men. Aidan started as he saw the tall, grey-haired examiner wearing the long blue robes of the Academy's high seat. This could only be the great Culver, the man before whom everyone in the Academy quailed, the most learned scholar in the city, if not the land. Beside him sat a voluminous scribe with a wild black bush of hair and another of beard. The hair covered all but a large round nose that glowed slightly from the cold, and sharp eyes that twinkled as if he'd played some terrific prank on the world that morning. Aidan, son of Clawman, why do you wish to be a Casteth Marshal? Culver asked without any preamble. Aidan, despite his lingering anger, was intimidated, but he squared his shoulders and tried to sound confident. I want to bring justice to Lecrow, he said. Is that all? Have you no other ambitions? I hate tyrants. I hate bullies. All of them. If I could bring war to the whole lot, I would. But I intend to start with Lecrow. You want to start a war with Lecrow? Culver lifted his brows. The weight of his eyes was imposing but his incredulous tone felt to Aidan like mockery, and it raised his temperature despite the warning at the back of his mind. Unconsciously, he clenched his fists as he replied, Lecrow has already started a war with us. We sit and cower, hoping that they will choose the village next door 
That is not avoiding war. It's just fighting it badly. His voice had been too loud. He knew it. Culver regarded him in silence for an uncomfortably long time. Have you any more to say? he asked. No, sir. Then you may leave. The bushy scribe was writing and did not glance up. Aidan was taken through to a hall in which a large fireplace, several yards across, was hard at work against the chill of the day. Here he found Peashot and the others who had been ahead in the line, slowly baking themselves in front of the coals. Ever seen anyone with less personality than that last dried-up stick of a man? Peashot asked. You mean the Chancellor? Peashot fell silent with his mouth open, then bit his lip. What did you say to him? Nothing. The other boys joined them and bombarded Aiden with questions, comparing answers, but even their nervousness couldn't shake him from the bitter experience of foreign relations and of Collis the Clown. When the questions had run dry, he dragged himself away from the group and the fire to a gloomy corner where he kicked at the floor, waiting for the hall to fill and fates to be announced. Eventually, the last of the hopefuls arrived, and then the examiners walked through and entered a room that opened off to the side. Before the doors closed, the aromas of hot tea and oats and honey cakes drifted out, taunting the cold and hungry boys. They didn't have long to wait before matters became interesting. It sounded like several men were speaking together, loudly. Collis's moralizing tones took over, and then a voice that could only have been Skeet's cut through all conversation. By my sword arm, you shall not. You take your ideas too far, sir. Culver's voice intervened and restored calm. It was midday, though still cold as dawn by the time the examiners emerged and walked to the stage. Giddard approached the lectern with a sheet of paper. There are twenty names on this list, he said. But before I read it, I must congratulate every one of you. We have never been privileged to examine such a competent group. Those of you who are not named now will be shortlisted for potential military promotions should you choose to enroll there. Every one of you would be a valuable asset to our permanent garrison. With that, he read the list. Peashot, or Bede, as he was officially known, was the first named. Several followed until Aidan realized these were all boys who had gone after him. He felt sick. His head dropped forward. How would he explain this to Osric? What kind of fool loses his temper in an examination? He wondered if he had even the right to go back to Osric after this. But to face Harriet again. Giddard folded up the page. Some boys were ecstatic and grouped in little victor's circles. The others began to drift away. And Aidan, son of Clawman. He glanced up at the mention of his name. Giddard held his eye with a stern face. It was all the reprimand that was needed. Aidan dropped his eyes, relief flooding through him. And in spite of his effort to remain grave, 
smiled. Chapter 20 The boys were given a week to spend with their families. Aidan went to visit his mother every day and stayed as long as Harriet would allow. There was no news of Clawman, but mother and son constantly reminded each other that in a city so large it might take him some time to find them. For all his abusiveness, he was still husband and father, and they missed him. Nessa was delighted to hear that Aidan had made it into the academy. Harriet was not. She wanted to know what he thought he would learn there that she could not have taught him. It was an answer so colossal that Aidan didn't know how to begin. Harriet interpreted the hesitation differently. She shook her yellow curls with a look of infinite wisdom and noble pity. The Academy is a place for fools, she said. A place where loud mouths sit around in soft couches and talk about things they've never seen. Oh, said Nessa, with sincere enthusiasm. Have you seen it? Harriet pulled a sour face. Of course not. After everything I've just explained, why would I care to? After their break, the twenty boys gathered at the main entrance. Some had arrived early in the afternoon, bursting with curiosity. The sentry made it clear, however, that they would not be allowed in before the day's end, when a clerk would officially escort them through the gates. None had ever been inside, and they were all eagerness and impatience as they gnawed through the hours. Finally, the long-awaited clerk arrived, took charge of them at the outer gate, and led the way past the guards, along a passage, and through a second gate. Then the Royal Academy opened up, as did every mouth. Wide, wintry lawns, lined with ancient trees, were surrounded by the most unusual and fascinating stone buildings, unlike anything else in the city. Apart from the central meeting hall, each of four main wings was between three and five stories high. Pillars were fronted with statues of exquisite beauty, and separated from each other by gargoyles of startling hideousness, all of them quite lifelike. There were noble arches, airy corridors, plentiful windows, and high balconies. The intricately featured walls and columns were all faced with limestone and marble that glowed a deep imperial rose in the lingering sunset. Even the stables, beyond several acres of fenced paddocks, exuded noble condescension. Academics are split into four sections, the clerk said, indicating with a hand as he listed them. Marshals, military officers, legal administrators, and physicians. Beyond are the residences where the masters and some seniors are housed. There are also a few other buildings that not even I can identify. Best keep clear of them. The Royal Academy is very old. There are more than a few secrets within these walls. Why are there physicians here? someone asked in a reverent whisper. A level of medical knowledge is required for marshals and officers, so it is convenient for them to be housed on the premises. Where better for a medical school to locate itself? Where better to find open wounds on which to practice than where military and legal men are brought together? 
A few boys whispered to each other. Most were still staring around in awe. Rules will be explained tomorrow. For now, keep to the marshal's wing. The lawns and stables belong to everyone, but some of the law students can get territorial. They tend not to like marshals and will make trouble with the hatchlings. That would be you. The two giant crindo boards. You'll all want to have a go at shifting stone pieces as big as yourselves, but if hatchlings are caught there, they spend the rest of the day doing chores for whichever senior finds them. Keep well clear of the central meeting hall and the surrounding lawn within the ring of statues. That place is almost sacred here. You don't want to learn the penalty for trespassing. The boys paid him scant attention as they gaped, some shaking their heads. Aidan was laughing. He was awash in amazement. That such a place could exist in the middle of a city, and right alongside the seeps. The clerk snapped his fingers and led the way into the marshal's wing. Their footsteps clattered down long stone corridors as they took one turn after another, eventually stopping outside a set of dormitories. Each room was split into five partial divisions, each section having a bed, a desk, and a set of shelves. A range of equipment was piled on each bed, hooded cloaks, shirts, trousers, and sturdy boots, a small hunting knife, a leather satchel, and an oil lantern Aidan recognized as a kind of dark lantern. It had panels that could be flapped closed, directing or shutting off the light, perfect for studying after others had turned in. Also perfect for secret explorations after dark. The furnishings were rough, like what might be expected in a logger's cabin, imparting a rugged charm that was almost homely. Names had been assigned, and Aidan found himself nearest to the door again, sharing a room with Peashot, Vale, Lorimer, and one other he had not met. You may explore if you wish, the clerk said, but I would recommend a very good night's sleep before tomorrow. If you don't take my advice, you will be sorrier than you can imagine. Once he left them, the unanimous decision was to be sorrier than they could imagine. In Aidan's dorm, the air was charged with excitement. You think the rumors are true? asked Lorimer. Everyone looked at the tall boy with the big hands, big feet, enormous ears, and little but sinew linking everything, as if he had been clamped at those points and stretched. His quivering voice underscored a general impression of frailty. Aidan wondered how he had made it through the obstacles of the first elimination. The ones about the building going down underground, I mean, Lorimer added, his big ears blushing at the attention he had drawn to himself. I'm for finding out, said Aidan, with a tentative glance at the others. How about we start with that? I doubt they would want us to discover such secrets. That would be looking for trouble. It was Vale, slouched lazily on his bed with a detached look in his eyes, a look that only faintly betrayed constant, calculating thought. Aidan was glad, but not in the least surprised, to see he had made it through. The mention of trouble sat Lorimer down on his bed as firmly as if he had been pushed. Peashot, however, popped off his. Fine by me, he said, slipping a tube up his sleeve.
Um, Hadley, Aiden ventured. The large boy at the far end was going through his equipment. He had the look of a supreme athlete, and no fool either. He raised his head. So you're in charge. Aidan's mouth dropped open as he was about to say that he had no such ideas, but Peashot's tongue was quicker. Yeah, he's in charge. You want to start trouble? Maybe, Hadley said, standing up and advancing on them with an easy smile. He was big. He looked older than the rest of them by at least a year. Peashot stepped forward, too, and for the first time Aidan guessed why the little boy's nose had such an odd, flattened shape. Like he'd spent the past dozen years using it to hammer nails or ram billy goats. He raised his fists. Aidan groaned. This was the worst way to begin. The distance closed with Hadley's long strides. But unlike you, he said, pushing past and dropping a big hand on Peashot's head, I need a decent reason to fight. Maybe we'll find one later. Come along, lads. There's nothing I hate like dawdling. He stood at the door and motioned them through. Nobody argued with him. Nobody resisted, though Lorimer slipped past very quickly, and Peashot's dark glare retained all its menace. Aidan had been desperately hoping that he would make real friends in his dorm. This hardly worried him. The boy's confidence was almost unnatural. It was an uneasy group that filed out into the corridor. As they passed the other dorms, another boy flew out from one of them and barged into their midst, glancing repeatedly behind him. Hey, he said, his voice shaking strangely. You go exporting? What? said Hadley. Think he means exploring, Vale suggested. Yes, sorry, said the boy. Tiernish are not my main language. Saying things through the river. You're Arunian, aren't you? Aidan said. He had heard that there was a kind of military exchange between the sister nations of Arunia and Therna. Yes, how you know? Only Arunian foreigners would be allowed to be soldiers or marshals here. Also, through the river. In Arunian it means mixed up. Unfortunately, it doesn't work like that in Thurnish. But yes, we are going exploring. Won't you come along? Yes, thank you. There is a belly on my dorm. He more older and also bigger, and making us to clean his things. When I don't have a cloth for the cleaning of shoes, he tell me to lack them. I think it's a bully who wants his shoes licked, said Vale. It was obvious that the new boy was recovering from the verge of tears. The edges of his mouth trembled, and the forced smile looked as though it was about to collapse. Something had been building in Aidan as he listened, and now it erupted. Without waiting for another word, he spun around, flung the nearby door open, and marched into the dorm. A thick-set, heavy-limbed boy was standing over three of his roommates, who were busy brushing and polishing various items. Aidan's fury grew. He would get a sure beating if he picked a fight with someone this size, but he was too angry to care. As he stepped forward, a big hand dropped on his shoulder. He turned to see Hadley looking down at him. Me first, 
Hadley said, knocking Aidan off his stride and shoving past. The scrubbers and polishers on the floor looked up at the heavy steps. Out! Hadley shouted. They jumped to their feet and scurried from the room. Aidan heard the rest of his dorm gather in the doorway behind him. Busy? Hadley asked the remaining boy. As if you can't see for yourself. Yes, I can see, and I'm not sorry for interrupting. I'm Hadley. You are... The big-limbed boy looked like he wanted to avoid an answer, but Hadley's eyes bored into him. Wharton, he said. Wharton, is this the kind of marshal you are going to be? This is my dorm, fatted. Who do you think you are to come in here and lecture me? Lecture? I'm here to knock your teeth out. That is, if you're going to carry on like this. What's it going to be? You choose. Teeth or no teeth? Hadley's knuckles clicked as his heavy fists rose in front of him. You're a coward. You threaten me two on one. Three, said Peashot, sounding annoyed at having been overlooked. Four, said Vale, stepping beside Peashot narrowing his eyes and looking equally dangerous. Lorimer hovered at the back and said nothing, only trembled a little. Aidan felt a sudden respect for these grim-faced roommates of his. He turned back to Wharton. We're all here because we're angry, not scared. Anyway, do you really think Hadley needs help? Wharton glanced back at Hadley, who did not look like he needed help, and Wharton did not appear quite so threatening anymore. He swallowed and took a step back. Well? Hadley advanced two steps, closing the distance to something uncomfortable. Fine, Wharton said, turning and walking away. Now leave me alone. As they left the room, Hadley punched the door, a solid thud. It flew away from his fist and slammed with a crash. The other boys edged away. Aidan summoned the courage and asked, Would you have hit him? Was planning to. He spoiled it by backing down. I... I'm glad you stopped me. I was too angry to talk. I would have just swung at him without talking. Probably would have got caned for it later. Hadley glanced across and smiled. My father always tells me I'm as pushy as an avalanche but it looks like you're a bit of an avalanche yourself when your blood hots up. I think we'll get on. This was followed by a heavy back clap. Aidan grinned and hoped it would be so. The corridors were high and broad, lavishly decorated with paintings and artifacts that looked as old as the walls themselves. The little group bumbled their way through the passages and rooms of the ground floor, the stairs being locked. They discovered several interesting nooks, a kitchen, mess halls, the dorms of older apprentices, classes, and a large number of offices. All in all, it turned out to be a slightly disappointing tour. There was only one room that had aroused curiosity. It was a large space in the center of the building, filled with statues of past governors, mayors, and chief marshals. In the middle was an open area, like an indoor courtyard, 
with a large stone feature that stood about twelve feet high and measured as much across each of its six finely engraved faces. Aidan thought it might be a good idea to climb on top, but there was no hole to be found on the surfaces. When sighs and puffs of boredom began to fill the room, they drifted back to the dorm, annoyed at having been unable to reach another level above or below. The boys from the other dorms had mostly retired for the evening. Now that was exciting, Peashot grumbled. I don't know how I'll sleep. It was educational, offered Vale. I'd always wondered if the original mayor of Castith looked as foreign as the histories suggest. Did any of you notice the clearly Arunian nose? Oh, yes, said Peashot. It was my lifelong dream to study the snout of a long-dead fat man. What's with this place? Statues, paintings, pretty hallways. Marshalls seem to have bog-rotten taste in design. Don't seem to have much sense in architecture, either, added Aidan. Who puts a stupid feature like that in a perfectly good room? The thing wastes so much space. Suddenly, he stopped. The others turned and looked at him. It's not a feature, he said. Come on. In a riot of confusion and curiosity, they raced after him into the large room. Aidan ran up to the central structure and began tapping the surfaces. They were solid. His expression fell slightly. What are you doing? Peashot asked. I think it conceals an entrance, Aidan said. He stepped back and looked up. There must be something here that we are just not seeing. The boys began pacing around, inspecting everything, floor, statues, furniture, and a mouse that found its retreat blocked and darted between shoes until it reached a drape that it scaled without any apparent loss of speed. Lorimer's attention soon drifted, and he lounged against the statue. It was a large bronze head, wearing an expression so fierce that the contrast between the lounger and his support could not have been greater. The statue seemed about to spark into life and raise a storm at the insolent boy. How's that going to help? Peashot demanded, stopping in front of Lorimer, who was pulling abstractedly on one of his large ears. Huh? Wake up and make yourself useful. How about you just reach for the top of that thing and we'll climb you? Lorimer the ladder boy. We should call you lads for short. How about we throw you up with a rope? You're about the right size for a grappling hook. Peashot had already slipped the tube from his sleeve when Aidan's voice rang out. Here, come help. Aidan was standing in front of a coiled mass of stringy draping. What are you doing? asked Peashot, running up. Getting us into trouble, that's for sure, said Vale, more to himself than anyone in particular. I think these are ropes, not drapes. See the long panels of wooden slats holding the paintings? I think these ropes lower the slats down so they form a ramp from here to the top of that feature. The boys measured the distance with their eyes, and slowly all nodded. Won't the paintings fall off? asked Hadley. Not if they're meant to be lowered. So what do we do? Well, I think it could be heavy, 
If it's just me holding the end, I might shoot up to the roof while the panel comes crashing down. Once I unhook it, it's best that we're all holding on. Probably won't make much difference what you do, Lorimer mumbled to Peashot. I'm sorry, I didn't get that. My ears aren't big enough for superhuman hearing. Lorimer turned red. He looked like he was about to stamp on a mouse. Everyone, take hold. Aiden released the catch, and sure enough, the drapes lurched up from the heap of coils on the ground. They held tight and released an arm's length at a time. One of the long, ladder-like panels that had looked to be part of the room's furnishings leaned inwards. It began to descend towards the central feature, where it finally touched and came to rest. They let go. It was a perfect wooden ramp leading to the top of the centerpiece. There was no order in the wild dash up the slope, curiosity driving them. When they reached the top, they encountered a flat wooden surface. It was a stage, nothing more. To think that we almost missed this, said Peashot. The others will never believe us. It actually has a wooden top. Good job, Aiden. We unlocked the marshal's great secret. Nobody was listening. They were watching Aiden, who was moving about, stamping. These boards are hollow. We need to lift them. But they are bolted down, said Vale. I'll bet they are bolted into something that lifts, just holding them together. I don't suppose anyone has any tools here. Maybe me. It was the new boy from the other dorm. He began digging in his pockets and drew out a chisel and a few sturdy nails. I was helping with my pa today and was forgetting to empty out. He is going to be mad as spit. I think you mean spitting mad, said Vale. Oh, thank you, Vale. How did you know his name? I am knowing all of your names, Aiden. I am listening the whole time. Impressive. We don't know yours, though. Kian. Well, Kian, if you're as good with tools as you are with your ears, perhaps you can work out how to lift this. Kian dropped to his hands and knees, shoved the tip of a nail and the chisel into the gaps at the end of the boards, and managed to lever the edge high enough for the others to get their hands underneath and lift. The boards were indeed secured to a beam that held them together. The whole panel was hoisted and placed to the side, revealing what Aiden had hoped to find, a stairway that led down into blackness. Lanterns, he said. They rushed back to the dorms, snatched their lanterns, and returned at a sprint. The lanterns were empty, so they went to the perimeter of the room, which was ringed with oil-burning torches, the kind with a large iron reservoir and a stout wick. They doused two of them and tipped the oil into their lanterns, then lit their own wicks from the torches that remained burning. With Aidan and Hadley in the lead, they stampeded back up the ramp and began to descend the stairs. The lanterns were bright, but the stairway itself was made of a very dark stone that reflected little. Hold a moment, Aidan said as they approached a set of marble pillars. Something shouted a warning in his mind, something he had once read in a story of a castle siege. He placed his lantern on the ground and looked at the surfaces of the steps. 
The step that lay between the marble pillars was different to the others. It showed no signs of wear, and was covered in an undisturbed layer of dust, as if it had never been used. Don't stand on this step, he said. Why not? asked Peashot. Aren't steps for standing on? I think it's the trigger for some kind of trap. That produced a respectful silence. They were all careful to avoid the step, and the next two that Aidan pointed out. The air grew colder as they descended, and now held a touch of dampness. When they reached the bottom, they stepped onto a wide landing from which two corridors led. The one was broad, the other narrow, and closed off with a heavy chain. Both were dark. Aidan moved a few yards into the open corridor and lit a torch mounted on the wall. It was immediately clear, in the growing light, that this was architecture from another time. Large blocks of pale stone were fitted with unerring precision, forming a smooth, arching passage that led into darkness, a darkness that must have stretched away a bewildering distance, judging by the deep echoes that whispered back at them. The torch that Aidan had lit was no simple device like the ones in the room above. It was cast from a clean, silvery metal, and engraved with intricate details of vines threading between unfamiliar creatures. Aidan led the way down the wide passage. Above him, the light of his lantern revealed a ceiling, where scores of warriors were engaged in great battles, and mythical beasts fought and frolicked in curious settings. The very air in here tingled with mystery. They passed several doors on each side, but stopped when a massive, arched entrance appeared out of the darkness on their right. The tall and impressively heavy doors were slightly ajar. Aidan threw his weight against the dark wood. Nothing happened. The others drew alongside. They pushed together, and with a groan that rattled their joints, the door swung back on bucket-sized hinges. They stepped into a vestibule with equally large doors leading right and left, but they barely noticed these. Before them, recessed into a high, arching alcove, was a stone dais on which stood four marble statues. Three huge men and a young woman, hardly more than a girl, faced them. The first man held a sword, the second a spear, the third a hammer, and the young woman a bow. The first two men were large and strong, but the third was enormous, well over seven feet tall, with arms and legs broader than a boy's torso. Wonder why they made him so big, said Peashot. He looks wrong. Aidan laughed. You never heard of Crom? The sculptor didn't do any enlarging. This is the size he was. That warhammer probably weighed more than you. And he wasn't just big, he was fast. Used to run through infantry like a bull. His armor was so thick that arrows bounced off and even spears broke. There are lots of stories about him. The one I'll never forget is the one about his last battle. Heard it. The others shook their heads and waited. It was when his hometown was attacked. The gate was torn down quickly, and he didn't have time to put on his armor, 
so he rushed to the gate with only his hammer. He stood between the posts of the gate and smashed everything that tried to come in—horses, spearmen, swordsmen. The sight of them gave such courage to the townsmen that every one of them was transformed into a warrior, and that night they turned back a force much bigger than their own. By the time the raiders fled, Crom was surrounded by piles and piles of bodies. Killed more than half the raiders himself. He had about thirty arrows and spears sticking out of him, but he still stood. As the attackers drew together, the bandit leader rose up in his saddle and shouted that he would return and take personal vengeance on Crom's family, his nephew and niece. It was a mistake. In spite of the wounds that painted him red with his own blood, Crom leapt over the bodies and sprinted towards the tight band of raiders. They say the ground shook under each stride, and that he moved faster than any of them had ever seen a man run. The leader spun his horse, but the other horses interfered with his escape. Crom covered the two hundred yards like a mad thing. He was at full sprint when he swung his hammer at the man. The blow crushed his chest, killed him instantly, and hurled him off his horse and into the ranks of men who scattered in all directions. They say Crom smiled as he turned and looked at home for the last time. Then he dropped his hammer, sank to the ground, and died. The boys all looked up at the towering statue with a respect too deep to express. Lorimer finally broke the spell. Imagine if there were living men like this. I think, said Hadley, this... General Osric is not far off. Direct descendant of the nephew, said Aidan. Sought on his ancestral scroll. Ah, that explains a lot. Do you know who the other statues are? Vale asked. Ulmer, on the left, and Hanrock, next to him, were the two champions who defended King Athgrim, his queen and daughter, against a squad of assassins. By the time the alarm was raised and reinforcements arrived, they had killed almost the entire squad of fifteen. Hanrock died of his wounds, but Ulmar lived and married the princess. And the woman? Is she the princess? That's Queen Tarna, I think. Must be. Why, she got a bow. Don't you know the story? These are the stories I grew up with. Tana was princess when her father, a widower, decided to journey to Port Breckley. It was called something else in those days. The royal procession was attacked just west of the Pelamines, where the cover is good. The king was struck by an arrow and died. There were only about two dozen royal guards, and it looked as if they would be overwhelmed. But Tana took her father's bow and began loosing arrows around her. It turned the battle. Later, they found that more of the enemy had been felled by her bow than by the sword. She was only fourteen at the time, but everyone agreed that her courage more than made up for her age, so she was made queen. Though the rest of them stared, entranced, Hadley was showing symptoms of impatience. He walked to the left door and pushed it open. What he saw brought him to a standstill. The others gathered around. 
The lanterns lit the space revealing a wide and lofty chamber whose walls were stacked with every conceivable weapon. Lances, spears, pikes, maces, flails, war axes and hammers, longbows, crossbows, swords, knives and shields. There was a whole wall lined with statues of men and horses and the full armor of every order. The finely curved and ornamented plate armor of Arunia stood first, the jagged and spiked encasings of Fenlor next, and as the lines stretched away, the shapes grew unfamiliar, many of them cruder and more fearsome. It looked as if the weaponry of every known empire was present. For a long time they could do no more than stare, drinking in the sights that had only existed in their imaginations. Each husk of armor was as good as an army of its warriors, each weapon a legacy of courage and heroism. Here the screams of the dying and the stench of death were only a distant rumor, a sometime price to be paid for the honor of defending their own. With a sense of awe, almost of reverence, they began to drift to various racks and stands, touching and lifting weapons, replacing them delicately. All was going well until Lorimer's big eyes settled on a colossal mace. It was clear that he was in the grip of a hopelessly enchanting vision. A tall hero, himself, on the field of battle, whirling the terrible weapon over his head. It was too sweet to pass by. He lifted the mace from the rack, walked a little distance away until he was clear of the others, and placed his lantern on the floor. He gripped the mighty weapon with both hands, heaved it over his shoulders, and held it aloft. He stood tall, and he stood proud. He filled his big lungs with the brave air of his nation, twirled the heavy mace above his head with big hands, and gracefully compensated for the momentum with a big step. The whole spectacle changed in an instant as he tripped over one of his big feet and fell in a long, ponderous arc that ended on the stone floor, driving the brave air from his lungs and sending the mace clanging and skidding across the ground. Two other weapons were dropped out of sheer fright. Nobody spoke. All were listening, fearing that the noise, utterly shocking in the deep silence, had been overheard. A door creaked open, and light poured into the room, revealing the outline of a broad-cloaked man with the spreading tent of untamed hair. Instantly six flames were extinguished, sinking the great hall into darkness. Something about the bushy outline looked familiar to Aiden. Names! a voice boomed. Silence. I was not addressing the statues. It would be better that you give your names than I find them out. The silence was spoiled by shuffling, which ended with, Hadley, Aiden, Bade. Huh? Don't try to lie now. His name is Peashot, and mine is Lorimer. Ouch, you little vermin. My name's Bede. I just don't like it. Haven't you ever heard of a nickname, ladder boy? Enough. Next. They'll... Kian. Kian? You're from a different dorm. How did you find your way into this little band? 
One of the boys on my dorm was bellying, sorry, bullying of me. Hadley and the others are making him to stop. That would be Wharton? Yes, sir. It was Hadley's voice. You met him then, Hadley. Good. Did you hit him? There was a thoughtful silence. Not yet, sir. A slight tremor in the outline of the robe suggested quiet amusement. Candid. I had hoped as much. Well, I should inform you all, according to the rules, you have reached greater heights of trouble than have ever been attained by new arrivals. Nobody's ever found their own way down here before. Some might think it necessary to flog you. Fortunately for you, I have a different view. Who, may I ask, worked it out? Aiden, sir. It was Hadley's voice. Hmm, yes, that lines up. Aiden, try not to discover anything more until the administrators are ready. The rest of you, put on a good show of astonishment as the entrance is revealed again tomorrow morning. I enjoin you to hold your tongues as tightly as you would hold struggling fish, or you will prove my suspicion about the flogging. Boys, it is always a pleasure to meet the young and enterprising. Now, as you seem to prefer the dark, I leave you to feel your way back. Aidan, don't forget the steps. They work just as well on the way out. The door closed and all was darkness and silence. The sound of a funneled gust preceded a sharp cry. Ouch, that was my ear, you stinking rat. Where are you? Wasn't really aiming. Not my fault your ears fell half the room. I think we need to thump him together, said Lorimer. Aren't any of you going to help me? You were trying to be selling the rat on him, remember? It was Keen. We say sell him out or rat on him, came Vale's quiet voice. Oh, thanks again. Lorimer, it was Hadley. I think you were asking for it, and you have to admit that in the dark it was a ripper of a shot. Actually, considering the size of his... Oh, shut up, Peashot. Don't you know when to drop your weapons? Lorimer does. Let's get out of here before he gets bored and drop something on one of us. So, who do you think he was? Hadley asked as they heaved on the drape and drew the ramp back up against the wall where it settled, looking once again like a panel of decorative slats. Probably some kind of caretaker, said Vale. I bet he lives down there. Don't know lots of caretakers what can do writing, said Keen. How do you know he can write? He was holding off a quill in his hand, and I'm thinking that there was ink dripping off his hand also. Maybe he was dipping off the quill when he got the scare from Lorimer. Probably made him to be wrecking all of his parchment. He cooled off pretty quick if that's the case, said Aidan. My father would have skinned the lot of us. Also mine. I reckon he is important here, said Vale. I think a less important man would have been more worried. He sounded amused. Maybe he's a magician pretending to be a caretaker, said Lorimer, his eyes growing big. I must have missed something, 
Peashot piped up. Did someone here ask for a bedtime story? Hadley turned to Aiden. Is Peashot always angling for a fight? No. Aiden laughed. You see, it doesn't happen nearly as much when he's sleeping. Hadley's eyes crinkled as he laughed and clapped Peashot on the back, ignoring the smouldering glare. Late into the night, they stared at the dark ceiling and talked of swords and axes and secret tunnels and legendary warriors. Then they got onto the topic of Wharton, and they all said what they would have done to him if he hadn't backed down. And each boy told of the other fights he'd been in, and how he'd won them. Nobody remembered any he'd lost. Aidan told of his brawl with Emroy and his snobby friend from town when he had been rude to Callery. He made most of it up because the real one hadn't turned out so well, and in the context of the glorious battles being narrated, he felt some adjustments were necessary. So as the stars travelled the skies unseen, the boys leapt and tackled and kicked and swung and conquered until the golden haze of victory shimmered and settled down upon a room of quiet smiles and eager dreams. Chapter 21 What do you think you're waiting for? Daylight! The voice reminded Aidan of Skeet, only with a little more of that abrasive insistence, that special nuance attained by expertly combing the rude notes of clanging kitchenware with the blare of an iron bugle. The apprentices leapt from their beds, dressed by lamplight, and stumbled into a dizzy line in the passage. From now on, this is the time you rise. Follow me. The stocky man led them through to a dining hall, filled with long tables and benches, and billowing with the steam of oatmeal porridge. There were several other sections in the hall, filling up with older boys that Aidan assumed to be the more senior apprentices. The looks weren't threatening, but there was a definite territorial air. I don't care if you're not hungry, the man said. You empty your bowl. I promise that you'll need it. Think of the past two months as rest. There were a few smiles from the adjacent gathering of senior apprentices. The new recruits lined up, collected their bowls of oats mixed with cream, and settled at the long tables. Lorimer looked disappointed when his was finished. Peashot's expression began to reveal mild panic as he forced down a mouthful and looked at the bowl still half full. Swap? asked Lorimer. Peashot nodded. It looked like the beginning of a mutually satisfying arrangement. When the bowls were emptied, the man stood and called for silence. I am Commander Dunn. This is Matron Rosalie. She will do the nannying... I'll do the whipping. Got that? Twenty heads bobbed. Twenty pairs of eyes looked hopefully towards the middle-aged, soft-featured matron, who regarded them with a pitying smile. Dunn was wearing a different kind of smile. Aidan had never seen a shark, but he imagined they would show their teeth in the same way while circling unfortunates, and Commander Dunn was just as muscled and eager as some restless carnivore. His eyes were sharp and his hands ready. 
He had no need to swing a cane against his boots and glare, showing just how dangerous he could be. Something about his open manner, hands on hips, easy grin, almost welcomed trouble. There was no bluff or bluster here. The boys knew it. Even Peashot sat rigid. Now, those of you whose fathers did not explain matters before you enrolled, there is something you need to know. For the rest of the students at the academy, expulsion is a danger. Within the marshal's quarter, we have two levels of discipline. Punishment and prison. Misconduct will not lead to expulsion, because the things that are revealed over your years in training cannot be put out on the street. From this day on, behavior that renders you unsuitable as marshals will send you to jail. Behavior that can be corrected with punishment will be punished. If anyone feels he is not prepared for this, I ask you to remain behind in this room, and you will be dismissed from the academy. He picked up a sheet of paper and scanned the details on the page before resuming. You have already been introduced to history, law, navigation and cartography, foreign relations and war strategy. To this we will now add combat and weaponry, woodcraft, languages and field surgery. Some of your classes will overlap with the ladies of the medical quadrant, and we expect nothing less than impeccably honourable behaviour. We will happily punish anything less. These fine girls are being trained as Queen's envoys. Their training is even more guarded than yours, and I heartily recommend that you do not ask many questions of them or about them. Several faces around the tables had shown an interest at the mention of ladies. Some of the smaller boys pulled faces. You will have eleven classes a day, beginning and ending with combat and weaponry. The learning is fast, faster than you could imagine. If you want to pass your end-of-year exams and proceed to the next year, you will need to apply yourselves like never before. In eight years, you may just have a grey cloak of your own. Now, follow me. He led them through the passages to the large room with the central feature. Aidan's group exchanged nervous glances. I'm sure that all of you tried exploring the place last night and found the building to be a complete disappointment. Heads nodded. Aidan nodded. He threw a sharp look at the others who quickly followed his example. Can anyone see something strange about this room? Peashot looked like he was about to burst. Aidan glared at him. The rest of the boys shrugged and made suggestions about the statues and the designs on the central feature. Now, none of you have it. No one has ever worked it out, though it's such a simple trick. What I am about to show you is never to be discussed with anyone who is not a master or student within this quadrant. He proceeded to give instructions for lowering the ramp and lifting the panelled floor on top of the central feature, for which he had a special tool. Aidan's little band oohed and aahed with the rest of them as the opening was revealed, and Dunn gestured with a grand sweep of his arm like a conjurer making an object appear out of nothing. Peashot was fiddling with something in his sleeve. Hadley stepped in front of him and shook his head. 
Our facilities extend beneath ground level, Dunn said. There are several entrances. This one is yours, and will remain yours for the duration of your studies. I would not call this a terribly great secret. There are other secrets far more closely guarded. This is really just a bit of fun. The entrance remains open during the day, so it is possible that trespassers could discover it, but there is another surprise in store for them. Watch very carefully where you tread. The steps beside the marble pillars are the triggers of traps. They won't kill you, not the way we have things set these days, but you will have a long fall and a cold swim. He led the way down and waited for them to assemble on the landing where the passage split. That direction, he said, pointing to the dark and barred way, is forbidden to you, to seniors, and even to most of the masters. Head that way and you are simply heading to prison. Understood? When he was satisfied that the warning had been heard by all, he led them along the other passage that now looked regal and imposing in the glow of dozens of ornate, wall-mounted torches. Dunn stopped before the heavy doors and heaved them open without assistance, drawing a few furtive glances of respect, and led the way into the weapons hall. Aidan's group did not need to affect amazement here. The sight was every bit as awe-inspiring as it had been during the night. Take a good look, and be sure you take nothing more. If I catch anyone so much as touching a weapon until I say so, I'll set your bones a-rattling. Lorimer gulped. In these classes you will learn combat, from fighting with your hands tied behind your back to managing an assault tower. By the time you are done here, every one of these weapons will be a personal friend. You will each specialize as your skills develop. The boy's eyes danced through the racks that lined the walls, singling out weapons that called to them. Perhaps one of you will choose a miniature crossbow or blow dart. He looked at Peashot, who dropped his eyes and tucked the tube back into his sleeve. Aidan decided it would be unwise to underestimate this man. Don had them sit down on the cold stone floor and paced as he spoke. Unlike soldiers, marshals are not sent out with the direct purpose of fighting, but the reality is that you will often be opposed in your duties by violence. It is never for you to pick a fight, but if one is unavoidable, you are to win it, because the knowledge that marshals carry during their duties is the kind of knowledge to save entire cities. You will be trained by many marshals over the years, each an expert in his weapon, when I say weapon, I expect you are all looking at the sharp and shiny tools around you. What is the biggest problem with all of these? They can rust, a large boy offered. A small problem. Many of them are heavy. Another small problem. They can be dropped. Ah, a big problem. A thundering big problem. Complete dependence on these tools is potential disaster. What, then, is the solution? Learn to run really fast, said Hadley. Everyone laughed. Why are you laughing? Don demanded. The noise died down. There is most certainly a good time to run, just as there is a bad time. 
When the nation has more to gain by your getting away and living than by your standing proud and dying, then you run. Any argument? The boys shook their heads. Good. So, what weapons cannot be dropped? Fists. Yes. They're not my first choice. Elbows. Knees and feet. Good. We carry many weapons around with us. He began to indicate shoulder, elbow, palm, fist, knee, and so on. But I have left something out. It is the one weapon each of you carries that can defeat anything in this room. Aidan touched his head. Dunn nodded and motioned to the stacked walls. We will train you to use all these with perfect standard forms and combinations, but we will never allow you to fall into that lazy confidence in which your mind shuts down and you apply set motions like a donkey circling the mill. You will be taught to think beyond the conventions. Constantly. Everything around you can be used as a weapon to your advantage, even your opponents themselves. As marshals, your first weapon is your mind, and this you will exercise every time you enter these halls. A basic example. Let's say that one of you is armed with only a staff, and is attacked by two soldiers in heavy armor. The unthinking approach would be to stand and hack it out, applying perfect technique, hoping that the staff holds together and that you are fast enough to parry blows from two sides. Now, what might a thinking man do? Run, Kian reminded him. Fine, but let's assume you had to defeat them. There was a brief silence. The whirring of thought was almost audible. Men in heavy armor move slowly, Aiden said. They are protected, but they are also clumsy, and they get tired quickly. I've seen a badger kill a snake by dancing around, always just out of range of the strike, waiting for an opportunity. Good. How could you dodge two at the same time? Maybe circle them in a way where one always shields you from the other. You'd have to move quickly, though. That is an excellent suggestion, and it happens to be one of the exercises you will be given during the week. There are dozens of possibilities to each encounter, and circling might not always be the best solution given additional factors such as treacherous ground. What is important, though, is that during any encounter, your mind is as active as a mouse in the larder. That's enough talk. Everyone, on your feet and follow me. They filed into another large hall that was like the first, only that all the weapons here were wooden or strapped with protective leather, and the floor was covered in an assortment of beams, blocks, sandbags, and wooden constructions of unknown purpose. Ropes and ladders rose to platforms and walkways just under the frighteningly high roof. Mounds of straw made potential drops less than fatal. Break into pairs about the same height, Don said, his voice rising to a new level. And one from each pair collect a sandbag. Aidan and Vale were roughly the same height. Kean chose Peashot, Lorimer found another tall boy who was still ahead beneath him, and Hadley stepped up to Wharton with an easy smile. Wharton had no choice. I don't encourage you to punch freely, Don began, when they were all paired up. 
The bones in our hands can break more easily than we would like. There are better ways to strike an opponent, but a punch is still the most natural reflex, so you may as well learn to do it right. He demonstrated in slow movements how to begin with stance and to throw not just from the shoulder, but from the feet. He paused at various stages in the movement to point out the line of force from ground to target. He showed how to strike with the thumb folded away, fist lined straight, and the wrist tensed to avoid the all-too-easy buckling. Think of the motion as a spear being driven home. Once they had all practiced the movement slowly, under his scrutiny and correction, they were told to put some weight and speed into it. It wasn't long before a few knuckles were skinned. The sandbags had rough surfaces. Then he showed them the palm punch, which he recommended over knuckles, and something he called the thunderslap, a movement that looked like someone throwing a stone and ended with the base of the hand striking the target at numbing speed. Last for the day were the elbow strikes, forward and backward. While Don's execution was smooth and powerful, the results on the floor were a motley misery. Knuckles and elbows bled owing to poorly aimed skidding impacts. Every now and then, a boy holding a bag would totter and drop to the ground, clutching an arm after his partner had showed more enthusiasm than accuracy. Some demonstrated surprising skill. Hadley and Wharton were in equal possession of sturdy limbs, though Hadley's fluid grace and easy confidence were not to be matched. But even he was breathing hard by the end and showed more than one pink knuckle. Enough! Bags down! The exhausted boys dropped the bags with trembling hands, only too happy to be sent to the safety of their books. Three laps of the blue course. Balance beams, ropes, jump, sandbag hall, climbing wall, crawl and sprint. They groaned. Dunn smiled and picked up a short whip. Anyone need encouragement? The first lap was enough to make them realize that this was a different world to the army course. The beam was round, the ropes smooth, the drop from the platform high, and the hay shallow. The wall had grips that all sloped the wrong way, and the sandbags were heavy. Aidan was the last to finish. Resting his leg over the past weeks had eaten away at his fitness. It was obvious he was the weakest in the class. As they collapsed onto chairs in the first classroom, they wore a general expression of shock. Ah, said Giddard, walking in. I see you've had your opening class with done. Enjoy the introductory pace while it lasts. In a few weeks you'll be laughing over these easy days. He seemed unaware of the mute, staring disbelief. You've each been issued with books that you will find in your shelves when you return to your dorms, he continued. During the classes, I expect you to take notes. The seven of you who are not yet literate will attend an additional class every night in order to catch up. You will need to work very hard indeed if you wish to progress to second year with your companions. For now, I recommend that you listen and file things away in your minds as best you can. The lesson covered the discovery of gold in the north and the founding of the first village, later to grow into the great city of Tolinro. Giddard explored the formation of society, 
how the freedom from homeland administration was reined in by the need for a perceived cultural stability. Several interesting questions were put to the class, but apart from some soft whimpering, they had little to say. Law followed. Rodwell gave a second introduction to the subject, stressing that the detail would never reach that of the full-time legal administrators on the far side of the campus, and recommending deference to them in any legal matter, local, regional, or foreign. He then launched into the lesson with passion, spit-flying and pelting the first two rows, but neither his shrill voice nor dancing chins were able to draw much response. In navigation and cartography, the boys were given a demonstration of perspective error when the class was split in half, taken to the tops of two opposing buildings, and told to map the ground ahead of them. When they returned to the class, the crude maps were lined up in two rows. In almost every case, the drawings from opposite sides disagreed significantly. Understanding the problem was crucial to the reading of potentially faulty maps, and the drawing of accurate ones. Curlis's love of foreign relations stood in bold contrast to his feelings for domestic ones. He spent a good deal of the lecture glaring at Aidan, challenging him to just open his mouth and provide cause for a whipping. Aidan ignored him. With his skinless knuckles and elbows, he was simply too uncomfortable to bother with the silly man. They broke for lunch and this time Peashot came very close to finishing his bowl, a beef and lentil stew. He even made it more than halfway through his small barley loaf. Lorimer was on hand to assist. Little was said at the table, as hunger towered supreme. It resulted in unrestrained, squelchy chewing and desperate gulping. Ada noticed the matron looking around, writing down a few names— no doubt for some remedial classes in table manners. Marshals, as ambassadors, were apparently not permitted to eat like farmyard animals. They were given an hour to relax on the central lawns, where hundreds of students stretched themselves out in the sun or pursued games across the broad space. They found a shady spot, and before Aidan knew it, someone was kicking him awake. You'll be late if you don't stir. It was Peashot. The others had already gone. Aidan wobbled to his feet and was barely able to walk. His mind was awake, mostly, but his limbs were still drifting in some gentle dream and wouldn't respond properly. The next class was war strategy. It proved the most interesting of the day and woke him up quickly. Skeet explored the details of the sea attack on Stonehill the abandoned coastal fortress. The fortress was one that was soaked to its spires in mystery. There were aspects of the defences that still eluded understanding. Speculation, of course, held far more interest than fact, so the boys were altogether caught up in the wondrous strangeness of it all. Woodcraft was a new topic for some, but Aidan had to keep from rolling his eyes at the simplicity of the information. His father had taught him well, and had him building shelters and rigging snares by age four, tracking by five, and able to navigate and fend for himself comfortably by six. Nevertheless, he found Wildemar to be one of the more fascinating of the masters. He looked rather like a mongoose or a squirrel with his bristling hair, 
sharp eyes, and movements so fast and unexpected that conversation behind his back was discovered every time. Languages surprised them with the reappearance of Giddard. In this class, we will cover the introductions to six new languages that you will all learn with fluency, acceptable to ambassadorial conversation. I see by your faces that you consider this to be a lot, and indeed it is far too much for a single class, which is why, after a few months, many classes will be presented in foreign languages. Every master can speak all six proficiently, and at least three with native fluency. There is one at the academy, though you are not likely to meet him, who speaks thirty-seven with proficiency and fifteen with native fluency. Mouths gaped. In time, you will be allocated days of the week on which only a certain language may be used. Reaching this will result in punishment. We will arrange for you to begin spending dinners with foreign families who are connected to our headquarters. There you will learn not just the language, but the manners and finer points of behavior. As marshals, you are to look and sound at home in the courts of any of the six major peoples connected to us by trade or threat. Understand, said Giddard, clasping his hands before him and leaning back against his desk. This is not like archery, where a slight drift from the center of the target is expected and compensated for on the second attempt. On foreign soil, you cannot afford or correct a slip like, I would like to eat your family. Only one letter is missing, yet an ambassador who makes errors like that is likely to go missing himself. The class was beginning to like Giddard. He had the look of a peach that had spent winter on the tree, but there was a young and ready humor that ran just under the aged surface. Unfortunately, it gets more complicated than just being correct. There are different levels of society, and while doing any, shall we say, infiltration work, you will need to understand those levels in order to get the language wrong in the right way. The faces that had lit up at the mention of infiltration now grew puzzled. Let me explain. Think of our own city. Compare, might I trouble you for a draught of water, with, could you be swinging a chug maybe of that there water for us? We recognize immediately the different classes. The second request is full of errors from structure to unpronounced consonants, but they are the right kinds of errors, errors a native speaker of that class would make. No native speaker, regardless of class, would have made that first mistake I gave you. That is the kind of error, and there are limitless possibilities of them, to betray a foreigner. Understand? The puzzled expressions faded. Just like a weapon, a language is used in many ways, and you must be comfortable with the basic forms. So pay attention during the social outings. They could one day save your life. Culture, too, is treacherous, from subtle tell-tales like approaching someone across a class divide in Lekrau to the mortal offense of moving a hand behind your back during a conversation in Vinteros. In Arunia, people greet with a kiss on the cheek. Try that in Sulia and you'll have your lips removed. Look one of their married women in the eye, and you'll have your eyes removed, too. I'm sure you can understand how diplomatic overtures between those two nations have never met with great success. Neither nation cares much for the ways of the other, so negotiations are normally doomed from the outset. The Academy exists in part to prevent such disasters. 
Kastith's walls are not the highest, but we have used knowledge to secure many years of peace. So, with that in mind, let us begin with your first additional language. Giddard launched into the basics of Arunian, the language Aidan's mother had taught him, the most common second language in Therna. There were three others who knew the language in the class. Kian, as Aidan had earlier discovered, was a native speaker, having lived most of his life in Rasmun. For them, it was like being taught how to crawl. The final class of the day was field surgery. The boys' eyes opened wide as they trickled into a large room filled with medical diagrams, weird models that looked like they belonged inside bodies, strange tools that made the young apprentices uncomfortable, and girls wearing hooded expressions that made them even more so. Mistress Gilda, a short, plump woman with a lively, dimpled face, bounced to the front of the class and called for attention. Ah, boys, we are so pleased to have you here. Rumors of the dashing new apprentices have been drifting through our section, distracting us horribly. It is so nice to finally meet you. Seeing as you will be spending a lot of time here, I suggest that you all introduce yourselves while I prepare the specimen. The boys' discomfort soared to alarming levels. They had individually encountered girls before this, but never twenty of them at once, and those strange, amused looks did not help. Aidan eyed them with open suspicion. Something was afoot. He could feel it. Hadley was the first to break ranks and approach the enemy. He bowed with polished gallantry as he gave his name and asked theirs, even managing to say a few idle nothings that produced tinkling laughter. Other boys began to shove and show off and laugh loudly to demonstrate they were not insecure or self-conscious, and that they didn't care what anyone thought of them. They glanced repeatedly at the girls just to make sure that the message was being received. Aidan kept very quiet. He was suddenly ashamed. Even though none of the boys had made any more comments about his melted ear and singed temple, he dreaded the attention of the girls. He knew their eyes would wander across to that side of his face with morbid fascination. He knew that many of the other boys would be forgotten by the end of the day, but he would be remembered by all as the burned lizard. He drifted behind his classmates to the back wall, where he found Lorimer trying to shrink away, his great ears burning. Hope they leave us alone the tall boy whispered. Aidan nodded. Many of the others appeared to be having a jolly enough time, some of them drawing together into talkative groups, Hadley's being the largest. Aidan and Lorimer looked as uncomfortable as they felt. You two at the back there. It was Mistress Gilda. Aidan's gut turned. I'll have no one hiding. Oh, oh, you must be Aiden. She bustled forward, caught Aiden by the elbow, and dragged him to the front of the crowd. Here, girls, this is the one I was telling you about, the one that Sister Edith treated. She turned Aiden so his bad side faced them and lifted the hair. There were a few sharp intakes of breath among the girls. Now, do you remember how we discussed the scouring process and how the skin that forms is different to what was there before? This is an Excellent example. 
Can you see how the new skin has a thin and shiny appearance, and how there's been no hair regrowth in this area? She carried on talking about the merits of the right burn ointments, and how the results might have been better had he come to them earlier. It was all Aidan could do to hold back the scream of mortification. Relax, my boy, Gilda chided, shaking his tense shoulders. Nobody here is going to think less of you. Aidan wondered, as he saw the girls whispering to each other, how a grown woman could be such a woolhead. He was somewhat comforted, though, to notice that some of his friends looked angry enough to have lost interest in the girls. The mistress drifted back to her preparations, and the murmur of conversation resumed. Aidan slunk away to the back where Lorimer and Peashot joined him. My father keeps pigs with better manners, Lorimer grumbled. If it weren't for all the girls standing around us, I would have tenderized her, the little boy said, twirling his pea-shooter. Before our classes with her are over, I'm going to give her a few scars of her own. She seems to like them enough on other people. A young nurse wheeled in a trolley bearing something covered in a sheet. Mistress Gilda rushed over and took charge, moving the trolley to the middle of the class, where there was an open area. I would like you all gathered around here. Boys to the front, please. She waited for them to gather and settle down. In this class, you will cover a number of aspects of basic medical treatment. The girls will be fully qualified as physicians and surgeons, but you will only cover the most essential aspects. We begin with field surgery, and for this it is important that you are able to control yourselves around some of the things you are likely to see— that means practice. As surgeons, there is only one way we get to practice, and I think you can guess what that means. All eyes dropped to the sheet. Feet began to shuffle back where they bumped into the girl's toes and had to shuffle forward again. So, Gilda announced with a smile, this is the kind of thing you will need to get used to. She flipped the sheet up, to reveal the body of a man who had been dead for some time. Maggots had made significant inroads, and students had worked on parts of his torso and arms, so that what remained was disturbing in the extreme. The reactions were varied. Hadley's easy confidence fled. Peashot wrinkled his stub nose and scrunched his face till it was as puckered as a prune. Lorimer went for the tougher look. He wore a nonchalant smile, tilted his head back, and sank his hands into his pockets. Then he spun around, doubled over, and vomited uncontrollably. Wharton laughed with open derision until the air from the corpse hit him. The laugh turned to a choke, and before he could recover himself, he joined Lorimer. Another three added their sentiments to the floor. None of the boys looked pleased, and several wearing urgent expressions asked if they might be excused— Gilda sent them all out into the sunlight and the open air, where they found quiet corners to resolve inner turmoils. Apart from cleaning up the deposits of beef and lentils, nothing more was accomplished during the class. That was the most disgusting lesson I've ever heard of, said Lorimer, still spitting as they crossed the courtyard and headed back to the marshal's block and the training hall. Maybe it gets better with time, said Vale. The girls are all used to it. 
Then these girls are sick. It's not right. If she puts me on display like that again, said Aidan, I'm walking out. I think we'll join you if she does, said Lorimer. Bishod and Vale voiced their agreement. Don awaited them in the training hall with a cheerful smile. If he noticed the shuffling gait or the tinge of green on sagging faces, he gave it no thought. Right, lads, he said brightly. I hope you have a good lunch in you, because this lesson will burn it all up. They attacked the bags using their knees, shins, and feet. Most of them tried to go easy, until Dunn lost his temper with, All the ferrying about! and promised them that if he did not see the bags getting their gizzards crunched, he would double the laps on blue. It was a very quiet group that left the hall and hobbled back up the steps, wincing at the effort required to skip the traps. After lifting the ramp, they shuffled into the dinner hall, collected their plates of chicken, potato, and cabbage, and dropped wordlessly onto benches. Peashot managed a few mouthfuls, then rested his head on the table while chewing, and fell asleep. They had hoped to drop straight into bed, but another surprise awaited them at the dorms. Done again. As part of your training and refinements, you are going to get into the habit of keeping yourselves clean, he announced. There is soap, a vat of water, and a large pitcher in the little drained cubicle at the end of each dorm. Three pitchers each, that's a minimum. Winter is no exception. You wash yourselves properly. Matron Rosalie has a nose like a shrew, and she'll let me know if any one of you shirks this duty. Don't forget, the last class of the day for the illiterate ones. A few boys looked like they were about to cry as they remembered. The rest of you are to put in at least an hour of revision. Books are in your shelves, writing material on your desks. Don't let me catch anyone sleeping. The words, sorrier than you can imagine, were dancing in the air, weaving through the stunned silence. Well, get to it. I want you as clean as mountain rain by the time I return, and that won't be long. Hadley was the least put out by this most recent barrage of surprises. He sat on his bed, leaning against the wall, and folded his hands behind him with a faint smile. I'm sure you'll agree with me, he said, that the time spent with the ladies was the best part of the day. After Aidan showed his scar, they had so much to say. You should have heard all questions about the fire and... Ouch! He slapped a hand to his neck. You little blighter! Hadley sprang off his bed and stormed down the room. To everyone's surprise, Lorimer pushed himself up onto his spidery limbs and stepped in the way. What do you think you're doing, ladder boy? My quarrel is with Peashot. I... I think it's with all of us. What? Have you lost your mind? Hadley looked around in mocking appeal. Think, said Vale, leaning back on his chair and looking out somewhere beyond the ceiling. Try to hear what you just said, and imagine how it sounded to Aiden. You might have had a great time today, but if you can't see that it was torture for him, then you really are a self-absorbed ass. Hadley's confusion appeared to be restraining him physically, 
but slowly the redness passed from his face as realization worked its way home. You're right, he said. I am an ass. Sorry, Aiden. I'll never speak to any of those girls again. He turned away and trailed off to the washroom, a spectacle of self-loathing. By the time Peashot and Lorimer returned from their introductory class on letters, Aidan had read the first line on the page about two hundred times and still couldn't get the words to surrender their meaning. The three who had remained in the dorm had agreed to wake anyone who dropped off. Shoes had accordingly been thrown across the room, times beyond counting. Dunn was happy to see them all awake when the others returned. He wished them a good night's rest, promising that they would need it. Chapter 22 When the silence of night was defiled by Dunn's cheery rousting, a few strong whispers rose in response. Aidan was convinced he'd only just fallen asleep. Every muscle ached. Appetites had not yet stirred, but the boys knew how valuable that porridge would be. Lorimer and Peashot kept to their arrangement, and all plates were cleaned. In the training hall, bandages were made available to those whose knuckles, elbows, or knees were skinless. They revised the techniques from the previous day, and Dunn began to introduce them to sequences. Don't think of this as learning to fight, but learning to knock a man down as quickly as possible. Your duties will place you in situations where you will often be outnumbered so you won't have the luxury of softening your opponent and wearing him down. You need to execute these patterns as though there are men approaching from behind. The sequences were direct and brutal, hardly appropriate for a good old tavern brawl. Don then gave them an overview of the grappling and wrestling techniques they would learn, and how to use their feet to defend when thrown on their backs. Though you want to avoid going to ground, he said, Many evenly matched fights do. I won't have any of you becoming turtles, helpless when toppled. Don got them back onto their feet and drilled them in four different sequences until they could link the movements naturally, then sentenced them to three laps of the green circuit. Though it was less exhausting, this circuit required more balance and cool-headedness, especially on the high-rope traverse and balance bar a rounded, slightly wobbly beam that linked two platforms thirty feet above the straw. This one suited Aidan far better. Though he was slow on the basic obstacles, only he and Hadley made it across the balance bar on their first attempts. When he had finished his laps, he retied his bandages and went through to the weapons hall to wait. The two boys that followed him had caught his attention on the previous day, eyeing him as if hoping to speak with him alone. They approached now, looking none too friendly. He recognized one. Malik, the popular boy who'd almost caused him to walk out of the trials once. We need to give you a warning, Malik said without introduction. Aidan looked up and found him a lot more intimidating from close. He was tall and athletic, but it was his face that set him apart. His pale features, made to seem even paler by his dark hair, were as hard and angled as if he had been constructed from blocks of marble.
and little time had been wasted on smoothing the result. The eyes were sharp and intelligent, and there was an air of high breeding and perfect manners about him that only made him seem more imposing. Hadley entered the room and strode up to them. Another time, Malik said with undisguised annoyance as he walked away, leaving Aidan to puzzle over the strange words. What do you know about him? Aidan asked, pointing. He giving you trouble? Not sure, maybe. Said he had a warning from me, but cut it off when you arrived. So? Do you know anything about him? More than he would like. My father knows their family. Malik's father is rich. A nice man, but he's as timid as a mouse. His wife married him for the money, and now controls everything in the home. My dad calls her the Iron Queen, says she's the most powerful woman in Castith, and probably the cruelest, too. Had three servants whipped so badly last year that two of them died and nothing happened to her. If Malik wants anything, he goes to her. But he doesn't like people knowing, so he pretends it's his father doing things for him. In my opinion, his mother found a way to push him through the final selection. Hadley paused, glancing at Aiden. Malik is strong in all the wrong ways. Cunning and mean as a rat. The less you have to do with him, the better. He's popular. Only because everyone's too scared to be on his bad side. Nobody really likes him. Big old Cade hangs around him like a bodyguard. Not that Malik needs one, but I think Cade's like the rest. Only thing they like about Malik is that he's got lots of influence because of his father's money. So, what you think he wants with me? Let's go find out, Hadley said, turning and striding away. Hadley, as Aidan was learning, was all confidence and momentum. He seemed to be incapable of hesitation. No, wait! Aidan rushed up, but Hadley had already covered most of the ground and drew up in front of Malik. You wanted to say something to my friend? Hadley asked. I don't mind if you want to talk now. Malik scowled. The matter does not concern you, he said. Hadley's look grew hard. You're not trying to cause trouble, are you? Malik laughed. Go and shove your nose in someone else's face, he said, then turned his back and strolled off. Thought so, said Hadley with a smile. Definitely nothing good. The episode bothered Aidan for the next few classes. He had a dim awareness of being watched through the morning. It was only during field surgery that he was distracted enough to forget Malik and his strange words. The boys walked over to the medical wing and entered their classroom with something akin to dread. Aidan kept his eyes on the floor trying not to catch anyone's attention. Nevertheless, he could feel eyes settling on his scarred left side, and he unconsciously tugged on the hair around the burn, trying to cover his half-ear. Pears, please, Mistress Gilda trilled. Gentlemen, find a lady to help you through this class. No learners. With a lot of awkward shuffling and blushing, the class paired up. Aidan thought that the numbers were uneven and that he had been left out, 
until he spotted the small, dark-skinned, raven-haired girl on the opposite side of the room. He had learned firsthand that foreigners did not always receive the warmest welcome in Castiff. With her ebony skin proclaiming what must be madre or croonish blood, she would have felt her isolation every day. It was no surprise when she did not approach, but instead kept her eyes down and stood where she was. He was struck by the same feeling that had moved him to adopt a dozen grounded fledglings, an injured fawn, an almost drowned rat, and even an abandoned fox cub. The dung beetles, frogs, and lizards had really been abducted. Would you like to work with me? he asked as he approached. Thank you, she said, and accompanied him to the remaining table. I'm Aiden. I am Lirunda, but I prefer to be known as Liru. She did not look at his scar and made no comment on the previous day's humiliation. It didn't even appear to be in her thoughts, and he made no comment on her foreign ancestry. If she was not paying attention to her skin, her large dark eyes and bold, rounded features, he could almost forget that she was not Furnish, for her speech had only the slightest whisper of an accent. There was a deliberate precision to her words, though, a hint of woodenness that suggested hard study rather than childhood familiarity with the language. Mistress Gilda explained the process of making a balm suitable for light cuts, burns, and grazes. She pointed to diagrams of the three most effective leaves, copperlip, frabe, and elfweed and explained briefly where each of them might be found in various terrains. Then she handed out ingredients. Copper lip leaves, tallow boiled from mutton, flaxseed oil, and honey. The girls already had some experience with salves, and were able to demonstrate the use of pestle and mortar. Don't just flatten, crush, Gilda instructed. If the leaves remain uncrushed, the potency remains locked inside. The mistress made her presence felt at every desk. When she reached Aidan's, she remarked on her recovering burn victim. She was not observant enough to notice Aidan's reddening face. Liru said nothing when the mistress left, though the fact that she no longer explained what she was doing suggested she was far more conscious of Aidan's discomfort than she let on. Each pair was then told to apply the salve to a bandage and to wrap a wound, imaginary or otherwise, on their partner's arm. The girls had little need for imagination. Skinless knuckles and elbows abounded, many of them oozing under sticky sleeves. Lirunda, the mistress said as she approached, why don't you wrap the burn wound on Aidan's head, pretending it's fresh? These placements are quite a challenge for bandaging. If it is possible, the quiet girl said, I would prefer to work on his elbow. He has hurt it badly. Liru spoke respectfully, but there was something in her voice that suggested she was prepared to meet firmness with the same. As you wish, Gilda whisked away. Thank you, said Aidan. Liru glanced at him. You saved me embarrassment earlier when you did not leave me alone. That doesn't prove I was being kind or anything. We were the only two left. You still ask without waiting to be told. You looked alone. I know what that feels like. 
She regarded him now with a direct gaze. I think you are kind. I am glad to be working with you. I was very worried. I'm glad to be working with you, too. I don't think I need to dread this class any- <laughs> The sav stung more than he had expected. Liru patted his arm, the dark amusement lurking at the corner of her mouth, until his face relaxed. Then she wrapped the bandage with a level of skill that could not have been gained in two months. Your hands move too fast for someone who just learned this, he said. My father is a doctor. I assisted him for many years before I came here. She glanced around, put a finger to her lips, and repeated the procedure on the other elbow before any of the other girls had finished their first bandage. There, that should feel more comfortable. Change them in two days. I'll help you if I get a chance. Aiden then attempted to apply a bandage on Liru's forearm, and the only good thing about it was that the wound was imaginary. He had Liru guide him through the wraps and knots again, and did a better job on the second attempt. So why is it that we only meet with the twenty of you and none of the other nurses in your year? You are disappointed? she asked with a frown. No, not at all, I'm just curious. Are you separate from the rest? We are not permitted to speak of it to anyone. Aidan was not put off and persisted, in spite of Dunn's warning. We were told that you are being trained as Queen's envoys, but from what I can see, it looks like that just means some kind of travelling nurse. Why so much secrecy around nursing? I thought young marshals were expected to be more observant than that. Aidan looked up. He had been considering her as a kind of little sister, trailing and looking up at him with barely concealed awe. Suddenly it felt as if he was the one trailing and being smiled down on. What did she mean by being observant? He thought back over the conversation, the bandaging, and remembered now that he had noticed something incongruent with the idea of nursing. Two of Liru's knuckles had slight calluses. He was sure there would be more on her elbows. How long did you wear the bandages? he asked. That's better, she replied with just a hint of a smile. You have restored my confidence in you. But not a word to anyone. Promise? I promise. I'll only tell all the boys in my dorm. He grinned. Not if you want the antidote to the poison I worked into your salve. Aidan laughed, but there was no hint of humor in her face as she rose and left the class with the other girls. He felt a twinge of discomfort as he began to wonder if it had really been a joke. Then he began to wonder exactly what sort of doctor her father had been. The girl certainly was a riddle herself. He was beginning to suspect that behind her soft voice, soft dark hair, and soft puppy eyes, was a mind as sharp as pike teeth. He redoubled his resolution to say nothing. Hadley, due to circumstances, had been unable to keep his vow of silence, and, after being compelled to speak to the first girl, had abandoned the whole thing and mingled with several after the class. The second session with Dunn introduced them to the first level of body armor. 
Pads made of reeds, stitched against leather and backed by straw-filled pouches, were strapped to limbs and torso. They provided a fair degree of protection, though a heavy blow would still lay the recipient flat. It enabled the young apprentices to work through the moves learned earlier at great speed, without having to worry about injuries. Faster, Hadley, Dunn yelled. You have the grace of a dancer, but that won't make up for sluggishness. Yes, better. Follow through, Bede. You must reach past the target or the blow will feel like a butterfly's landing. Step closer before you swing. No, hang it all. No, not like you're floating in water. Step as fast as you can. Feet apart and on the diagonal. Wait on toes. Then step like you're getting out of the way of a falling rock. Yes, that's it. Hands up, Lorimer. Once you've engaged, the deception is over. No use dangling your arms as if you're deciding whether or not to fight. You too, Aiden. Protect yourself. No, Cade, a palm punch is not a tap. Remember, thrust from the floor, through your body, and slam your palm into your opponent like a spear. Fail, didn't I warn you that knuckles don't last? No, you can repair yourself later. Let's see you swallow the pain and improvise. Oh. Are you all right there? Hold. No more elbows to the face until you have helms. Try to restrain yourselves until next week. All right, carry on. Despite the bruises and exhaustion, there was a glimmer of enjoyment on the sweat and straw-caked faces. Some things had begun to fall into place. On the way back from the dinner hall, Aidan felt a tap on his shoulder. He turned around to see Malik indicating with his head that he should step into a little study cove. He was curious to know what this was all about, so he obliged. What is it? he asked. Malik looked at him, pale, colorless eyes made more vivid by the hawk-like hoods of steeply angled dark eyebrows. He said nothing until the noise of footsteps had dwindled. Cade stood at the opening to the passage and turned towards them, nodding as he crossed his arms. Aidan began to feel uncomfortable. Well, he prompted. I don't need to be reminded that I called you here, North Boy. Aidan felt his skin frosting in Malik's breath. My purpose is to inform you that your life may be in danger. Who would have any reason to hurt me? Aidan asked. The boy you displaced by cheating when I broke no rule. Osric himself said so. I don't take kindly to being interrupted, especially not with information that I already have. I was there when your pet general interfered. But I was going to say, the boy who finished 81st, who would have made the cut if you hadn't been disqualified like you should have been for cheating. He has friends that want to see him put into Marshall's training, where he belongs. They are not afraid to be violent. The selections are over. Even if I withdrew, nobody could get in. Maybe for you. But there are ways when you know important people. There are also ways of seeing that you get maimed. Perhaps even crippled for life. 
seeing me? What do you mean? Are you threatening me? I won't pretend that I like you, but it's not me you need to worry about. I'm trying to prevent an injury. Face it, you have some skills, but you will never be a marshal. What foreign monarch would want a face like yours in his courts? You belong in the barracks, and maybe you could go far there. I could even get someone to put in a good word for you. But this isn't where you belong. Didn't you notice that the only girl who wanted anything to do with you was the one we all avoided? And for good reason. Those madre are foul. Trust them, and you're always sorry. She's not like that. You're interrupting me again. My partner at the field surgery class was quite open about how revolted the rest of the girls are by your shiny scalp and half-ear. I don't enjoy saying this. It's not like you asked to be turned into a monster. But you do need to hear the truth from someone who won't try pretty it. I'm not biased like your friends would be, but I'm also not your enemy. I'm just putting it out the way it is. Aidan looked back in silence, confused, reeling. He would have known what to do with bare threats, but this had knocked him completely off balance. Consider it, Malik continued. If you remain here, you will have enemies for life, powerful enemies, justly angry that you cheated your way past them. What's it all for? A false dream. The fact is that you are standing where someone else would do a whole lot better. Malik turned and walked away with Cade. But Aidan lingered to sort out his thoughts, making himself late enough to provoke a tongue-lashing by Dunn. Sleep did not come quickly, and it did not soothe his doubts. The next day he felt worse. He decided to put the matter before someone who could give him perspective, and if Malik was right, then he would be faced with an awful decision. Giddard leaned back on his desk and listened patiently while Aidan offloaded. It's not the threat that I'm worried about, he said, after presenting the situation as Malik had put it. I'm sure it's just tough talk, because if anyone did anything, we'd all suspect Malik and this other boy. If they really did have plans, Malik wouldn't have told me. What I'm worried about is that I don't belong here, and I'm in someone else's position. Did I really make it in, or am I here because I got nudged through or something? The aged master pursed his craggy lips as he gathered his thoughts. Osric, he said, would probably have defended anyone he saw being injured by an abuse of rules. He has a personal hatred for that sort of thing. As to nudging, no, there was no nudging or charity involved in your placement here. Osric was not even present for the second stage of eliminations or the final selections. There was some division in your case, but it was decided solely on merit. Master Skeet made it plain, quite forcefully, I might add, that he had never encountered such mature strategic reasoning in anyone your age. I don't mind telling you that your temper was considered a problem. Aidan felt his face colour with embarrassment. Or was it a faint glow of anger? 
while your unusual perspective on situations was thought by the majority to hold great value. You look at things in a unique way, unlike anyone I've ever taught. That is very valuable here. This Aiden found surprising. He had never really thought of it as something good, just something that made him different, often to the annoyance of others. He never tried to take strange angles when considering a matter. He simply didn't know how to think any other way. Giddard continued. I hope I am not breaching a confidence when I say that you have a strong supporter here with the authority to overrule any of the masters or even Osric. This patron sees in you a potential he sees in none of the others. Malik is exaggerating the effect of a scar on a diplomat. The more warlike monarchs might even consider it favorable. It might result in fewer swooning ladies at court, but I would not consider this an obstacle to your duties. Don't be concerned that you are a dragging anchor to this institution. This is exactly where you belong, and I'll have words with anyone who plants other ideas in your head. Aidan's relief was visible. He had come here unsure if he belonged in the academy, but Giddard had set things in perspective and given him something to ponder. Who could this patron be? Surely not Culver. There had been no warmth or support there. Thank you, he said. But can I ask that you rather let me speak to Malik? Certainly. I'm glad you want it so. As a marshal, you will often have no one but yourself to back you up. He caught up with Malik while walking across the courtyard of the medical buildings and summarized his discussion with Giddard. Malik listened with a pained expression, blending pity with contempt. When he finally spoke, it was as a disappointed older brother. Listen to the people around you, he said. Don't you notice the stares? Don't you hear the whispers? Don't you understand what they mean? Do you think Giddard, with his face of wrinkled cowhide, actually understands any of this? Of course he would try to make that thing on the side of your face seem like it doesn't matter. Become a soldier, Aidan. As a soldier, the helmet will hide the damage and put you on an equal footing. Aidan felt his confidence slipping again. He did not like Malik, and he suspected there was some more personal motive behind this, but he was struggling against the cold logic in the boy's words. Liru stepped up to them. Neither of the boys had noticed her approach. She addressed Malik in a voice that was clear and even. You know little of the southern cultures if you think yourself better off. You have obviously never heard the saying, skin pale as sickness and eyes weak as rainwater. This is a very common saying. It describes such as you. In the South, scars are carried with honor. They speak of strength to those who bother to think on it. What do I care of such barbaric ideas? Malik snarled. Do you mean that? You are a student of these cultures. Does this hope to achieve ignorance extend to other areas of your studies? Malik's lip twitched. He glared with cold fury before turning to Aiden and saying, Stay at this academy and you will regret it. This I promise you. Aiden's brows rose. 
Suddenly, Malik did not look so impartial. It was clear that his involvement was deeply personal. All that talk about wanting to prevent an injury by others was beginning to seem a little thin, like a performance that's compromised when a prop topples over somewhere backstage. Anger had lunged forward and caused a rip in the curtain, and it was no mild anger that lurked back there. He walked away at such a pace that Cade had to jog at his elbow. Aiden turned to Liru. I worry that you made an enemy, he said. My father told me I could not be a true friend without sharing some of my friend's enemies. You would want to be my friend, at a price like this? Yes. You are kind, and I have not always known kindness here. There are many tongues that have injured me in this place, but yours I do not fear. Do I need to fear your poison? he asked, holding up his bandage. My father also said he pitied my friends for the poisonous wit they would have to survive. She offered no smile, simply turned and walked into the class. Aidan laughed to himself and followed. By the afternoon session with Dunn, Aidan was feeling better. Some of what Malik had said was truth. He couldn't deny it. Some was exaggeration. He was beginning to recognize that now and some had been collected from the south side of a horse. He would carry this burn scar through life, and it was time to start accepting it. There were, doubtless, people who would see it as Malik did, but then, should he really care what people like Malik thought? That was how the reasoning went. But later, when the lights were out, the images returned to mock and haunt, images that Malik had spawned frowns of disgust, shaking heads, hands clamped to laughing mouths, and the ever-curious stares. They danced before Aidan's eyes, though he squeezed them shut and crushed them with his fists. Why? Why? Why must I be such a... such a freak? He silently screamed into the darkness. Why can't I just be like everyone else? He pounded the mattress, pulled at his hair, and tore at the skin until exhaustion left him in a hollow silence that finally, mercifully, became sleep. Chapter 23 In two weeks we hold the first challenge, and it will go poorly with anyone who fails. Don's words brought immediate silence to the dining hall. These challenges will take place regularly. Every challenge is different and always a surprise. So I'll tell you nothing except that anything you have covered in your classes may be of use, and that you would do well to get some good rest before the day. Aidan stopped chewing, even forgot to swallow. He was still too weak for any kind of physical test. The next day, the last day of the week, was theirs to do with as they pleased, as long as they remained within the academy. Aidan spent it worrying. Three months would pass before they would be allowed out. The academy, however, was large enough and peopled enough to provide distraction. 
but with the panic surrounding this challenge, there was no thought spared for anything outside their training. Following two weeks of dread and preparation, classes were suspended for a day, and the boys began a series of tests. First was Skeet, who had them critique a flawed attack plan using maps and logistical data. Aiden impressed the stern master again by picking up on a detail nobody else had considered, the direction of the small stream that had its source in the enemy camp. It rendered the entire siege useless, no matter what was done with troops and catapults, because the besieged force could simply dam up the stream at its source, or use filth and rotting carcasses to defile the water as it left their camp, defeating the attackers by thirst or disease. For the other tests, they had to exchange basic greetings and obtain directions in Arunian, mark the points of the compass using sun and stars, and apply their knowledge of law and foreign relations to a complex case involving an important trade dispute, in which Peashot got in trouble when he recommended Skeet's battle plan. After completing the theory aspects, they were sent to Dunn. Several older martial apprentices, kitted out in pads, waited in the training hall, tensing their fists and looking hostile. Dunn called the first years out one at a time to face an older boy and demonstrate his unarmed combat skills. Aidan stood at the back of the line. He was relieved to see that none fared too well. Peashot, like most of them, abandoned technique in the excitement and brawled like a tomcat. Dunn yelled and called them all an embarrassment to his training, then demanded basic sequences that he could evaluate. At last it was Aidan's turn. He had hoped that those who were finished would leave, but the crowd remained. He could not be shown to be the weakest, anything but the weakest, especially with Malik's group looking at him like he was something that needed to be cleaned off the floor. He walked to the middle of the hall, a hall full of eyes and whispers. His desperation was rising. It scrambled everything in his thoughts, even Don's last instruction. When the signal was given, he charged at his opponent, unleashing a wild fury of swinging punches, airy kicks, and skidding contacts. A shove from the older boy tipped him backwards while his legs were going forward, and he landed with a smack. There he lay, staring up at the ceiling and gaping, cod-like for air that wouldn't come. The laughter was worse than Dunn's shouts. Aidan didn't want to know what the master wrote down, and he vowed to himself that no matter how desperate, he would never again fight without thinking. The winning dorm, Malik's, was rewarded with an apple pastry which was presented to them after dinner. The other boys retired. Peashot seeming to take forever. Aidan was partway down the passage when exclamations of dismay floated after him. He looked back to see Peashot wearing a deeply satisfied expression. You know what's happening in there? Aidan asked. Peashot shrugged, but Aidan held the stare. Maybe, said Peashot at last. Maybe the dustpan could have got emptied into the mix. Would have been difficult to spot the chunks of charcoal and sand between all those raisins. But I'm just guessing. 
This was too good to keep. Aidan told the Dom of Peashot's suspicion as soon as they got back. The laughter continued for a long time, and the little fiery-haired boy received a good deal of congratulation. Nobody was going to tongue-wag on him. And in that moment, Aidan realized something. For the first time since leaving the Misty Vales, he had found real friends, and understood how much they meant. They had not swept his troubles away, nor he theirs, but somehow it was easier on those heavy days to stand under the load when standing shoulder to shoulder. He found their company often helped him to see bright rifts in leaden skies. On other days, the clouds would melt under a cheerful sun, and the cheer was multiplied a hundredfold when shared. Previously, he had considered himself a loner because he was comfortable on his own out in the forest. But even in the north, he had secretly enjoyed turning his steps back home after a solitary day. When friends and family had been taken from him, he had felt like the man who says he prefers winter until his coat and shelter are lost. The growing friendships were warming him again, restoring his confidence. It was clear that the same was true for Peashot, though he was taking a lot longer to thaw. Daily, the loyalty and comradeship were growing. Then, over the next few weeks, there were some other things that started to emerge. Lorimer was messy in a way that defied comprehension. And dirty. Socks, heavy with foot grease, would stick and slither over furniture wherever they happened to be flung, and large, stained boots regularly tripped anyone who had to walk past his area on nightly errands to the privy. Vale was lazy, preferring to recline in aloof majesty, offering philosophic advice rather than assistance. His tendency to improve others' stories, beginning with, No, that's not what happened, was brought to an end when Peashot exploded and told him that, if he couldn't listen to a story without correcting it, he should move across to the College of Legal Administrators, where he would fit right in. Peashot had a habit of collecting things that had not previously belonged to him, and that nobody had seen him buy. When Hadley once pressed the issue, identifying a gold-tipped letter opener that had formerly belonged to Rodwell, Peashot insisted that it was borrowed. Things grew lively when Hadley's knife disappeared the following day. He marched right over and shoved out an accusing finger. Peashot said something stinging. The extended finger became a hand that grasped for the smaller boy's neck, but the movement was too slow. Peashot slipped underneath and landed a mean little kick. Hadley, hopping on his remaining good knee, managed to wrestle the thieving weasel into a corner. It took everyone else in the dorm to separate the combatants. The dorm was tense for a few days. Then, one evening, Kian arrived to return the knife and thank Hadley for the loan. There was a deep, thoughtful silence. Hadley ended it with a laugh. He walked over to Peashot, apologized, and held out his arm. Peashot clasped the extended forearm reluctantly, and mumbled something that Aidan was not convinced was entirely polite. In this, and any number of his interactions, 
Hadley never showed hesitation. He was nothing if not recklessly headlong. This impulsive tilt was born of supreme confidence, and often revealed itself, true to his father's description, as pushiness. Hadley had no need for space, and no awareness of anyone else's need for it. He would invite himself into, and then dominate, all manner of private conversations and solitary reveries. With Aidan, the first objection was always directed to an appetite for adventure so extreme that Vale considered it pathological. By the time the three-month confinement to the academy was over, Aidan's fitness and confidence had begun to return. He wasted no time before charging back into the ways he had known in the north. Not even Hadley tried to get in front of him now, when he bolted off to climb the highest trees during storms, dared the rapids on rafts that were smashed apart more often than not, rigged and tested swings that launched from branches sixty feet above the ground, and prowled at night through wild regions considered hazardous even by the rangers. If there were snakes to be caught, bush pigs to be tracked, or unpredictable horses to be handled, he would be there. The most problematic aspect was that he found something irresistible behind every sign that ordered caution or forbade entry. Often the whole worried group had to work together to talk him out of some dubious exploration. Mostly their efforts failed, and the group was torn between standing watch for officials and fleeing the scene. But with Aidan, there was another problem, and it was of an entirely different sort. It was his breath. He considered the complaints utter nonsense. He couldn't smell anything. In this, the halitosis was like every character flaw in the dorm, for none of the boys recognized their supposed faults, or, if they did, considered them harmless. But Aidan's was not a problem destined to be ignored. One day, Liru handed him a bag containing a large vial of powdered charcoal, mint, and several other ingredients, a reel of silken thread and some kind of brush that looked like a coarse, hairy root. What's this for? I do not cry easily, but your breath, it makes my eyes water. Are you trying to say you stink, Aidan? Sort this out, or I will wear a mask when you speak to me. Liru, then, could perhaps have been charged with a lack of subtlety, but she would have taken it as a compliment. In any case, the point was made. Aidan slunk away and began sorting himself out. In the dormitory, Hadley was the natural leader, not because of any real ambition to be so, but because he was usually already on the move before anyone else had finished considering the options. The only time this changed was when Aidan had one of his adventurous or tactical ideas, something that happened often enough for the two of them to trade roles almost constantly. Winter began to slip away. Aidan turned thirteen at last and promptly began to think of himself as almost fourteen. It was close to a year since Quinn had stormed into his life and set in motion the changes that had brought him here. Castith was just beginning to feel like home. For two months, the routine remained roughly the same, and after the initial shock, the apprentices found ways of adapting. The near reverence with which they regarded the masters 
soon melted under the influence of familiarity. They discovered that there were certain classes in which the back row was good for short naps, and that some of the junior instructors failed to notice if a desk was empty, allowing one or two to skip a class. Aidan would have skipped every class on foreign relations, but his absence would never have gone unnoticed. Colas continued to teach as though arguing against Aidan's unspoken opposition. Peashot was almost removed from training when Dunn, who happened to be standing at the door, caught him in the act of tenderizing Rodwell. He was allowed to return after a one-week detention, a sincere apology, and a promise to never use a pea-shooter in the academy again. He insisted to his friends that it had all been worth it for the sweet memory of Rodwell's squealing and trying to work his short pink arms around his girth to dislodge the imagined wasp. For a while, Peashot made do without his weapon. He compensated for his loss by planting trouble wherever he saw fertile ground. Once, he asked Aidan if it would be possible to move the marble pillars marking the stair traps. Aidan's look had ended the discussion. But Peashot soon found something else to distract him, in the form of a large, dead, yellow-banded viper. After ensuring that he was late enough to be the last one entering class, he pinned it up on the outside of Mistress Gilda's closed door and then slipped inside. The hinges were all turned inward, so when she opened the door at the end of the lesson, the large, scaly form swung into the room and wrapped gently around her. It was not one scream, but several. The stocky little woman emptied and refilled her lungs with impressive speed. Even Peashot seemed to be in awe of the sonic onslaught. A number of the girls took up the alarm, and one or two of the city-bred boys backed away from the swinging viper, falling over chairs and adding to the general air of panic. It was a performance that would forever be etched into the memories of the noble institution. On the way out, Peashot told Aidan how he felt he had benefited from having his pea-shooter confiscated. I've grasped the importance of diversifying. Like Dunn said, we mustn't get fixed on one weapon, but must be ready to snatch weapons and opportunities as they appear. He would be happy, don't you think, to see how I've learned my lesson? Aidan wondered for an instant if Peashot had actually gone mad. But then he saw the sliding eye and the malicious little grin. Weren't you even slightly sorry about shooting Rodwell in the back? he asked. Well, if you put it that way, yes, a little. That's good to hear. I was aiming for his neck. Still bothers me that I had to go out on a shot like that. <laughs>